Hey everybody, welcome back to Director's Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Capole, your temporary host, filling in one more time before Jim comes back from sabbatical. And we're here to talk about Wong Kar Wai, the great Hong Kong filmmaker, probably one of the most beloved sort of art house figures of the past 30 years or so. And helping me, uh, as always, is, well, when you read the back of like an, of a Kino Lorber Blu-ray, when they're being charitable, they'll say historian. And when, when they're feeling kind of salty, they'll call him a podcaster. Yeah. Uh, but he's great at both, and, and we <laughs> love having him on. Bill Ackerman. Uh, thank you for having me back. I always insist on the podcaster part. Some people. Oh, that's your insistence? Yeah, no, I feel like a little bit of phony to be called a film historian only on those things. <laughs> I mean, you wrote a book about, uh, oh, shoot, what's his Al name? Al Adamson. Yeah, you wrote a book about Al Adamson. And uh, there is an Al Adamson, Wong Kar Wai connection, but we'll get to it. <laughs> I cannot <laughs> wait to hear it. And if you tell me that one of the abandoned uh, stories for... Uh, Chunking Express involved a talking chimp. I'm going to love it even more. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Uh, well, I will, gosh, uh, do you want me to tell you now or do you want to wait? <laughs> no, no, make them wait for it. <laughs> All right. This is going to be a long podcast. We got to keep them hooked on somehow. That's true. Um, so we're going to be talking about Wong Kar Wai. Wong Kar Wai is a filmmaker from Hong Kong, best known for films like Chunking Express and in the mood for love. Chung King Express, of course, made a really big splash in America when Quentin Tarantino, at the height of his cultural cachet, sort of co-signed it and released it on his Rolling Thunder label. In the mood for love is, I think, the only 21st century film that is consistently in the sight and sound top 10 films of all time. Um, I It's just widely considered one of the greatest films of all time, and I certainly believe that too. But he has Eight other features. That's the thing about Wong Kar Wai. Not a super prolific filmmaker, um, considering his stature, especially the last 20 years, he averages them out like one every nine years or so. So we are, like the Tony Scott episode, going to go through every single one of his features, and we're going to hit on other kinds of accumulated uh, short films and you know commercials and stuff that he also did along the way. Because um, when, you when you're someone like Wong Kar Wai and you're this like beloved figure... Uh, we were just talking about this off off mic. Uh, you can use that brand uh, to sort of let these luxury brands like BMW and Dior and stuff just give you a bunch of money. So then you put your name on a totally interchangeable looking kind of high fashion shoot uh, 30 second ad. Um, and now they are associated with your cultural cachet and, you know, and your aesthetic excellence, despite the fact that you're not giving them your A material. And, that's how, uh, especially someone who works as idiosyncratically as Wong Kar Wai, and we'll get into his very unique process, uh, that's how he's sort of able to keep doing things the way he does it. Yeah, and, well, I was going to say, I mean, it's funny how we're following this, you know, your um, your Tony Scott episode with this, because they, you know, both have that connection with advertising, um, you know, Tony Scott coming from that wave of British filmmakers that were all schooled in, uh, you know, commercials, you know, the, um, you know, his brother and, uh, Alan Parker and Adrian Lyne. And then, you know, someone like Wong Kar Wai, you know, kind of comes from like screenwriting grunt work in the Hong Kong film industry, like totally commercial filmmaking mindset. And then, you know, becomes a celebrated art house auteur, but then he uses that cachet um, for high high, high price commercial gigs. You know, I mean, more often than not, in the last you know twenty years. Yeah, we were we we're talking about other people who do this. Sort of like David Lynch has uh, a history of doing this. I mm -hmm. feel like Spike Jones is currently in that status now. Um, 
where he'll do all sorts of sort of corporate sponsored shorts that are you watch him and you're like, I guess you kind of shrug. <laughs> um, yeah. And Spike Lee has said, you know, that, you know, he has a whole kind of secret filmography of, you know, commercial work. I mean, for, for all the ones that he does that are like Spike Lee joint, you know, commercials, whether it's you know for Nike or for Bitcoin, he's got others that he does not, um, you know, same like, you know, someone like Wes Anderson has commercials where he's front and center. But, you know, I don't know if he does other ones that are just, you know, purely functional um but yeah i mean i think scorsese has probably done some i think yeah it, it's it is a part of how uh these people make a living especially if it's someone like like david lynch or wong kar Wai that don't make that many features it's like you know i mean you, you make you know five hundred thousand dollars for directing something let's say and then but that how if that lasts you 10 years i mean that might you might feel that after a while <laughs> Right. But it allows him to keep making work that is sort of uncompromised unless it's being released by the Weinsteins, in which case no one gets through that one alive. But yeah. uh, pretty much all of his films feel just sort of uncut uh, Wong Kar Wai in a way. So um, we are going to touch glancingly on some of those commercials, but mostly we're just going to be focusing on the 10 features. Um, before we do that, we should probably talk a little bit about where he comes from. He's Someone who originates, I believe, all of his own projects. I don't think he really has co-writers um, very often, or um, he he kind of works very in a very intensely personal and instinctual way, a very idiosyncratic method that again we'll get into a little later. So uh, I think because of that, um, knowing about where he's coming from sort of makes a lot of his pet themes and obsessions make sense. Um, he was born in 1958 in Shanghai, um, but when he was five years old, uh, the Cultural Revolution were beginning to take effect in China, where the communists were taking over, and his parents decided to relocate to British-ruled Hong Kong. Um, and while he was in Hong Kong, you know, uh, in Hong Kong they speak Cantonese, um, not Mandarin, and he did not speak Cantonese, and there was a several-year period where he felt like a fish out of water, and he he didn't speak the language, and... Um, it was at once an extremely exciting time because Hong Kong has always been this extremely contemporary city. Uh, there's there's a lot of special features and stuff where they go to like different shooting locations and everything. And almost nothing from Chungking Express is still there the way it is, <laughs> the way uh, you might want to revisit it because uh, Hong Kong is a city that keeps sort of tearing down and rebuilding itself. And you know, like hidden in the a lot of the early uh, Wong Kar Wai movies, like beepers are really important uh, sort of plot devices because just that the the attach rate for Hong Kong citizens and beepers was just out of control. Where a lot of people in Hong Kong would have multiple beepers and stuff. So that's just like the kind of city it is. So that's a very exciting place to go to uh, from Shanghai uh, as a five year old. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's a very lonely experience to sort of be that young and be uprooted from everything you've known and to not know the language and everything. So I think as we will look at the work of Wong Kar Wai, we're going to see a lot of everything. Uh, it, almost all of his movies are set in Hong Kong, but they're almost always contextualized and as part of a larger world. Hong Kong never seems like a self-contained thing. There's always other countries people are coming from or going to. There's always a sense of displacement. Um, and I you know, if, if you want to psychoanalyze someone through their work, it would be easy to say that that is where that comes from in Wong Kar Wai's films. Um, but the other thing that made him a filmmaker is that uh, the main thing he did when he was young was go to the movies with his mother. And uh, he talks a lot about 
how he wasn't just watching like, you know, Hong Kong action movies or whatever. He would watch movies from, you know, mainland China and he would watch movies from Hollywood and he would watch, uh, you know, movies from sort of the more art house side of the European films and stuff like that. And they were all sort of, the, he didn't. He never distinguished between them as being this is that and this is that. He just they all felt like movies to him, and they all started his sort of obsession with movies. And you will see in his work references from everything to you know uh, old Wuja novels to uh, Fellini films to uh, Michael uh, Antonioni and um, you know uh, Good obviously Arden, yeah <laughs> yeah so. So Wong Kar Wai is someone who at a very young age sort of synthesized an extremely broad variety of cinema. And that definitely came out, especially in his work through the 90s. Um, yeah, sorry, not, I was going to say, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely not provincial type type movies. I mean, I think that's why they became such big exports. I mean, one thing that you can say about most Wong Kar Wai films, with some exceptions, is that they are not like huge commercial successes back home, but they have these uh, legs that carry them internationally in a way that, you know, other other contemporaries that might be bigger, you know, broad comedies or wild action movies, they might, they might kind of just play to the home market and that's it. And Wong Kar Wai's films have always I think maybe from days of being wild on have really, uh, you know, found, you know, great audiences in Europe and then, you know, obviously in America as well. Um, and I think that, that kind of, that glut of different influences, not just cinematically, but musically too. I mean, they always oh, feel yeah. like, they always feel like these like uh, rich stews of, you know, Argentinian influence here or like reggae or, uh, you know, different kind of, uh, and like, you know, Chinese cover versions of, you know, pop songs like the Cranberries, like a famously in Chungking Express, but like, you know, I mean, even um, like the Dean, was it Dean Martin, like Sway, like, I mean, that, all these kind of different uh, things that like, you know, Americans would kind of recognize, but like recontextualize. So it's like not totally foreign, but still kind of foreign to like an art yeah. house American audience. I mean, I know when I, the first, well, the first uh, Wong Kar Wai movie I saw was, I think, Happy Together. I saw that in college. Um, uh. And that was actually a really important movie for me because I'm, you know, I've known I was bisexual from a pretty young age, you know, from like 13 or whatever. But when you are bisexual, it's easy, especially you're like bisexual in a Catholic school or in Texas or whatever. It's very easy to look around and be like, I'm just going to go ahead and be straight. I'm not really going to explore this other part of me. So there was a lot of, uh, there was sort of an instinctual fear I always had of like queer culture and stuff like that. And I never really got into any kind of queer cinema or anything. And I feel like when I saw Happy Together at the age of 19 or whatever, the only other gay movie I'd ever seen was uh, Brokeback Mountain, which is a fine movie and also by another fine uh, uh, Taiwanese, not Hong Kong, uh, filmmaker Ang Lee. But it is a movie that is, it falls into some very familiar tropes of like, well, there's no, you know, there, there's, it's a tragic thing and there's all sorts of queer tropes that go into one of them has to die, that sort of thing. Um, whereas Happy Together... I looked at him and it's just like, oh, this is just a relationship. There's like no attempt to justify the fact that this is a gay relationship. There's no a single line of dialogue uh, in that movie where they go, where it's like, I know it's strange that I'm making a movie about two men who love each other, but the movie just accepts it as is. And that's sort of, it was this sort of eye-opening thing to me. And even though Wong Kar Wai is a straight man, that was sort of, 
for me an entryway into more queer cinema to realize like oh it's more than just like a sad story about sad things that happen to unfortunate people um, yeah i i i mean we, we could go for a while on happy together right off the bat if we want to <laughs> I, oh I, no no i, no. I, will, I, I, I actually hold off on some of my thoughts about it but yeah for yeah me, um I, but yeah i, have, I got I have distracted some... what i was trying to say is the first thing the first movie i saw of his where i was like thinking about him as a filmmaker was Chunking Express. And in Chunking Express, with all of the uh, Mamas and the Papas drops, my in- first instinct was he was like Ang Lee, was like, oh, he must be a Hong Kong based filmmaker, but who went to school in America. Or like, I-, I figured he had to have some kind of Western background to, you know, have the cranberry songs. And it's, and of course, it's like, no, they're, you know, they're major worldwide pop hits. But that was always my first instinct was like, oh, this is someone who understands where I'm from, even though this is a movie that was made in Hong Kong. Um, so what you're saying about the way his movies cross over like makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I, the first one I saw uh, was Chunking Express. I saw it um, in college and it was a case where I didn't know anything about it. I had friends that were like film majors and um, they were like, hey, we're going to the movies to see a movie called Chunking Express. You want to tag along? And I knew nothing about it. I didn't know any Tarantino connection. I didn't know Wong Kar Wai's other films. I didn't know anything. I just went like, oh, well, sure, I, I will go see a movie knowing absolutely nothing. And um, it really impressed me. And I think I was at an age where I had seen some foreign language films in the theater, but it was still kind of, it was still relatively new for me to go to foreign language films. And so I was surprised at how... Um, silly it was because i think i had associated foreign films with bergman or oh, sure, with, you yeah. know like like or th- things that felt like like you needed to make allowances for like cultural differences and understand them in context and here was something that felt like like a romantic comedy like an american romantic comedy in, in some superficial ways and had songs you know that like you know uh, i would recognize either like the cranberries like you know reinterpreted or um you know, just just the um, the the feeling of it felt like um, very accessible in a way that, like, I mean, I guess it's you take it for granted, like, you know, that foreign films don't necessarily have to be art films, um, right? But uh, and, and we could talk about that, like, I mean, you know, what, yeah, how much these are art films and how much these are commercial films, because something like, you know, as tears go by or the Grandmaster, like, some of these films are pretty much genre films, and then. Um, you know, I, I think something like Happy Together, I mean, is it is it an art film or is it a, a romance with some kind of eccentric camera work? I mean, um, you know, does does the fact that it's foreign language make it an art film? Because um, I, I don't think of these some of these are a little bit more dense, but um, something like Chunking Express was like a perfect kind of gateway foreign language film for like a teenager. Cause I think I was 19. And then. Um, I guess that was enough of a success that Kino Lorber, or I don't know if it was Kino, it might've just been Kino International at the time, but they put out Happy Together and Fallen Angels in pretty quick succession. So I actually wound up seeing Happy Together first and then Fallen Angels, like maybe a short time later, both on the big screen. And they, I think the one-two punch of that following Chunking Express kind of made me think, okay, this is maybe the most exciting filmmaker, you know, happening right now. It didn't feel like it just felt like out of the blue, like, like, who is this guy? Because it was only a couple of years where, you know, because you think of Wong Kar Wai films now and they come out like Terrence Malick films used to, where it's just like, you know, wait a decade and here's another one. Um, like, the, it was like, you know, bam, 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 like, here's three, here's three great films. And then, yeah. and then In the Mood for Love kind of felt like, 
something totally different. But then it's like they kind of slow down, um, not just the pace, <laughs> the pace of the films, but also the pace of the output. Um, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think I think when you're talking about art house genres, you're really talking about is markets and you're really talking about like what what can be sold to what audiences and and stuff like that. And I'm sure Wong Kar Wai himself never thinks in those terms, because if he thought for a second about how to market, like how marketable the thing he's doing is, he would ne- he would instantly stop making movies the way he does. Um, it's like the, it's like the most financially irresponsible way <laughs> to, 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 to produce a film. Yeah. Um, At the same time though, he's somebody that's always making sequels and reboots of things. I mean, I mean, you know, you have, I mean, days of being wild was meant to have a sequel, but didn't. And then Chunking express was an international hit that had an immediate sequel. Um, I, I in think the that's for a, love had an immediate sequel. Yeah. I think that's like a form that, that like you could say that he is making films in the Wong Kar Wai market um, of that, where he stands alone. But like, to me, the fact that when he made, you know, days of being wild and he was like, Oh yeah, this is, you know, this is part one of a trilogy or like, you know, I think, I think it's even as tears go by was even like the second film in a plan. I think that's just the way he let his brain likes to think. Cause even in inside of his films, they're very episodic and they're very there. There's a lot of twinning and there's a lot of mm-hmm. like multiple stories commenting on each other. I think that's just sort of the way his brain works. And yeah. it's not necessarily a, a, has any bearing on him worrying about the marketability. Uh, like honestly, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into 2046. That's, that's a movie to me that almost feels like a legacy sequel, despite the fact that it was the next movie he made. Um, yeah, well, I, I would say that like, um, I mean, it's probably a stretch to, to make too much of a comparison to the fact that that character in those films is like writing martial arts serials or writing like, you know, um, like, or he's writing, he's writing martial arts serials and in the mood for love and he's writing different kinds of fiction in the, in the 2046. But, um, you know that the, that that recurring that recurring series idea. I mean, we we're living through it now with like every franchise kind of being like like a big budget miniseries. You know, like the Marvels or the Star Wars or whatever. Um, and I don't know that the Wong Kar Wai films quite work like that, but they do feel like all so many of them feel like in conversation with with one another. I think he thinks of them as one big film in some way. I don't think. I mean, maybe my, but even something like my Blueberry Nights is like got so many connections to the to the Hong Kong films. It's not like, like even the outliers are like that far outside it. No, um, and I think that, like when we're talking about like our first reactions to Wong Kar Wai and like kind of the splash he's made um, at the time, you you talked about it, like it just feeling this is the most exciting thing happening in film right now. But even in retrospect, you look at something like Fallen Angels and you're like, there's nothing like this. And I was even, when I was rewatching these films, I was specifically trying to think, Wong Kar Wai is one of the most beloved, you know, art house filmmakers of all time, certainly of the past 30 years, as as I said. Like, what is his influence? Who took Wong Kar Wai and then tried to run with it? And I was really squinting. And like, I guess you could say that there was sort of a spate of really kind of cutesy indie romantic comedies and dramedies and stuff that, you know, sort of dominated Sundance in the well, early to mid aughts that well, you could say is like, that's kind of chunking express or whatever. But really I don't see a lot of Wong Kar Wai and other people's work. Well, the big one would be lost in translation, 
which yeah, you know, and true. she and she even thanks Wong Kar Wai in her Oscar speech. Um, so that would probably be the first thing I'd point to. But I mean, you know, I don't know. Like you know, Barry Jenkins is always a big uh, you know public Wong Kar Wai fan. I don't know when looking at something like Moonlight or um, uh, if Beale Street could talk. Like I, it's it's probably buried in there but it's not like overt um i wonder if it's like 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 for example the last episode i did was on tony scott Mm -hmm. and tony scott uh sort of started shooting and editing his movies in a certain way and then eventually all movies kind of look like tony scott yeah um but the thing about tony scott's movies is throughout his career uh, not every single film but most films were wildly successful financially and none of wong kar wai films they're they're beloved critically and they cross over to a lot of different world audiences and because he produces them independently i'm sure he makes more than enough but i don't think any studios are really like rubbing their hands together going we need to get some of that Wong Kar Wai money yeah and and he might be influential on other directors but like and someone like Christopher Doyle would get hired by other directors to maybe add some of that Wong Kar Wai flavor but nothing that Wong Kar well nothing that Christopher Doyle shoots for like Jim Jarmusch or Gus Van Sant, whoever, look like Wong Kar Wai movies. I mean, so it's not like they are trying to cop the look. I, and Wong Kar Wai's own kind of style seemed to change in a big way from Happy Together to In the Mood for Love. Because I think, I think in the Hong Kong market, there were more imitators and he was conscious of, you know, having to change to oh, really? keep, keep up, uh, keep ahead of, uh, you know, the people that were copying him. Um, but I... I can't speak to specific films. I mean, you know, beyond the fact that, um, you know, there are, uh, there was, there was a film like, uh, days of tomorrow, but, um, like riffing on days of being wild. Um, but then I don't know. I mean, Hong Kong almost feels like the Italian industry in the, in the seventies to me, as far as like, you know, imitations coming fast and furious and, you know, you just, um, you know, the, the, the trends being a big part of the marketplace. And I don't know that Wong Kar Wai's films were like um, always just influencing films. I think they were influencing, since we talked about advertising earlier, I think that like music videos and advertising were also taking a page from Wong Kar Wai uh, aesthetically. Um, so which is why it would make sense for him to go into directing commercials and music videos himself. That makes sense. Uh, the, the You you watch Chunking Express and it's not hard to see like 100 music videos out of that. Well, I mean, even you look at, since we mentioned Tony Scott and we talk about Wong Kar Wai, we can talk about Take My Breath Away and how they, you know, um, you know, Tony Scott, you know, really, I think, helped popularize a certain kind of MTV aesthetic that I think... Um, that comes from Simpson and Bruckheimer as much as from Tony Scott, because you can see it in Flashdance before they start working with Tony Scott. But, you know, that's that kind of MTV music video style, yeah. you know, permeating Hollywood. Um, you look at As Tears Go By, the first film we'll be talking about, and that, I mean, when there's a montage to Take My Breath Away, I mean, I think off, cam- off, off mic before you had maybe hinted that you felt like he was... Um, ripping off Top Gun or, or like copying it. I, it may be, but like the, um, maybe I, I should let you clarify that point. You think that that's a, uh, like a lift or do you think that's, you, I, I, you know what? I think we're going to get to as tears go by pretty quickly. So we sort of went on a, a tangent there. Cause I, and I did want to talk about our first time seeing one car Wai and our <laughs> sort of impressions. Uh, I'm going to, I'm just going to go ahead and get through sort of the coarsest biography. Okay. Uh, that, uh, and then we can get to his first feature. Um, so he, uh, got his diploma for gra- in graphic design from Hong Kong Polytechnic in 1980. 
Um, and then he went on to a training course in uh, from, with the TVB television network, um, where he sort of began a screenwriting career, cranking out TV series and soap operas, um, and then eventually working his way up to film scripts now. Uh, most of the films that he wrote scripts for, he was not the sole writer. He was a writer on them. And most of them are sort of unavailable uh, on home video in the West. So we didn't really watch too many of them. But when you read the synopsises for these films, they don't see, they seem like pretty typical genre films in the way that very few Wong Kar Wai directed films do. Um, yeah, he was part of a, like a, I forget the exact terminology, like like a script tank, maybe or something. Yeah. It was like like a like a writer's room kind of thing. It wasn't like yeah, there was no like creative. Like it was not like a situation like even like Preston Sturges, where he's like finding his voice, like the voice that you associate with the with the writer director. I mean, this is just him being a good employee. Right. And 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 this is this is not something I've read in any interview or anything. This is just pure supposition on my part. I wonder if the way that Wong Kar Wai has sort of tropes and images and themes and stuff that he'll constantly return to is a result of his being trained to like, let's not reinvent the wheel. We know we are producing a certain kind of product and these are the things that work. And I wonder if obviously these things are personal to him, but also I wonder uh, how much of just the way his brain was wired to produce material is just sort of like, what are we, what are the things that we start off with? We have the you know in a, in a Hong Kong gangster movie we have the drug deal gone wrong and we have this and that like for the Wong Kar Wai movie it's like what are the things we start off with? We have someone sad in a bar and there's a clock on the wall and there's a jukebox playing a, a torch song and like I almost like I I could kind of see it almost but it's that's total uh, invented by me I don't know if that's actually anything um, but he did eventually work his way up to sort of a a pivotal uh, film that he wrote, uh, Final Victory, in 1987. It was an action film that he directed for Patrick Tam. Patrick Tam, in his own right, is an extremely interesting uh, filmmaker who would go back and forth between genre and art house in very unusual ways. Um, he made films such as Nomad, uh, which is, in some ways, a uh, it's it almost feels like a Fast Times at Ridgemont High, um, but sort of more emotionally driven uh kind of version but again it has this it has this uh sort of subplot bubbling underneath and the way the direction the movie goes you would never expect any Patrick Tam he would make these really big interesting choices uh he has a horror film um called Love Massacre that is also from 1981 that is also one of the strangest and most vivid uh kind of serial killer slash stalker slash slasher movie kind of films that you can ever hope to see. And I, I have to think, uh, I, I know for a fact that Patrick Tam was a mentor for Wong Kar Wai. Yeah. And he's um, an editor, I think of the action sequences of some of the films too. I think he's one of the editors on uh, as, as uh, ashes of time, I think. And maybe even as tears that go, as tears go by, I don't remember off the top of my head. If he was also and, an editor uh, on that. Days Days of Being Wild was a film where he was the person, he was an editor on that, and he was the person who came in and sort of helped Wong Kar Wai discover the more elliptical structure that would define a lot of his work. Um, a lot of the sort of unexplained jumps in time, and you're not exactly 
sure what has happened in between the previous scene and the current one. That is the influence of Patrick Tam. And obviously that's hugely important for films like uh, Happy Together and In the Mood for Love, but also, um, you know, Days of Being Wild and Fallen Angels and uh, Ashes of Time as well. Yeah, but I would also jump in to just uh, mention William Chang, um, since we're talking about editing and the influence on Wong Kar Wai, because William Chang is the... <laughs> the production designer slash editor for like almost all the Wong Kar Wai films. And so like, you know, you think about like the, the settings of those films and the rhythms of them. And he's, he's like, you know, crucial uh, collaborator in both departments. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So we were talking about final victory in 1987. It is in some ways a, um, not too outrageous uh, or genre-breaking uh, kind of action comedy film um, about this sort of brothers and honor. Um, there is one super masculine gangster, and then there's the sort of fuck-up uh, sort of little brother gangster. And I'm, in these films, I am assuming... Uh, I'm using context clues. I don't actually know enough about Hong Kong cinema or culture, Um but in both As Tears Go By, which was Wong Kar Wai's first directed film, and Final Victory, which is the film that he wrote before that, um, Big Brother and Little Brother are used as terms I don't mean, I don't think mean familial relations. I think it is a term within the sort of gangster community of like, I am the, I'm the one showing you the ropes. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. So it is about this sort of little brother who, as the big brother is in jail, he has to sort of balance and juggle his uh, two girlfriends. Um, and in that film, there's actually a lot of little tropes that pop up in as tears go by. There's the, there's the pagers. There's the sense of um, displacement I talked about where he has to sort of run to uh, Tokyo to pick up one of the girls. And there's this sense of uh, Hong Kong as being located within a larger world context. Um, it doesn't all take place there. There's some interesting jumps in time involving a bank robbery where you're not exactly sure what happened. Um, it's a, it's a cool movie. I, I yeah. enjoyed it. I like it too. And the, and also the, um, the setting, cause it's set in the, is it Mong Kok region of Hong Kong, which is like, I guess a, a shopping district that, um, I guess had, um, maybe a reputation for having like triad, you know, uh, run nightclubs and massage parlors and like, like, a, like an organized crime type element would be not uncommon in that area. And that's also where, um, as tears go by, uh, not only takes place, but I guess the, um, the Chinese title for as tears go by is Mong Kok, uh, Carmen, um, not as tears go by is the, is the export title, but it would have been like something that like w the Mong Kok in the title would have been cluing you in that like, this is like a, you know, maybe like a slightly seedy area. I see. Uh, well, yeah, and it's it's the same thing as, uh, yeah, it's um, I'm, well, like Chunking I Express feel like, too. I mean, you know, right. same the same the same kind of title. Um, and then also, I think a lot of his in when they come to America, the the title is sort of changed to a song title. Uh, right. Yeah. As tears go by, you know, the Rolling Stones connection. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I, I tears go by and because and, and the, you know, it would make sense with um, also because the the fact that the so much is taken from Mean Streets, which has great Rolling Stones music in it, that the yes, Rolling Stones connection would also make sense. 
So from Final Victory, he went on to direct his first film, As Tears Go By. And the central sort of dynamics within Final Victory is this sort of big brother, little brother, gangster relationship, and then how that conflicts with this sort of romantic, burgeoning romantic relationship. And it is the same deal in As Tears Go By. Um, in this case, the the first plot of the big brother, little brother thing is taken from Mean Streets, from the uh, sort of the relationship between Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro. And there's also a really great pool f- hall fight scene. Mm-hmm. And I've not seen Mean Streets in long enough that I can't recall other things if anything else has been lifted from it. Well, but certainly those two. Yeah, well, it's the tension with like, you know, it's the it's the it's the more responsible hood and the kind of more uh, out of control fuck up younger brother type uh, hood. And then there's also like not quite a love triangle because in neither film is the fuck up brother trying to, um, you know, romance the the uh, the woman that the main character is in love with. But I mean, it is that weird kind of trio in both in both films um it's a little bit more antagonistic in mean streets because the uh, de niro character i think is cousins with Teresa, the woman that Kaitel's character is dating and so there's a little bit of like a like a tension um at all times there this i mean it's hilarious because this is something i never made the connection but patrick tam mentioned in an interview that the the um the Maggie Chung character in As Tears Go By, like that whole plot comes from Stranger Than Paradise, the Jim Jarmusch comedy. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so like everything is like drawing from like yeah. American New York films. It's like specifically. She, she's not compulsively playing Screaming Jay Hawkins, but other than that, it is a very similar dynamic. Yeah, like, you uh, know, the the aunt calling up and saying, like, oh, no, you've got to, you know, your cousin's got to come stay with you. And then, like, you know, oh, man. But then, but the difference being, of course, this becomes like a romance where Str- right. Strange of Paradise, you know, uh, it, it never turns into that. But, um, um, yeah. So, so as, for his debut feature film, um, there is a lot of stuff, and especially behind the scenes production-wise, you do have uh, um, William Chang as the sort of art director, um and you have Wong Kar Wai sort of beginning to have his, and this is a method that would evolve over time, but the we've, we've sort of hinted at it. The way Wong Kar Wai makes movies is he kind of doesn't know what's going to happen, and he will write the day's shooting like the night before. Um, and so the actors kind of get handed their pages, and then they have to act it, and they're sort of as he likes to make films in chronological order so that as the shooting goes on, he can be inspired and take the plots in new directions and stuff like that. Now, in, in T- as tears go by uh, his first film, they had a very detailed plot outline um, before they went into production. They, I don't think he, it would, this is not uh, sort of the crazy kind of production that he would have later in his career. But um, he didn't have a full completed script when they started shooting it. And I don't think he ever had a full completed script until the last day of shooting. Um, Yeah, well, this is one that he co-wrote with Jeffrey Lau. And Jeffrey Lau was his, I think, was his like kind of co-partner in uh, that that production company in Gear Films. And so I think Jeffrey Lau was the more uh, commercially savvy of the two of them. And I think that he might have been helping to steer the ship a little bit with this one more so than other Wong Kar Wai films because it was his first feature. And so I think he had a little bit, 
I could be. I, I think he had a little bit more hands hands on, like you know, like trying to make a more commercial film, and then the success of this allowed him the freedom to do something a little bit more uh, risky with the days of being wild. But yeah, I think this is one where they were taking less uh, obvious risks. Yes, it, it, you. I, when I first saw this movie, I was sort of struggling to see where the long car Y was. It's very beautiful. Like he has always had a good eye. But it's not necessarily beautiful in the way that his later films would be beautiful. Well, um, well, that's that's. Uh, I don't know what we're gonna call this. Do we call it stop printing? Do we call it? Um, do you know that the, the, the? I yeah, I've heard step print. I've heard stop print. I've heard stretch print. So okay, uh, take your pick. But it is a method of slow motion, or not even always slow motion, but where frames are doubled up so that you're holding on individual still images for longer and the film kind of looks jittery. Um, sometimes this is a way of artificially creating slow motion when it was still on set, it was still shot at 24 frames per second. You just double up every frame and then all of a sudden a two-second shot becomes a four-second shot. Um, but then also sometimes this is a film, this is you done by where the film was shot at 12 frames per second and then you double up every frame. And now the image is playing out at a standard speed, but it's just all kind of smeared looking. And uh, because because every frame holds longer, all motion gets blurred. Uh, it's a very specific look. You'll know it the instant you've seen it. It's a thing that pops up in a few other people's films. Like the big American uh, sort of examples would be like fight scenes in uh, Ridley Scott's Gladiator. Um, mm. Or in uh, the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, use use this as well. Um, Tony Scott, I think, uses this from time to time. Um, and they might have all been taking it from Wong Kar Wai, because I think that was the thing when I saw it as tears go by, because it wasn't the first one I saw. But whenever that technique is broken out, I'm like, oh, this is this is where <laughs> this is where Wong Kar Wai's signature is kind of making itself felt. I mean, that and the fact that it has these. Yeah, like the the I don't even know if like the um, the American pop song thing is necessarily like unique to him, but the that look, because um, I think that like the way he shoots action, you know, using that technique and chunking express, and even in the little bursts of violence that happen in Days of Being Wild, or definitely in something like Fallen Angels. I mean, I think he's a really good action director, and the yes. fact that he makes like these kind of swordsman type, you know, martial arts things. I don't feel the same way about those that I do about these films that are kind of more romantic character stories that just have these bravura action sequences. <laughs> well, you look at, you look at the, there's a scene where, um, uh, so it, the, the film is about Andy Lau playing Wa, who's the lead character. Um, Maggie Chung is his second cousin. Uh, and Nor, and by the way, we're going to be mispronouncing all of these names. Like yes. these are everyone deserves to have their language respected and their name spoken correctly. But we're just I'm I'm some dumb hick from Texas, so I'm going to be like Jackie Chung. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so so I apologize ahead of time for mispronouncing every single name I speak. Um, and Jackie Chung plays sort of the little brother gangster Fly, and so Fly pulls some really dumbass uh, sort of hijinks at a pool hall where he sort of uh, squelches on a bet uh, with a hustler and they get into a fight scene at the pool hall and he gets his ass kicked. And then his big brother played by Andy Lau sort of goes to this, uh, is it, is it a Mahjong parlor in the scene or is it a, is it a cafe? 
Um, at any rate, yeah. there's this great fight scene that happens, and that this one is specifically, uh, the way it is broken up into individual beats and moments and close-ups, you would look at it and you'd be like, okay, there's a total alternate history where Wong Kar Wai is like a Ringo Lamb or a John Woo, and eventually he like goes over to America, and there's a John Claude Van Damme movie by Wong Kar Wai, which is like a really tantalizing thought. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we get to my Blueberry Night, so we'll talk about this idea. <laughs> but you you get the you get the image in all of these movies where there are in when this sorts of thing pops up. Uh, like Bill said, you get this image of like he if he cared about this, if this was the thing that interested him, he has the chops to do it well. Um, and there are plenty of people who literally make nothing but action movies and don't shoot action as well as Wong Kar Wai does when he puts his mind to it. So like it, it is genuinely impressive, but it is also funny because it's so clearly not the kind of thing he wants to do yeah well and it's also i mean i mean it is the style that i associate most with one car why i mean I, and 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 chunking express also because that was the first one i saw the first half of chunking express is shot by the same cinematographer who shot as tears go by which is andrew lau not to be confused with andy lau the the star of the film um but yeah i mean because i guess Christopher Doyle is the cinematographer most associated with Wong Kar Wai, and it's easy to overstate maybe his impact. Although I think it's really important, really important on the on the on the great films that come after this. But certain things that we associate with the the visual grammar of of, of Wong Kar Wai films, they, they do begin with this one, which is not a Christopher Doyle film. The especially as as Wong Kar Wai's career goes on, though he leans more and more on those kinds of like I feel like step print uh, is, is this technique. It's almost like an abstraction. Like it just it makes you kind of squint. It makes things sort of difficult for the viewer to see what's happening. Um, and in, as tears go by, it's used extremely judiciously. It's not used in every scene of violence. It's not used in every fight scene. It's used very specifically to imply a certain kind of adrenaline and a certain kind of chaos. And by the time you get to the Grandmaster, there are just shots where you have no idea why they would be in step print. It's just someone shuffling mahjong tiles or whatever. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it's just all blurred and crazy looking. Um, but like... Uh, it has not yet become a sort of aesthetic fetish of his. <laughs> it yeah, it no, was... It, it, it just it, it feels like it feels like a a fresh way to do the Sam Peckinpah John Woo slow motion. It, it's yes. like a, a, a like a, a a new a new way to express that same idea of like making the yeah more like the adrenaline rush of it. And um, so as tears go by, the one thing you can say about uh, how this kind of feels like a Wong Kar Wai movie is it is not very tightly plotted. It is kind of episodic where but this is also true of mean streets mean streets is not one super tight plot where every scene leads to the next there's a lot of little vignettes and stories and it sort of loops around this recurring thing where fly gets into trouble he's too lazy to do things the right way or he's too hot-headed uh to not get everyone mad at him and then wah has to come in and sort of save his ass and eventually wah is sort of looking around and he's realizing he's a bad big brother. None of the people he's been training are any good at this crime shit. Uh, and he is sort of in love with Maggie Chung. And he sort of has this thought of, am I actually going to continue being a gangster in this world? Or is there a different life for me? And that is sort of, uh, that all 
the tip of that is the sort of probably the most memorable scene in the entire movie um, where he is in a bar and then he hears the Cantonese pop version of Take My Breath Away by Berlin, which you heard at the beginning of this podcast. Um, and, you know, I, I, so here's the thing. Top Gun was a very recent film. It was a massive success, I'm sure, worldwide. I'm sure Wong Kar Wai saw Top Gun. And not only that, I'm sure most of the people in the audience saw Top Gun who saw As Tears Go By because it was just a huge movie. Um, but it is... So it's hard for me to think of it as like an homage or or anything. I, I don't know if it's an homage so much as I, I, for for all I know he just might really just like the song and felt like it fit the movie it, the same way that it fits the Top Gun. But it's the same sort of scene where it's the scene where Tom Cruise in Top Gun is sort of like I can't take it anymore. I have to be with you and he rides his motorcycle to see her and then he finds her and then the you know the environment is perfect and they have this sort of in Top Gun, it's a sex scene. In in as tears go by, they kind of just sort of embrace. Uh, they they take things slower, but it's like it's the same scene. It's not even the it uses the same song. Yeah, um, you know. It's so true. it is. It almost you you could almost take it as a joke where Tom Cruise has this like super sexy, expensive Kawasaki Ninja motorcycle, and and Wah takes the bus <laughs> <laughs> to get there. Um, yeah. it's a, he's he's maybe not quite like the the coolest guy in the world the way that uh tom cruise and top cut is no well it's i mean it's i think it they're trying to make a commercial film and like the, you know what more commercial thing can there be than to use this song that's already been proven to be successful for so, a very commercial film so, so it's the thing you're talking about with italy in the 70s where it's that's, just like that, if there's a good idea why not use it that's how it feels to me like it feels like just you know craven commercialism on some level but at the same time also reappropriating it for chinese audience that you know you know because it's you know can't canto pop version of it so um and and i don't know if the same thought process even applies to the cranberry song in chunking express which is what i thought of also as far as like you know this kind of female pop ballad kind of song um re you know reinterpreted for the chinese uh, language market um, either way, the when he hears the song play on the jukebox, we get all of the super beautiful close-up shots of the way the jukebox is working and the disc going down and the needle, you know, hitting the record. And it is super similar to a lot of stuff in his later uh, acclaimed art house films. So that's another element that you can look at and be like, oh yeah, that's this is a Wong Kar Wai movie. Um, but also the thing is. So in my head, I was like, is this a Wong Kar Wai movie because it has sort of these larger-than-life emotions? And I'm like, no. If you look at films by John Woo, if you look at uh, many other gangster movies from Hong Kong, like they, are, they, they often hit this sort of feverish emotional pitch. I don't necessarily think that that is unique to As Tears Go By. No, um, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it, at all. So it is, for me, a film that uh, it's not necessarily right off the gate. You're like, oh, boy. This is a new voice. This is someone who is doing a good job in a well-respected form. And then you just get to, once you have like a sort of encyclopedic knowledge of all of the other films that he makes, you can start to pick up all the tiny little things that either uh, is just, again, him reusing certain scene, uh, images and elements, or you could call it uh, purposefully rhyming them within his filmography, depending yeah. on how you want to look at it. Like, she puts, uh, she accidentally drops her pill that she's going to take into the water, and then he tastes it, and he's like, oh, it tastes bitter. And then later in uh, Chungking Express, Fei Wong puts the pills in the water. 
or like he's uh when he goes to visit her um he's uh helping Maggie Chung like take the uh chicken wings home with her the way that the uh cop is taking the gro- uh the produce home with Fei Wong mm-hmm. um there's just like a lot of little things that add up to like these will come later in a much more fascinating context. Yeah. I mean, I think of things like Badlands or I even think of um, a film we've talked about years ago on this show, but Ivan's childhood, I think of like things that are like a director trying to find poetry in the margins of a more commercial or, you know, appropriately sanctioned kind of project, you know, and then when that is well received, he then gets licensed to kind of go further out and away from the, um, the conventional formula. Um, but you know, trying to elevate and make the best possible version of this maybe more commercial assignment. Um, it's, I mean, I, I, I absolutely know what you're saying, but at the same time, you just named two films that are my favorite films from those respective directors. So it's a little, I don't, I don't necessarily walk with you there. Cause like to me, Badlands is the pinnacle. Right. Uh, Ivan's childhood is the thing. And those to me do feel more outside of their respective genres but than as tears go by go. But I, well, and I, I'm not trying to say that as tears go by is one of the great films of Wong Kar Wai, but I could also understand that if people don't respond to, what Wong Kar Wai was kind of born to do like, you know, the same way, like some people like the killing best for Stanley Kubrick, you know, or people yeah, like, sure. you know, people like targets best for Peter Bogdanovich or people like blue collar best for Paul Schrader, like that, that, that maybe less pretentious, more kind of hard, hard nugget, like, you know, uh, first feature. Sometimes that's what works best for people. And, you know, as tears go by might not be in the same tier as those, but it's like, it feels like in that conversation, as far as like the film that is the more conventional genre film with like hints of what the artist was gonna, you know, bloom into. Um, and, you know, if you were showing it to an audience in Hong Kong in like the 90s, my, that might have been the one that like made the most sense to people. Sure. Um, and I would, you know, if, if we're just talking blanket, like, would you recommend this uh, to a listener? Yeah, for sure. You should see it. It's a good movie. It yeah. tells the story well. The performances are good. The action is good. The parts where it's like sort of harrowing and violent, uh, where they're sort of getting beaten down by a rival gang in an alley. It's like, it's very scary. There's like a really good shot of sort of the rival gangster slowly backing away and his face gets immersed in shadow. There's all little touches here and there. It has this sort of really, uh, intriguing bleak ending, um, that, uh, sort of sticks in my head. Like I, there's all these little things here and there that it's like, this is a good movie made by someone who was born to make films. Um, it's just, it, when I was approaching this, this is the first time I ever saw this. So for me, this was me looking at this being like, okay, how does this fit into the wider Wong Kar Wai oeuvre? And I was partially anticipating that I would discover like, oh, all the stuff that would make Wong Kar Wai, Wong Kar Wai was there at the beginning. And that is not the case. No, no. It's the second film that you really find the Wong Kar Wai that became the international name. This is just, if he had never made another film, this would have been like, a uh, a sleeper like buried treasure among all the different kind of triad gangster type films that were being made in Hong Kong at that time. It's you know it's a good start, but yeah, everybody looking at it, you know, from the perspective of like, oh, it's the beginning of the Wong Kar Wai career. It's like, well, you can see you can see it, but it's not. It, there's not there's a reason this was not the international breakthrough. <laughs> right, right. Um, we might as well talk about a second feature, Days of Being Wild, from 1990. Um, and you know one thing I should just jump in real quick. Uh, sure. The producer of of this film, um, Days of Being Wild, and the producer of As Tears Go By, uh, is a guy named Alan Tang, 
And Alan Tang in 1974 was the co-star with Aldo Ray uh, and uh, of um, uh, Dynamite Brothers um, with um, uh, Al Adamson directing it. Okay. Actually, I'm sorry. Timothy Brown was the uh, as the other co-star, but yeah, but the, yeah, uh, I I know that um, what's his name, Elder Ray is uh, is in it as the cop, but the uh, yeah, but yeah, but that's the Al Adamson, uh, Wong Kar Wai connection is uh, that you know the was... co-star of Dynamite Brothers co-lead uh, went on to produce the first two Wong Kar Wai features. I was hoping it would happen later. Everybody just tuned out. They got what they came for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Days of Being Wild is the movie that. For all intents and purposes, it's it was him his sort of breakthrough on a larger world stage, and it is the movie you look at and go, "This is what he will be doing in some way for or another for the rest of his career." Um, it has the sort of episodic, multiple intersecting narrative structure um, of all these different characters, and the way that the film sort of teases all these different romantic pairings um, in between them. Um, it has the obsession with time. Um, one thing that Wong Kar Wai is, it pops up again and again in his films is there's this sort of sense of precariousness of timing, of all, all romantic relationships, all things that we achieve in this life, everything is a matter of right place, right time. And we constantly get characters who are sad and unlucky um, because they're in the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time. And uh, this movie is that completely. And partially the way this movie uh, really details that is that it is this really, there's this really supreme sense of stasis where almost no plot developments happen within the scenes themselves. Every scene almost like begins and ends with the characters in the same place. They will, there will be a jump in time. We talked about these sort of elliptical edits where an unknown period of time passes and you don't, you know, and it's like, oh, all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, he's been, okay, he went to, uh, oh, shoot, where does, where does Yuddy go? Uh, the Philippines? The Philippines. Yeah, so he's like, oh, he's actually been in the Philippines for a long time now, what, you know, in a single edit. You, you realize that. And like in those spaces, in those sort of empty negative spaces, um, that is where the changes happen and that is where the characters move. And in the scenes themselves, the characters will talk to each other and sort of detail where they are. But it is almost like I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a way cause it, it's like really captivating and beautiful and absorbing, but like in a way you could describe it as dramatically inert. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, um, it, well, it, 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 one, I'm trying to think how to even start this thought, but like, um, there's like beyond film influences on Wong Kar Wai, um, it's kind of a given that he's a big reader and very much influenced by novelists and by fiction. And one influence that comes up again and again in in writing on Wong Kar Wai is um, Manuel. Uh, I don't know if it's Puig. Uh, P-U-I-G, the um, the novelist who wrote, um, I guess, uh, if you know Kiss of the Spider-Woman, that was based on uh, one of his works. Oh, but, sure, sure. But um, he wrote a novel called Heartbreak Tango that seems to be um, a big influence on a few things, but especially on Days of Being Wild. And that has a 
kind of a, a smooth talking lady killer character, kind of the way that the Leslie Chung character in Days of Being Wild uh, is a character named uh, Juan Carlos. And, uh, you know, we kind of in that novel, we're getting all this kind of different accounts from women that have all fallen for him. But he um, this is not really a spoiler because he's dead at the beginning, but like, he has passed away from like, um, you know, like he, he, he died like, of, um, I think it was a consumption, like some kind of like ailment where he was kind of uh, ailing and then dead. But like, you know, his, his family's getting all these like letters and, you know, uh, from, from women that are all just, uh, kind of obsessed with him. And, uh, so I think you get that kind of, that kind of lady killer kind of character in things like 2046 and, uh, some of the other, uh, later films, but, um, even the kind of cold detached, uh, character like in Fallen Angels. I mean, you get hints of it in a few of the stories, but I think that's the influence big time on, um, Certainly on uh, the Leslie Chung character in this, even the um, the Buenos Aires setting of something like Happy Together, I think, is informed by um, an early attempt to write an adaptation of Buenos Aires Affair, this totally different kind of story. But again, another Manuel Puig novel. So I think that there's there's an influence coming from Argentinian literature um, that I, I wouldn't be able to speak, you know, in great detail on like you know beyond beyond just the fact that like that that novel seems to inform a, a few of his choices as a writer um but yeah this is this is where you get a real break from anything kind of conventionally connecting him to like the john woo ringo lamb kind of territory outside of a few explosions of of uh you know brilliantly directed violence i mean it is a kind of and that and that scene specifically it seems to almost exist solely to stand in contrast to the rest of the film where yeah. even before the violence happens, you have this absolutely stunning, uh, steady cam shot that flies from the streets into the hotel, up the stairs through this massive ballroom ca- cafe kind of area. Um, and that's before any of the action is happening. It's, it's this very unique section of the movie. Yeah. Well, this was like a big budget film. I think it was like something like, I forget like the exact figure if it was ten or twenty million. It was it was something kind of surprisingly big budget for such a film that, as you said, is like very kind of static in terms of the dramatic momentum. It's just kind of creating that nineteen sixties environment. Really, right. I mean, they that, have that's to... always going to just make movies way more expensive when you try to make them period pieces. And this, and then like you look at this movie, there are no shots of crowds where you see old cars. There are no shots of you know, like a lot of extras wearing period dress or whatever. Uh, when you see the streets, you see them deserted at night um, and then everything else is interiors. But again, uh, this is another film with William Chang production design and it's absolutely beautiful um, looking. Every, you know, every environment it takes place in is not necessarily a found environment. Um, yeah. And this also brings in Christopher Doyle um, as the director of photography. And it's, you know, I mean, as tears go by, is perfectly handsome looking. But this is, you know, where they start becoming gradually like eye candy cinema as well as everything else. Well, what's funny is for me, um, and this is I think this is more uh, just personal aesthetics than anything else. Like, I don't necessarily view this movie as being eye candy because it has a very specific color scheme. Um, It's very green and it's it's more it's there's less dynamic range in the color it's a little more monochromatic it's not as much as say Astros of time redux or uh some other later films but um it is a film that it 
its mood comes from these colors. Its mood comes from how oppressive and everything is. But when I think about uh, In the Mood for Love, like that's a movie where it, for me it's just sumptuous, gorgeous looking things. For Chunking Express, it's the same thing. Like uh, uh, Days of Being Wild is almost different where it's like beautiful almost seems like the wrong word. It's just extremely striking. Yeah. Well, also I think, you know, that the, um, I always think of the, is it always in my heart that like Hawaiian music that the, yeah. you know, he opens it with and it feels like it, that for some reason it like it, it conveys heat. Yes. <laughs> like it feels like a very like, um, I'm trying to think what the, the adjective is, but like, um, like humid kind of environment, right. like a hothouse well, kind of environment. I mean, yeah, part of that is just the stasis. Part of that is just the fact that it is not dynamic and everyone sort of just seems rooted down where they are. And they have, they've almost all accepted their fates before the camera has started rolling. Like every scene you see, the character knows what is happening to them uh, sort of before uh, we even know who they are. Um, and I, even some of the step printing here to use to emphasize the passage of time also because that creates sort of a smeared uh, blurred look that creates that sort of oppressive humidity. It's like fogginess. Um, yeah, it's it's a movie that I do think like, oh, this must just all take place during the summer. But I don't know if it necessarily says the dates uh, takes place in. But that heat you you talk about is definitely something I got as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, this was, I mean, I think the first time I saw this one was like a, I forget the name of the company, but it was like not one of the bigger companies. It was not a bootleg, but it was um, like a DVD that wasn't like the greatest transfer, but it was still just exciting to see it. And I remember being so surprised by it because uh, like a lot of people I had seen the Rolling Thunder videotape version of Chunking Express where Quentin Tarantino excitedly talks about the film at the end. And he describes Days of Being Wild as like American graffiti. (laughs) (laughs) And I I still, I mean, I guess because it's a period film and (laughs) it's a a period period film film. with a sort of cast of intersecting characters. Yeah, I guess. And they're all, trying to get with each other i guess is like that's where it ends <laughs> i mean it's american graffiti early 60s i guess they're both early 60s but that's it, yeah i think american graffiti is late 50s but it might be early 60s you might be right yeah yeah either way it's like i don't know it's like not the first thing that comes to mind when no. i'm trying to describe days of being wild to somebody no <laughs> and, well, and even the um the other thing was that that story of an afe is the chinese title which i guess was the also the chinese title for rebel without a cause and afe films were like a like I guess a strain of like Chinese juvenile delinquent movies, um, and it's not really doing that either. I don't know why. Why <laughs> went with that title? Because I don't think of um, Yuddy as a uh, a juvenile delinquent. I mean, I guess he you know beat somebody up for taking his mother's jewelry, but he's not like you know any kind of conventional tough <laughs> tough guy. He's more of well, a he he's someone who acts sort of. I, I yeah, he's not he's not a he's not a um what would you call it uh. I mean, <laughs> who's in the the wild one? Uh, oh, Marlon Brando. Yeah, he's not a Marlon Brando in the wild one type, but he is like uh, someone who is sort of lives for the day and doesn't really think about other people and doesn't really plan for his future, and he's sort of uh, has a hopeless uh, fatalism about him, along with this sort of story of the bird that can never land. Like he's sort of already written, like. I can't stay with you because if I stay with you, I'll die, you know, and yeah. you know, I'll, I'll know who I love the best on the day I die. He sort of has this, uh, fleeting obsession with death that you associate with those movies. But also you could think of that as like Wong Kar Wai titles it that because 
he is uh, specifically challenging tropes of that, where the same way that like Ashes of Time is like, it's quote unquote a wuja movie, but he is subverting so much about what makes you think a wuja movie is um, that it is sort of his internalization of this is, I'm taking this genre and I'm sort of re- reacting to it emotionally in a way that you're not used to. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that it's it was it's definitely like one of my favorites of his of his films. I mean, it's hard for me to to really rank them. I mean, from a certain point, but this is where you know the golden age of Wong Kar Wai cinema really starts for me and probably for I guess a lot of people. But um, yeah, no, I, it's and it's one that I I guess maybe when In the Mood for Love became his most popular movie. Um, this this is the only one that. Uh, kind of points towards that because after this film he really goes in a couple of different directions before returning to that 1960s slightly you know seductive dreamy kind of uh feel because i mean he gets more kinetic after this yeah this is a film the first time i saw it i had this is at, at the point i had seen this i had already seen most of the other what i consider great Wong Kar Wai movies and i and i was a couple times each, in fact. And so I I sort of knew what I thought of him and I knew what I thought of like my favorites of his. And I knew this is considered a favorite by a lot of people. And I just, I could not get into it. And I was like, there's, there's interesting things and it's really gorgeous. And of course it's just absolutely, this is something that uh, is a recurring theme in Wong Kar Wai movies is the actors are completely gorgeous. And there's yeah. just, even when his movies aren't sexually explicit, there is just this, absolutely uh, pervasive just like erotic longing to everything where all of the characters are so all the actors are so beautiful and the first shot of cutting from uh uh yuddy and suli zen uh maggie chung's character from like at her little stall at the soccer stadium uh to like when they're in bed and they're sort of upside down uh kissing kind of desperately it's like it's just so sexy and it's like it it does so much heavy lifting for the rest of the movie. She's going to be sort of pining for him and you never see him really sweet talker. You never see what kind of relationship they have. You just see his initial sort of pickup line. And then you see her already starting to lose him. Um, and like it, the just that one moment of them kissing is so sexy that you're like, okay, I get it, Maggie. <laughs> I, I would, I would find after this guy too. Um, but there's a lot about it that I just found inaccessible. And it wasn't, in fact, until I saw it, like, I think for the fourth time, I, I watched this twice in preparation for this podcast. And by the fourth time I watched it, it was then I had fully, uh, sort of subconsciously digested all of the arcs and all the plots. And I was able to, in my mind, piece together the gaps, like, uh, emotionally, like piece together all those elliptical edits. And there's a lot that sort of unspoken that it may, maybe there are people who see it for the first time. It's very obvious, but like, for example, Rebecca Pan, um, playing Leslie Chung's adopted mother. Mm -hmm. Um, her story is so sad. Um, and you don't, the movie's not from her perspective. Her scenes are sort of almost solely, uh, defined by her relationship with Yuddy. But when you like put all the pieces together of like, who she used to be. She was this like beautiful call girl who made a fortune because 
she was just so in demand because she was just so classy and beautiful. And then eventually, like, the scales just tipped another way, and now she's spending that money to keep people around. And she has this sort of transactional, unhealthy relationship with Yuddy because that's, like, the only relationship she ever has. And we even see after he gets uh, – is he shot or – he's shot, not stabbed. Yeah. After he gets shot, like, we see a flashback, and we see that the birth of that relationship, of her adopting him, was like – Oh, they're gonna. I'm gonna get child welfare for for taking care of him. That's gonna be good for me for a while. And like that was that was where things started out. And then clearly they got way more complicated and even incestuous, perhaps. Yeah, um, I think it's hinted at for sure. Um, this sort of relationship they have, and this they both sort of torment each other. Like, there's so much depth to that character that is really dependent upon you really paying attention and putting the pieces together of her story. And that's sort of true for a lot of these characters where the details are only glancingly hinted at, um, you know, like the relationship between, uh, what's his name? Oh, Jackie Chung, uh, Zeb, Yuddy's friend, mm-hmm. and Yuddy is like this, it's so pathetic. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, and he, he's a character that I found much more interesting the more I watched the film. And so this this was definitely a grower for me in the way that like in the mood for love the very first time I saw it I go well I just saw the greatest movie ever made like <laughs> is not yeah yeah it was for me I think I responded to Days of Being Wild right away and in the mood for love took a second viewing I mean not that I didn't like it but I I think well we'll get to that one but yeah, like yeah, for um, sure. but yeah no I think um, I I was reminded of. Uh, films like that are kind of dissimilar in many ways but like things like five easy pieces as far as like this you know young man who's acting with seemingly like total cold-blooded callousness towards the women that he seduces then it's you know we come to understand that his uh home home life his family situation is kind of the the engine behind that but it's like it beyond that it's just like someone that's drifting around, you know, and angry and like taking it out on the, on the people that they can charm. Um, you know, I, but, you know, I, I think it's, um, the, the, the call girl backstory of the, of the mother character too, also kind of, um, seems to resonate with things that come much later. Like, you know, I'm thinking of 2046 and also the hand. Yeah. I mean, um, throughout the world, filmmakers, the prostitutes are extremely it's an extre- uh, extremely useful profession oh, to yeah. explore ideas of love of capitalism of gender of like of, of sexuality of everything so like yeah. <laughs> it, it makes it no surprise given Wong Kar Wai's interest that he too uh returns to these uh kinds of relationships yeah if it's not, if it's the fr- world's oldest profession it's like cinema's like maybe third oldest profession you know <laughs> or yeah. third oldest metaphor i'm not sure <laughs> for sure a couple things we should talk about this is unlike as tears go by this is sort of wong kar wai really instinctually making a film i feel like this it's a lot fuzzier as to what he thought he was what what he had planned when he started the project versus what happened in when it finally left the editing bay like um and this this is a movie where it does have that looser feel it has that sort of episodic feel it is sort of just it really does seem to just be following its characters like and then what happened for her and then what happened for him um <laughs> yeah i do want to say i absolutely adore uh Karina Lau as uh Lung Feng Ying mm-hmm. um 
and uh, there's just a single moment where um, Zeb asks her what she does for a living, and then she just sort of starts dancing in the stairwell, and there's a single shot where she, like, looks behind her shoulder and winks at him, and it is, like, maybe the most, uh, like, exciting, wonderful moment in Wong Kar Wai's entire cinema, uh, <laughs> entire filmography. Like, I just, I lose my mind every time she does that wink, and there's just, like, I think probably an advantage of working like Wong Kar Wai and not setting out to know exactly what you're going to get uh, before you even start casting is that you can find those just like little accidental flashes of brilliance and, and respond uh, to that. And that to me is like one of just like one of the key images of the movie is this like little performance she's doing in a stairwell for the friend of the guy that she wished liked her more like, um, a lot of his movies, especially the hand, uh, later on and, uh, happy together, uh, are also like, these are characters who feel powerless. And then when they get an opportunity to, uh, sort of hold power over someone, they will, because they just uh, elsewhere in their life, they feel useless. And, uh, um, that is a moment to me where it's like, we just see this really, we see, uh, Karina Lau for most of the movie being really sort of sad and pathetic, um, and then in that one little stairwell moment, she's like totally puts on the performance and puts on her face and does her little, per, you know, it's, it's, it's such a great way of adding depth to a character that doesn't necessarily get the long monologue that like Maggie Chung's character gets. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I love it. I think, I think it's also interesting how, um, I guess maybe we could say that, um, since you talk about the cast, how I think even at this early stage, Wong Kar Wai was always working with like the biggest stars available, um, you know, and would sometimes yeah. tie them up for like months <laughs> or years at a time with his kind of like, you know, searching kind of process. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, someone like Leslie Chung or Maggie Chung, you know, Jackie Chung, even, you know, these were like big stars, you know, and like pop stars sometimes. I mean, this is one thing I was going to ask you. Am I misremembering or, or are there no scenes of someone actually singing in any of these, giving all the singers that he has in these various casts? Um, I think there's a karaoke scene in, no, no, in, there's a karaoke scene in, in Final Victory. Which is not um, directed by which Wong is not, Yeah, which is not directed <laughs> by Wong Kar Wai. Let me, um, uh, that's a, you know, that's a. Because Good I question. think about like the role of music and I think about all the singers. I mean, yeah. not just Leslie Chung in you know, a Fei Wong and Chungking Express. And of course you have people like Cat Power and Nora Jones and My Blueberry Nights. And you have, I think, you know, Tony Lung does a little singing. Like, I mean, but there's not, um, con- considering how musical these films are, there's no, I mean, cause I thinking about like, you know, um, the killer, um, when we're talking about as tears go by and I think about like that, like stereotype of like the, you know, the, the torch singer or the, uh, you know, the, the, the singer in the nightclub. Um, and you could have that kind of scene so easily in half of these movies and yet you don't ever have musical scenes. Um, or you have musical montage, but you don't have performance. Right. That's, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't use music in, uh, that way. That's yeah, that is, that is interesting. I, yeah, I had not thought about that. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, this is, as you mentioned, shot by Christopher Doyle. Christopher Doyle is an Australian man who had been, uh, he bound, uh, he has his own whole, own whole biography that <laughs> we're not necessarily going to go into, but he's, no. he's a fascinating sort of strange character in film history and 
absolute alcoholic. I don't know if he still is, but certainly in a lot of these special features <laughs> that revisit these movies down the line, he is drunk off of his ass. So um, I don't I don't know his current status, but Christopher Doyle, just sort of a wild man, a, uh, a white man, Australian, uh, does speak Cantonese and had been working in the Hong Kong film industry before he started working with Wong Kar Wai. But he almost feels like he, obviously their fates are tied together. A lot of people think of Wong Kar Wai's films as this is the period where he was working with Christopher Doyle. And then this is the period after he was working with Christopher Doyle. And um, the question arises of, you know, how much of what we love about these movies is Wong Kar Wai and how much is Christopher Doyle. Um, Christopher Doyle, a man who likes, I believe likes to sort of work instinctually the way Wong Kar Wai does at the very least Wong Kar Wai gets the best out of him by sort of, instead of telling him exactly what he wants, challenging Christopher Doyle to impress him is my understanding of how their sort of relationship works. Yeah. That's certainly how Doyle positions it in interviews. You know, um, like, is that all you can do, Chris, I think is the, you know, how he phrases it, you know, when talking about this kind of collaboration. And I don't know if it's because, um, like, I, I, I know that, um, who was it did the commentary on uh, Chungking Express? Um, it's on the tip of my tongue. The, uh, the historian. Um, I can't, I don't know the name, unfortunately. It'll come to me in a second. But like what he had said on that was um, that he felt like, the collaborative nature of it, uh, is one car why you know it didn't really need Doyle's creative input the same way. By the time they got to things like in the mood for love, and the fact that like you can have multiple cinematographers on films like that in 2046, Doyle's one of a team, and his his input is not as overt as it would be on something like Fallen Angels, where he almost feels like a character. <laughs> um, you know, or even happy together. You know, the the films that feel like the most doyleish have a very different energy than what comes after them. Um, you don't really feel it as much in Days of Being Wild. I mean, Days of Being Wild doesn't feel like it calls attention to its cinematography, no. I mean, other than like that one shot you mentioned, where that he's running up the stairs to the sequence where we're we're going to have some action kind of brawl. Um, though, if you that- were if you were on um, uh, if you were on set though. To you, you would probably feel that the entire movie was about nothing but the cinematography because you had to do 100 takes because of the specific filters Christopher Doyle was using. It was apparently an absolute nightmare for anything to be in focus or stay <laughs> like stay lit properly. And so they would have to do scenes again and again. And then for purely technical reasons, they, uh, they wouldn't get what they wanted until you know their 40th take or whatever. So... I'm sure I'm sure the grueling nature of working on the film made you think it was nothing but cinematography, but you're right in that the camera movement itself is not is not emphasized. Yeah. And and by the way, Tony Raines is the name of the guy I was trying to think of. I just okay. you know, because it would drive me crazy. Yep. Yeah, I mean I think you, you mentioned earlier, like the movies Christopher Doyle made with Gus Van Zandt, like uh, Paranoid Park is a beautiful movie. Christopher Doyle's very talented. Paranoid Park is not a Wong Kar Wai movie. Um, yeah. It is not Wong Kar Wai beautiful. Uh, I don't. What was the film you made with Jim Jarmusch? I think it was um, Limits of Control. Okay, that's which, right. Yes, he did. Yeah, and um, I mean, I just rewatched Last Life in the Universe, which is a really interesting uh, kind of dark comedy. Um, and, but and it's great looking, but again, it doesn't look like 
I mean, he, he doesn't he doesn't share the Wong Kar Wai sauce with the other directors. I mean, they they don't feel like Wong Kar Wai films. The well, I, I, really, but but I mean, but the one he directed himself does feel like a Wong Kar Wai ish kind of thing. It's it's very it's it's a very interesting. We will talk briefly about Away with Words because it is very uh, illustrative of what Christopher Doyle's limits as an artist were and what <laughs> and. And what Wong Kar Wai might have brought to things by seeing yeah. what his absence was. But, like, I think when you were talking about a movie like this, uh, when you're talking about a process like Wong Kar Wai's, collaboration becomes extremely important. Um, I, you know, uh, not just not just William Chang as the editor and as the production designer, um, not just Christopher Doyle as the cinematographer, but, you know, Leslie Chung and Maggie Chung and... Uh, and Tony Andy Lung Lauer, later on, yeah. Tony Lung, especially like as actors and what they bring to it. There are so many things that there are so many moments in Wong Kar Wai's movies that when I think back on them, I go, "Why did that work? That seems so stupid." If I tried to describe to someone this moment in Chungking Express that makes me cry, I would sound like the biggest doofus in the world. I would sound like the person who says that Little Miss Sunshine is one of the greatest movies ever. Like it sounds like it shouldn't work at all. It's too corny and cloying or whatever but there's a specific way that tony lung or a specific thing fei wong does with her face that is like okay this is the thing that makes it work and i think the best uh the best wong kar wai films are a very specific alchemy of all of these elements coming together and i when we talk about his later films i think that alchemy gets way more balanced in favor of wkw and now it's for me it doesn't work um, yeah, well, I think that there's an increasing spontaneity that seems to creep in, to, like with the Doyle years. Yeah, um, yeah, and that might be my imagination, but it feels like when you get past Happy Together, that spontaneity might look different. I mean, it, I, I, I'm sure when you spend two years making a film, you're going to have some spontaneous moments in there, but you're also going to. Um, I mean, you're going to have um, there's a there's a much more controlled mise en scène, you know, go like from in the mood for love on. And I think that one thing I loved about something like Chunking Express or Fallen Angels or Happy Together, what I responded to when I was 19 or 20 years old, is the same thing that people in the 1960s responded to with Godard and Truffaut, and you know things like this, you know, like as far as like that. Um, Anything could happen. Like, there's no rules. Like, maybe there's a story and there's a genre, but you know that if the director has some other idea that f- doesn't fit in the formula, they're going to pursue that if that's what they think the film needs. And those Wong Kar Wai films from that 90s period, you know, seem to have that kind of same energy where they don't seem like that straight-jacketed. Um, whereas the straight-jacket becomes part of the feeling of In the Mood for Love. Like, and it works perfectly, you know, because the, that's that's... That's the story. It's about repression. Right. Um, but, you know, Days of Being Wild has a little bit of that, you know, spontaneity to come, but it doesn't feel like quite as uh, joyfully haphazard as something like Chunking Express, where it does feel like they're finding scenes in an alley. <laughs> um, this just feels more considered um, and more you know, like cinematic, but lackadaisical, um, you know, in a way that, you know, you, you mentioned that, that there's so few people uh, in there's, like, there's no extras. And one thing I think of when I think of some of the films that deal with like bustling cities that he, he does later in the nineties, like you don't have that at all here. It's like, yeah, it's, it's like there's like been a bomb threat or something. Yeah. Like, there's nobody anywhere. 
Yeah, because it's because it's because it is purely about seeding you inside of their emotional state. It is not like you know Wong Kar Wai. It's funny because in interviews, he's one of these figures, and I think that this happens. We were talking a little bit about Wong Kar Wai building a brand and being able to like you know make a Dior commercial and get paid handsomely for it because he's sort of lending his uh, artistic credibility to a luxury brand or whatever. And we're talking. Uh, I can't. I can't remember at this point if this was on mic or off. We were. I, we were talking about our general feelings were good for you. Get your money. You know, as long as then you can go on and make your movies that don't feel compromised and sell out or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the thing about filmmakers like that is that their brand then becomes the reason they're able to make uncompromised movies. It's the reason that Quentin Tarantino can just do whatever the fuck he wants and no one else in Hollywood can. Um, it's like Quentin, Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan are like the two who have final cut and everyone else can fuck off. And it's because they have sort of built this brand and this personality. And when you become a filmmaker who is also a brand or a personality, I think about this with Spike Lee. I, I think about this all the time in terms of Spike Lee and Tarantino because they're two filmmakers who are always at each other's throats and also are so similar in that <laughs> I don't necessarily trust that they believe anything they say in any given interview. Mm-hmm. They, they seem like people who know how to court controversy and they know how to keep their names in people's mouths and they and it does wonders for their career, so they're going to keep doing it, and that is how they've operated their whole careers. Uh, you know, like Quentin Tarantino was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to host SNL. Like, this is... This is how I'm going to be able to, you know, make a, a giant kung fu epic, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> right. and like Wong Kar Wai. He will talk about the things that motivates him, and he will talk about the movies he makes. Um, and you listen to the interviews, and you're like, that your movie doesn't feel like that's where it's coming from. And often he, and obviously, you know, th- these things are very personal, and they are. And they're very instinctual the way he writes and directs. They're not necessarily always super considered. So they they might be getting at these things from oblique angles. But he often talks about like he wants to he wants to make films about the '60s. He wants to make films about the era. And when you watch them, they feel like films about characters. They don't feel like films about the era. Yeah, but you also you're, we're talking about a guy that is never seen without a pair of sunglasses on. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. We're talking about a guy that like specialized in a cinema of cool yeah in a way that he make it makes sense to compare him to someone like quentin tarantino because that was the same thing that tarantino was up to and it's always weird when he doesn't fall into that like something like jackie brown you know but even that is kind of like toying with like black exploitation imagery and it's like pam greer so it's, it's still kind of cool um but one car why i mean when he broke through was like kind of synonymous with a certain kind of like 90s energy like you know connect like the same period of like alternative rock and like you know things like trip hop and things like i mean there's there's things that feel like informed by like what was going on with like college kids you know in terms of their taste like yeah. the, in that way he's also kind of godardian you know like and that but that can only carry you for so long you're never going to be hip for you know decades and decades it's just fashions change and i think that that's interesting that he becomes a different kind of filmmaker really you know by the time you get to in the mood for love i mean but you still can have that flash you know reemerge in like something like 2046 and i think that that the commercial side of him and the music videos and like the advertising side i mean they push that flash but it, it almost makes it more 
cliche. It's like a risky thing for a filmmaker to do to like, you know, it'd be the same as of like Martin Scorsese were like putting all of his camera moves, you know, in car commercials. You know, it, it's you, you kind of water down what makes you an interesting visual storyteller if you use it in service of just um, like purely mercenary commercial uh, you know, product. So I'm curious, do you sort of feel the way I do that you don't necessarily believe that Wong Kar Wai believes the things he says in interviews? Or do you think that it's just he is operating from a, a less literal frame of reference than someone viewing his movie is? I can't tell, but I would say that Wong Kar Wai is one of those directors where I can enjoy the interviews, but I, he's like Robert Altman. I get almost nothing out of those interviews. <laughs> <laughs> like some directors are just not there to talk about the work and that's not really, it shouldn't even be their job. No, well, no, it, it shouldn't. It definitely shouldn't. But like, you know, we're fanboys. We want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, there's a lot of directors I like where it's like what they say about it. I, as I get older, I, I, I tune in less and less, <laughs> you know, because it's just, it's either like building the mythology around themselves or trying to make things sound more intellectual than maybe they are or they're not. And it's, you know, I and mean, sometimes it's interesting, but you know, Wong Kar Wai, it's like, it's so clear that he has like a certain set of themes he's going back and, you know, back to, and like maybe they're rooted in childhood and maybe they're, you know, the alienation of, you know, you know being a child with a different language, <laughs> you know, like um, you can, you can psychoanalyze the films. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't I don't know what he needs to really say about a film like Fallen Angels, <laughs> you know, or a film like uh, I mean, In the Mood for Love is clearly like rooted in some kind of nostalgia, but beyond that, it's like, you know, we take the characters and we apply our own lives to those situations. It's like what he's trying to convey is almost secondary. I think for me, it's almost like Mike Lee, where it's like I just I almost want like a Soderbergh style like day by day shooting diary because I'm just like their their methods are so unusual that I just want to know every nitty gritty detail about the process. Um, yeah. And the less I know about it, the more maddening it is to think about. Where I'm like, what do you what do you mean you you show up and you don't have it? Like, what do you mean you shot for 16 months? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, yeah. literally. Like, what does it mean to shoot for 16 months? Is that every day? Were there days where you showed up on set and then were like, never mind, and sent everyone home? Did you, how much film did you shoot? Like, there's well, all these I, things I want to know and I just can't. I think with something like In the Mood for Love or 2046, I think, like, I think the money might have run out at times. I think that, like, there's like an Asian financial crisis factor in there. It's not just he's like trying to get the same shot for like five months. <laughs> it's not like he's, um, that indecisive i mean well you know it's funny there's one point of comparison i don't know if you've ever gone down the rabbit hole yet with um the korean director hong sang su but he's another person that like you know you know very hot with critics not really too much of a commercial crossover director works with huge stars in his own country but not maybe household names in the united states um but he cranks out like two or three films a year and again it's like i think he's writing the script the night before <laughs> each time <laughs> and then like you know giving them new pages and they work out the scene so it's again like that feeling of, like working without a script or working without a completed script because i think that they have some idea with Wang kar wai films and probably with hong sang su films also like they know kind of what they're doing it's not like they're just improvising a film <laughs> because that's that's wasteful and crazy. Um, right. But, you know, there, there's there's some idea, but I think that they are uh, open to trying things. And that's one thing, like, I mean, um, Wong Kar Wai is also the producer for a lot of these films, not for these early films we've talked about, but, like, um, I think from Ashes of Time 
onward. I don't know if Chungking Express falls into that, but like a lot of them are produced by Wong Kar Wai. I think he gives himself the latitude to take that long. Um, and the, because he's an international name, he can get financing from all over and not just be um, you know, beholden to the sources of other Hong Kong directors. And but, I think he also basically owns a talent agency at this point where most of his major stars are signed to. So, Like Tony Lung definitely is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that makes sense, too. Um, I, I think we should, unless you have something more to say about Days of Being Wild, we should probably move on. We're, we're in the two-hour mark. We should probably get yeah. to film number three. <laughs> um, Ashes of Time was the film that Days of Being Wild was going to have a sequel, but no one wanted to put it out because it was not a financial hit, even though it was the movie that kind of broke them through worldwide. Uh, it was not a very big movie in Hong Kong. Um, so instead, he ostensibly got started on a more uh, uh, accessible commercial product in Ashes of Time, a wuja film uh, adapted from a an old... Uh, Wuja, I believe, novel. It might be a serial called Eagle Shooting Heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was on sort of a, a nightmare shoot as well. Everyone was sort of stranded in the desert for an extremely long time as they kind of worked out what the movie was. Um, and during one of the hiatuses, I assume this hiatus happened, like you said, when there was a uh, sort of a financial break um, and they needed to sort of scramble for more money to finish the film. Uh, Wong Kar Wai made Chungking Express extremely quickly. Um, and that yeah, was... Atypically quickly, because I think that's the only film like this. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's other films in his filmography that have the feeling of Chungking Express, but none of them were made that way. Yeah. Um, uh, Chungking Express, largely a uh, bifurcated narrative of... A uh, drug smuggler played by Bridget Lynn, um, who had a bunch of mules who ran off on her with all of her drugs, um, trying to get those back. And a sort of lovelorn cop played by Tony Leung. Uh, no, no, played by Takashi uh, Kinoshiro, who is um, sort of pining after this woman who broke up with him and uh, obsessing over expiration dates of pineapples and thinking of canned pineapples and thinking about the expiration date of the relationship or whatever. And, you know, there's a moment where they sort of come together uh, and it's a sort of, again, it's this sort of missed romance. And then there's the second story, which is Tony Leung um, and Fei Wong. And Tony Leung, also a lovelorn cop, um, uh, who visits this uh, fast food stall, uh, Chungking Express, uh, Midnight Express. Mid- that's right. That's right. The food stall is called Midnight Express, um, uh, where Fei Wong uh, works, and she is this absolutely adorable, bubbly uh, woman in a pixie haircut who listens to the mamas and papas incessantly, uh, and who is absolutely madly in love with Tony Leung, but he is too sad to know what it, that she's there, um, and she sort of stalks him and inserts himself herself into his life uh taking care of him and they uh sort of have their thing and then for once i think maybe in wong kar wai's entire career that has a happy ending um <laughs> it's 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 not it's not necessarily as like unequivocally uh everything is everything is right again uh sort of ending there there's there's a certain complexity and uh a little bit of cynicism to it, but mm-hmm. like it is definitely the most optimistic ending of his filmography. 
um, I would say. Um, yes, I think there's some optimism to happy together, but sure. it's but it's it's a little it's, yeah, it's it's I think Chunking Express kind of stands apart in that respect, and I mean it's tr- it's tricky when we're talking about these things chronologically. Chunking Express technically does come out next, and so I thought that's why because it you know it is his third film to be released, but it also feels like such a response to this much bigger project that um you know followed it like like shortly thereafter um you know uh, ashes of time but um yeah I, I mean it's you know it's 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 whimsical in a way that the other films up to, and to this point are not as far as like the the humor of it um which is something you also see in fallen angels and maybe to a lesser extent in happy together but kind of disappears again <laughs> by the time you get to the the more somber 60s set things um i mean that was something that took me back right away like you know like it starts off like kind of almost as tears go by with like the the step printing and the uh, you know the cop the cop you know drug dealer kind of thing but then it's like before you know it it's like you know it talks about the pineapple expiration dates and you know uh you know all this kind of like kind of almost silly sounding romantic talk from this love lauren cop that's played for laughs and it was it, i remember just being so surprised like oh this is actually a comedy yeah um, i so i'm i'm curious when I first saw this movie, I was probably 21 or 22 or something. Yeah. Um, and I would say, I would describe my sensibility as a lot more twee and a lot more open to things that are very precious and cute. Um, yeah. And I, and I loved it. I just like had a, just an absolutely amazing time with it. And uh, I sort of just liked every part of it. I really don't like this first story very much. There's individual parts I like. I love Bridget Lynn's sort of uh, drug assembly line and just how insane it is. And just like every single shot just reveals more places where heroin is is hidden. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And like that whole sequence is so funny to me, especially because in a lot of, I don't know where they're going to be smuggling the drugs to, but there are plenty of uh, countries in that territory where drug smuggling is punishable by death. And it's even referenced in Final Victory when they're smuggling Rolexes into Japan. It's like, oh, we're going to get hung if we get discovered smuggling these Rolexes. Like, So they don't really fuck around with drugs uh, in those cultures. And so the the idea that you're just seeing so much of it just everywhere, and then in this sort of wacky context where all of these Indian men are sort of down to their underwear and playing around with a video camera and everything, and there's just just a mountain of heroin... Uh, it is extremely funny. I do not like Cop 223's storyline at all. I think it is so, it's just, it it just really hits me the wrong way. Um, and I, I don't find it interesting nor endearing. It's just, it's just like, boy, it's a good thing this movie looks good because I really don't care about the story <laughs> at this point in the movie. Yeah, I, I think I, I like the, um, the second cop more as a character than the first cop but i think i like the environment of the first story um more than the second if i have to pick <laughs> um i think the first one the first half is the overcrowded nightlife and you know it's 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 sweaty and overpopulated and like you know driven by like bollywood music and and reggae and then the second half it's we got a lot more breathing room, got a lot more space. We got a lot of mamas and papas. <laughs> um, and I like that too, but I think, 
depending on my mood, I can go I can go for one or the other. But I I definitely like the the first the first story for it for its own uh, weird mysteriousness too. Because they don't they don't ever really explain too much about that Bridget Lynn character. Like she's she's ultimately like not going to be persuaded by. The Takeshi uh, Kaneshiro <laughs> Love Lauren cop. I mean, I, which I like. I like that his absurd, you know, business with the pineapples doesn't really <laughs> work as like a seduction technique. <laughs> yeah. But um, now I. Or I, like the four different languages he tries to do a pickup line in. <laughs> well, one thing that I read, and I'm going to probably. I'm paraphrasing it. Um, um, and I forget if Wonkar Y said this himself or if this was somebody's interpretation. I thought it was Wonkar Y himself said it, but that the the fact that the first story is about love in an overcrowded environment where like they make a big deal about the degree of centimeters between people, you know, at different moments. And, um, you know, you think about how crowded that frame is and you talk about like all the you know, uh, the people in the clubs, in the bars and the, you know, the, 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 the mules, like everything is like so overstuffed. And then the second story is about people falling in love, uh, sharing the same space, but at different times. So it's like, um, the process of him falling in love with Fei Wang is she's in his apartment all the time, but they're never together. Um, it sounds like slightly like an abstract idea. I haven't totally gotten my head around it, but like just because sometimes, you know, you hear, oh, there's no connection. And it's like, well, maybe there is a connection, but it's like very high minded. Or maybe this is something he thought about while doing like press junket number eight, <laughs> you know, like as far as like why, what what connects these two stories and what connected them to the hitman story that would have been the third part. I mean, it's tough to say if that would have felt differently had they shot it as part of the chunking express shoot. Um, but, you know, as far as like beyond just, you know, love, Lauren cops and like mysterious women that they fawn over, is there um, some larger theme that's being tackled? And I don't, I don't know. I mean, how do you, how do you see those stories connecting? Is it, is it just, two stories and that's it just um in that location or do you do you see like some thematic link i mean for me this is a movie the, to me the technique is not in building these really neat um sort of perfect like um metaphors or this or thematic connections to me the the technique is in making the audience sort of lean in and like look squint and like again the way you talk about like we don't really find out what the deal with Bridget Lynn's story is and the man like the white man who runs the bar that mm-hmm. she ends up killing at the end of her story there's like all these little again it's use of negative space and he literally uses negative space it when we get to you know 2046 and in the mood for love and uh, the hand but like he uses negative negative space in editing um, uh, in these earlier films with, uh, you know, Days of Being Wild and Fallen Angels and Chunking Express. And it is this idea of the more you think about it, the more you will bring to it because you have a subjective experience or whatever. And he, and as long as a filmmaker can make the thing that, in lo- as long as they can make it intriguing enough that you want to think about it, then that then you will find it um, yourself. And then the act of thinking about it is the interesting thing. Like, I think, like, Robert Altman's Nashville, it's not like every single character story exists to balance out the other one. It's that 
the more it's that there's so much going on that you can't help but make connections and then draw out larger themes and all of these different stories and stuff like that. And there's just certain images that pop up. There's the, uh, um, I'm trying to think I, I had an example of like a, of a spit. Oh, there's like the canned pineapples. And then there's like the canned, I think it's like salmon that she put sardine labels on. Mm -hmm. And there's just like these canned foods that have these expiration dates and everything. I, I don't, again, I don't think that Wong Kar Wai could possibly be working this fast and have seen it all in his intention, but I don't think movies necessarily need to have that airtight connection. I think they just need to be captivating enough that you can bring yourself to them. Yeah, um, I, I kind of agree. And I, I never, I never really strained to find a deeper right. connection with them. It's just when he said that, I thought like, well, that's interesting i guess i mean i i never th i never even thought that there was something connecting them beyond just the superficial surface things that everyone can see as far as like no it's cops and love and hong kong <laughs> yeah i mean there's definitely these sort of um there, there are these fantasies uh that exist throughout his movies of um devotion uh that is very interesting and i think uh, I mean, this is the second story in Chung Kang Express and the first story, I guess, in Fallen Angels. Um, and, of course, the story uh, in The Hand. Um, uh, and perhaps in 2046, that's a little harder for me to tease out what the hell that movie's about sometimes. Um, <laughs> um, but, like, uh, there's there, there are these fantasies where you watch Chung Kang Express and you watch Fei Wong, who is just absolutely so cute and... And just, like, the most captivating movie star person. Like, there are just some people who you see them on screen, and they're just totally alive and amazing. And, like, you see her totally obsessed with Tony Lung. And to be fair, like, this isn't just some... Uh, Wong Kar Wai is not someone who is exclusively interested in male fantasies. Um, or, like, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to think about what I want a lady to do for me, and I'm going to make that in a movie, and then I'll live out my fantasy through the movie. Like, he, he, the way he approaches fantasy is a lot more complicated than that, because for one, Tony Lung's introduction in this movie is this total movie star, Faye Dunaway kind of a thing, where he he walks towards the frame, and it's shallow focus, and he, like, goes into focus, and he's the most beautiful man who's ever existed, and he's just lit absolutely amazingly, and then it cuts to Faye Wong taking his order, <laughs> and it's like, Okay, yeah, no, I get it, Faye. I like that's what that's what we needed. Um yeah. and you have the you have the whole scene uh I don't know. I guess this is not actually answering your question now. Now I'm rambling, but uh um uh, I'm just I'm just like thinking about what this movie is for me and that and again, like I kind of almost when I think about this movie and I think about the things that work and things that don't and when I think about the images and stuff, almost everything is the second story. Like this first story, other than the fact that I think all the drug smuggling stuff with the Indian men is really funny, um, and the fact that she kidnaps the kid, and it is like, she's <laughs> like, I'm gonna kill her. And then the next shot is just that girl getting two giant cups of ice cream. <laughs> like stuff like that is very cute and funny to me. But for the most part, everything to me about this movie is just the second story. And it is that that romantic fantasy, and it is a lot of fantasy and 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 longing and like. I like that you get the shot, uh, the flashback of 
Tony Lung in the weight and the I think this is another reason why the story with Takashi Kaneshiro doesn't work at all is because you get nothing like this. You have no idea. Is it Sue is the name of the woman he's um, after or May? May, May is the woman that yeah. he and you don't know what their relationship was at all. And apparently that was there's deleted scenes and stuff where there was there was you know, sort of this glamorous movie star in hiding or whatever. But in the movie itself, there's nothing. Whereas that one sequence in the second story where you see the air stewardess and she's in her skirt and bra and she's like trying to seductively dance uh, behind Tony Lung and she's mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful and Tony Lung's in his underwear and he's just like playing it super cool and like not, he's almost like a Leslie Chung character almost where he's just like really withholding. Um, and even later, this is a common like Wong Kar Wai uh, courtship sort of a thing like it's the chasing them around the room and like grabbing her and she's like screaming and fighting and hitting him as she's laughing like that that's the way all romance happens in long car <laughs> movies like that whole scene is so sexy and so sensuous and despite the fact that there's it's not a sex scene there's no nudity um it's not you know particularly horny or pervy or whatever you want to call it. It's not, it doesn't right. have any of the signifiers we associate with sexploitation or things like that, but it is just such a sexy scene that that is all you need for Tony Lung's character to make sense, or at least like in the context of this heightened, wild, silly kind of world, that's what you, we need to justify it. And yeah. And so this is all about these like romantic fantasies that people have and they're projecting and, Fei Wong is projecting this crazy fantasy about her and he's obsessed with what he had in that like uh, beautiful sun-soaked memory flashback that we get. Like that to me is what the movie's about, but that is willfully ignoring the first half because I just don't care for it. Yeah, I mean the first half, it's the joke is that it's it's this kind of film noir crime drug movie that's intersecting with like a John Cusack high fidelity type movie. Yeah. Because <laughs> you have this kind of sad, this sad sack jilted you know, really kind of naive 25-year-old guy kind of intersecting with, like, this femme fatale and, like, you know... But then sparks don't really fly. It's just, like, they're both kind of wrapped up in different kinds of melancholy. It's it's um, closer to the relationship that Takashi Kaneshiro has at the end of Fallen Angels and the final yeah. shots of... I think that it's the same... I think the final moments of Fallen Angels is, like, a way, way more effective version of what I think the takeaway of the first story is supposed to be in Chunking Express. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think that there's certain things that he's trying out in that first story that he gets better in Fallen Angels. Um, I think it's also an interesting kind of torch passing uh, film because you have two different DPs and it doesn't feel like jarringly different to have the, the Andrew Lau shot first half, which kind of connects it to as tears go by. And I wonder if that was like, 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 look, we need to have we need to have a commercial film. Let me get the guy that directed the one hit I had, <laughs> you know, director director photography on the first hit I had. Like, let me let's get back into that crime crime movie kind of thing. And but then Christopher Doyle for the the Fei Wong, Tony Lung half. I almost um, I almost would interpret it just because of how fast the movie was made. I would almost just interpret it as pure. Oh, you're busy then. That's fine. You'll shoot for the first three weeks. You know, like I. I I almost don't even think of it as a creative choice. I think of it as a practical one. I mean, it could be. I mean, it, and it could also be just saying right off the bat, like I don't. It doesn't matter like which DP I use. It will still be, you know, my vision. 
Um, but yeah, because you, you get like, I think by the time you get to Fallen Angels, I mean, Christopher Doyle feels like he's practically crawling into bed with characters yeah. <laughs> with that camera. And um, you get a little bit of that in Chunking Express, but it's like he goes he goes further you know, when he's given more room to play. And yeah, and and when I think about the movie, I do think most of the images I remember, again, are from the second half, but that's just also the content I prefer is in the second half. So it's hard for me to say that Christopher Doyle does a better job. But like, to me, the absolutely indelible shots of the movie are like that camera dip that suddenly happens when Fei Wong drops the goldfish into the tank. Um, yeah. Or the... Uh, the sort of glancing through, and of course, another another contribution of Christopher Doyle is Tony Lung's apartment, uh, <laughs> which was oh, yeah. Christopher Doyle's actual apartment, and that's another example of like we're just we just got to shoot where we can, and our my DP has an apartment that has a really interesting view, so let's shoot here. And apparently, it was just Christopher Doyle wasn't too happy because obviously, when you let someone use your home as a film set, they're just going to run rampant all over it and bust down walls to fit a camera in there and shit like that. But uh, like um all of the things to me that i just i like catch my breath and i can't believe what i'm seeing the the uh, toy airplanes on the stewardess's naked back and stuff like that like that all is christopher doyle and that all is the stuff i remember but also it's just that's the story i prefer so it's hard for me it doesn't feel night and day if you had told me that it was all shot by the same dp i would not think twice yeah um so is this all the stuff that was in the lost hour of the original Wong Kar Wai episode of Directors Club? Yeah, yeah, that's true. We did, <laughs> we did. Yeah, I was. I don't think I knew. I don't. I'm sure I just talked about how cute, awesome Fei Wong was, and how much I loved her sunglasses, and how much I, how much I like California Dreaming or whatever, and how, what, how funny it is that it, you hear her singing as she's the one, uh, you know, fixing his apartment or whatever. Oh like, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure I was not so insightful back then. 10 years ago, <laughs> I was a much different person. Um, but, uh, so like, this is a movie, I talked about this, like, this is a movie where there's moments of it that I, it is, it, like, Fallen Angels is a very, also a very silly feeling kind of movie. And it's, mm -hmm. these are, I think in general, Wong Kar Wai is not absolute, is not necessarily interested in like psychological realism. Like he doesn't, he he doesn't necessarily need his characters to act the way human beings act. Um, it's it's especially in movies like Ashes of Time or The Grand Master, where those movies exist in these heightened genre contexts, um, where just people seem to do things arbitrarily, and you just sort of have to run with it. Um, but like Chungking Express and Fallen Angels are are both movies where the characters are almost kind of one dimensional. They have the thing that they are. And then we explore how that develops. We see where those two characters that each have the one thing go further, where it's like Tony Lung is sad and he talks to all the inanimate objects, which again, to me, that's a little corny and it kind of makes me grimace. But apparently I've read books where like Wong Kar Wai legitimately talks about stuff like that. Like, uh, like this interviewer was like traveling with him on a day and they went to an old office and he's like, you can tell that the office misses me. Everything is all dusty. <laughs> like, that's like, you like, you, that's like the kind of shit where I see it in movies. I go, no one talks like that, but actually I'm sure some people do talk like that. Maybe Wong Kar Wai is one of them, but, um, yeah, that I was, I was, you know, I mean, I can never tell 
with that stuff, like if nostalgia is making me more forgiving with just how cute it gets in those kind of moments, because I mean, a film that was a much bigger success for Miramax a few years later, Amelie, you know, I think has some similarities in terms of the the, the whimsical humor of that. And even just like the kind of prankish side of Amelie kind of is not a million miles from the Fei Wong kind of, um, you know, apartment stuff as far as like, um, like the prankish side of, of your manic pixie dream girl. Yeah. I've had <laughs> Amelie's um, a movie I've never finished. I've, I've watched the first 30 minutes twice and both times I've either like, just like, oh, I'm going to go to sleep or I just turned it off cause I was not into it. So, yeah, uh, but I get invested in the second story. I get invested enough, despite all this, despite me like rolling my eyes when he's saying that the soap is putting on weight. Like, what is it? It's like, is he too? Like, what's happening? Why is he talking like this? Um, I like the final moment where she opens up the shutters on the Midnight Express, and he is there's every it's it is so many tiny choices that are made that makes this moment like just so transcendent. He is squatting on the counter in a like kind of an awkward way, and he has to kind of turn to look at her. And Tony Lung's face, he has it is like a hundred emotions at once. And he even like kind of yells at her for he's like, What are you doing here? Wait, what? Um, it is I cry every single time. I watched this movie twice to prepare for this podcast. I cried both times, and both times I was like, I can't believe I'm crying right now. This is so beautiful. <laughs> And, like, the funny thing is, part of it is it's just, like, it's this very sweet, classic, big, you know, larger-than-life, only-in-the-movies kind of romantic ending um, that makes you swoon. But also, it is almost, like, kind of weird and, like, <laughs> it's, he he went, like, he moved on from the stewardess, and he was ready to go on to the next chapter of his life with Faye. And he was finally got over his grief of the loss of his relationship. And then just like, again, bad timing, wrong place, uh, wrong time. Like that slipped out of his fingers. And then the next time he sees her, she is the stewardess. It's sort of like, the, <laughs> am I fucking doomed? Like, am I in hell? What's happening? Why? <laughs> like, like, oh my God, the world, like time is a flat circle. We are totally, I'm stuck to live the same life forever. Like right. there are so many emotions going on at once that are so funny to me. I, I just, I love it. I, I can't get enough of this ending. Yeah, well, I mean, even like, I mean, the you know, talking about the role changes. I mean, now he's running Midnight Express. I mean, yeah, like she, he's taken her job and she's taken the girlfriend's job. And it's, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you know, you don't have any inkling that he's dissatisfied being a police officer. You just go with it because like this is the ending that makes you know this this is a romantic ending. Yeah, <laughs> but no, um, it's it's. I mean, when I'm watching it. You know, I can I can say that I I get as much pleasure from it as any of the more uh, somber and sophisticated Wong Kar Wai films that follow. I mean, it's just you know it, it holds up as a pure pleasure film, and maybe you know it's maybe his most likable movie. Ah, uh, for sure. So, Ashes of Time. <laughs> Speaking of likable movies, <laughs> <laughs> Ashes of Time eventually did get finished somehow. Some might yes. say it didn't get finished until 2008, but um, <laughs> eventually it was released theatrically. It is, uh, 
Oh, so one of the books I read, and I meant to write down the name of the critic uh, that this was quoted from, and unfortunately I did not. Is so it, I, is my it Peter apologies. Brunette? No, it's uh, well the Someone line. Else. I it might be the line is Seven Samurai at Mary and Bad. That's that's probably in the Brunette book. I know I've read that line, yeah. I, but I think he was quoting a different critic. Okay. Um, but at any rate, like that to me is the the perfect sort of punchy way to describe what makes this movie so befuddling, which is it constantly feels like it's on the verge of telling a very traditional martial arts swordsman wuja kind of story, and then nothing happens. Um, and then and then we loop in time, and we're like, there's a flashback within a flashback, and then you have to make sure. There's like seven different stories and like nine different characters, and you have to make sure that you know all of their names. Uh, and if you don't speak Cantonese and you're not familiar with the culture, like it's a little harder to rem- distinguish between the names of the characters. So remembering those names in its own is very difficult. Uh, and a character will mention someone, and then an hour later, that character will pop up again. And like, God, God forbid, if you forgot that one line that ended that one scene on a sort of weird non sequitur. Um, and it just feels like a puzzle almost. Yeah. Well, I guess the, the, the problem that we would have is that I think, was it Eagle shooting heroes? Is, is that the, 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 I know that there's a, like a series of novels like that were like considered like the Lord of the Rings of, you know, of the, of the East. I mean, like they were, like, I don't know if it was just like big in China or big in Hong Kong. I, I don't know, but like, but it would be a given that these were, famous characters from a really huge book and so th- what this ashes of time is doing is like like fan fiction prequel territory where he's like giving you the the early days the backstory like his he's using these characters from a famous pulp novel to kind of play around with the themes that he would you know favor in his contemporary stories but telling them in this kind of grandiose uh you know, sword, sword and sorcery. Well, not sorcery, but like, you know, like a sword, a sword play kind of film. Um, and uh, that's the perversity of it is that it's, it's kind of more caught up in his notions of unrequited love and rejection and memory. And it pays lip service to the, the action at times, but it's, it's so like, <clears throat> You know, it's it's such a little importance um, to what the film is doing. I find it to be a film I really have tried my best with, and I I, I get things out of it. But it's in a way, it, I don't know. This is like a weird comparison. <clears throat> it feels like his Dune to me, sure. In, feel, in that it feels like you've been given this big project, and it sets the stage for like a really amazing thing to come. <laughs> But then you're still kind of left with this thing that's like <clears throat> trying to pay lip service to genre convention. But you're not really a genre person. You're you're trying to be a, a like a thoughtful poet within these uh, parameters. And I, I you know it's a film that he clearly has gone back to and tried to rework and tried to tighten up. And I think there's a lot that's interesting about it. Like I don't think it's a fiasco, but I I. It is a confounding film and one that I, yeah, I've watched three times in preparation for this, and I still feel like, um, it's just like him toying around with ideas of like memory and loss, and 
you know, things that like if you had told this story like in contemporary Hong Kong, I bet I'd like it more. I think it's just the trappings of it. I feel like there's cultural nuances I'm not quite picking up on. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I just pulled up the text document where I wrote down my thoughts the first time I saw it. And I said, it's like reading someone's Star Wars prequel fan fiction, but not only do you not know who Django Fett is, you're only vaguely familiar with sci-fi, and the whole thing has been edited like a William S. Burroughs cut-up novel. Yeah, Yeah, that's... And and, and the legend of the Condor Heroes is the story, not Eagle Shooting Heroes. Oh, Eagle Shooting Heroes is the film that they made on the sets of this. Yes, which was produced by Wong Kar Wai and production designed by William Chang, and it's like, you know... Like a more broadly commercial, I see. Kind of, like a like a parody film, really. Like it's, I thought it's, that was also the name of the uh, the serial. But yeah, that is a very strange movie to watch after this one because yeah, it is a extremely silly comedy, almost childlike. Though I think that is a specific uh, Chinese tradition of storytelling that I'm not familiar mm-hmm. with. Uh, almost like a pantomime or something. Yes. Um, but yeah, it, it it's definitely the kind of film that like people renting it from Kim's video because it's in the Wong Kar Wai section are going to have a very strange <laughs> ride. <laughs> but potentially enjoy it more than Ashes of Time. Um, Maybe. I mean, Ashes of Time is weird also because it, it, it it's like it's left out of the box sets that Kino Lorber and then Criterion have done. It's like it's kind of like off to the side. Um, so it's never even really... Like, I mean, people consider it, you know, in books and such, but it's, it, it kind of, it, it feels like a little bit apart from the rest uh, because of, because of, I guess, studio ownership or rights issues or elements issues. And I guess it wound up with Sony, you know, but I, I don't know why it's not part of things like the Criterion set, um, but it's, it, it is kind of an, an anomaly. I mean, even the Grandmaster... Um, which I guess is the thing it most resembles because these are the things that are most like genre movies. Like, you know, but, uh, you know, I mean, we talked earlier about like him being a great uh, director of action and it's it's almost kind of confusing the way that step printing approach is applied to swordplay, especially the, <clears throat> the original version of Ashes of Time where it's like thrusts you right into these sword swordplay scenes that are just, I don't want to say incoherent, but like it's a it's a blur of action with characters we don't quite know yet. So it feels just like empty spectacle. Um, And then that stuff gets kind of downplayed a little bit in the Redux version. But it's still a film that if you don't have any connection with the Jin Young, uh, you know, source material and you're just going at it cold, it's it's a very hard film to follow on the first viewing. And even with multiple viewings, you kind of just have to go, you know, scene by scene. It's so episodic that it feels longer than it is because it's not a long movie, but it it feels long because you have no um, narrative momentum, but it's, it's so many characters that you feel like you're, but you you feel like you're falling behind even when you're not. (laughs) Yeah. The third time. So, I, I tried multiple approaches. The first time I watched this, I said, uh, what? The second time I watched this, I got high first and was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to vibe with it. And that was not a good idea because <laughs> in my experience, when I, get, when I get high, there's a time sort of stretch that happens and things seem longer. And this is already, like you said, a movie that seems longer than it is because you're so suspended in it. Uh, so I did not enjoy it that way. The third time, I had seen it twice and... 
the last time I saw it was only like a week ago or so. And I went on Wikipedia and I read the detailed plot synopsis and God bless whatever person watched this movie, however many times they had to, in order to write out this plot synopsis of every single story contained within. And I read it like twice. And then I said, okay, play. And I watched it and I was able to follow it. And then my question was why? And that's honestly a question I have with a lot of Wong Kar Wai films. And it was, I almost got worried for a bit because every movie, every Wong Kar Wai movie that I had not seen before prepping for this episode Mm-hmm. Um, with an exception of as tears go by, um, which its pleasures are extremely apparent and it's it's not a challenging movie, really. Um, everyone I had not seen, which was Ashes of Time, which was My Blueberry Nights, which was 2046 and The Grandmaster. Mm-hmm. I was I was just sort of left wondering why it existed. Um, and that ha- and that happens sometimes with me and Wong Kar Wai. And there is this thing that I realized, and this is going to apply much more later on, but I like Wong Kar Wai movies, but I don't actually, and I like, and part of the reason I like Wong Kar Wai movies is the way they look and the aesthetics of it and the way that they do the things that they do. But on their own as individual elements, there's a lot of things that Wong Kar Wai likes that I have, I really do not. Um, I do not like, especially in the Redux version that is more, the, it's sort of digitally colored and it is more monochromatic the way that the Criterion box set sort of went back and sort of removed a lot of the, uh, it, it, it sort of made a lot of the colors less dynamic in most of the movies and um, sort of higher contrast uh, to, to overly simplify the many minute visual changes that happen. Um mm-hmm. I don't like that. I really don't like that aesthetic. Um, obviously, in Days of Being Wild, it, it like works perfectly to create a certain atmosphere, um, so I don't mind it. But like, if I if I'm not into the story and I'm not see, feeling how it's advancing the story, then I resent that. I don't like step print. Uh, like, just aesthetically, I think it's ugly, and I think it looks it it just sort of breaks the reality for me in a way that traditional slow motion doesn't. And I I just like there's it's very rarely and. Sometimes in Wong Kar Wai movies, it does this. I, but rarely do I see step print uh, slow motion and think this is doing something that would not have been achieved uh, some other means that would have made the movie less ugly. Like there's there's certain moments in In the Mood for Love where or uh, you know in Chungking Express when he's extremely slowly sipping the coffee and then everyone around him is rushing like and there's a similar shot in Fallen Angels. Like those shots are great. Um, but like for the most part, that's just an aesthetic thing that I'm not into at all. And in these movies where I found no purchase in investment in character or plot or um, even like how is this exploring the themes other than characters are just stating weirdly broad platitudes to each other? Uh, like if I can't find an in, then I just start to actually resent everything else around the movie. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, I guess from what I understand, Ouyang Fang, the Leslie Chung character in Ashes of Time, is maybe kind of a like a villainous character or like a heavy um, in the proper story that this is a kind of a fantasy prequel to. Yeah, and um, you know, I, I thought about that. And in he's an anti-hero to- in this. It's it's yeah. You could you could think about it to to bring up a movie that no one has ever thought about uh, in the past ten years. They made a Hannibal prequel movie. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. 
uh, where Hannibal is like this anti-hero who's doing his evil serial killer stuff, but to bad people. And it's like, oh, this is where he came from. Well, sure. Um, well, I mean, you could say the same thing about Joker, you know, I mean, yeah. and, and I think that, um, but if you look at In the Mood for Love, you know, as a, a an explanation for why the Tony Long character in 2046 is so hardened, um, you know, you think about the heartbreaky experiences in that film and even some of the initial scenes at, at you know, Gong Lee, you know, at the beginning of the film, and then his just kind of uh, guarded, uh, selfish uh behavior throughout the rest of that story i mean i guess ashes of time is trying to do something like that where it's um partly trying to explain the behavior of a story that we're not going to see right (laughs) you know and that me and you will probably never read or experience in any way (laughs) right so if you if you're just dealing with it as to what it is rather than like what it's leading to i mean you have you have scenes that work i mean i I don't want to make it sound like this is a film that is completely cryptic and and un, unworthy of consideration and i know that there are people that like it i i find it i i'm still not quite got my way into this one you know and, uh, but, and, and there are some uh, aesthetic stuff that he's doing here that he will later define his uh later movies like uh he is doing a lot of sort of out of focus foreground objects slowly moving in front of the camera um with character sort of off kilter in the background um, in a way that like, that's pretty much all of 2046 and, uh, and you know, in the mood for love and uh, the grand master. Mm, um, yeah. So that's, so there's some stuff he is starting here that moves on. And there is a brief, uh, I believe sort of winking reference to this in happy together that we can get to when we get there, but that might, the... there might be some other more obvious cultural thing that there's a reference, but well, there's a there's a uh, there's a line in Happy Together when the characters cl- like oh close your eyes you know who you look yep. like the blind swordsman right, right. which is the character that Tony Lung plays in Ashes of Time so yeah there might be some jokes in there but yeah it's 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 a film that's definitely less referenced than Days of Being Wild let's say or Chunking Express you know in later uh, films um, oh and then also I will say if you are if you see likely if you see Ashes of Time. Um, you're going to see the Redux just because it's so much more accessible. Um, mm-hmm. Your local library probably has Ashes of Time Redux. It probably does not have the theatrical version of Ashes of Time. And most DVDs of the theatrical version of Ashes of Time look terrible. Um, I bought a <laughs> I bought an out-of-print DVD on eBay for $17, and it was unwatchable. So I would recommend against that. But I will say, if you think when you watch Redux, this doesn't make sense, but probably if I saw the longer cut, it would make more sense. I will say, no, go ahead, go on one of those websites like moviecensorship.com or whatever that like details scene by scene, the changes between different versions. And you will see that there's not any like really excise subplots. There's not really any, there's very little material there that makes the story that adds any dimension to any of the stories. It's sort of just a gentle streamlining of the whole thing. And then the music has changed and then the colors are changed. Yeah. I would say, I mean, I think I prefer the theatrical version of ashes of time, which, um, rarefilm.com, I think is a site that, you know, comes and goes, but, uh, that, that hosts a pretty decent looking, well subtitled version of the theatrical version i i mean who knows you know when people are listening to this podcast if it will always be there but uh you can see it that way um and i, I think that 
Um, the changes are not radically different in terms of the narrative, even compared to the two versions that I've seen of the Grandmaster. Um, it's less extreme with Ashes of Time, but um, if like the like the color choices he makes in the Redux version, or I like you the- just have a real have a real version to Yo-Yo Ma. I mean, you can <laughs> you can you know if you can find the the theatrical version out there uh, online. I do um, like the naturalistic colors and the music. Uh, more in the original theatrical version, but I like this. I like that it's shorter. <laughs> the Redux. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I watched them both, and I, I, I found things to appreciate in both. But yeah, um, I, I think, I think that the Redux doesn't go into quite as a, a jarring, uh, you know, into sword play the way that the original cut did. But you know, I mean, Wong Kar Wai is somebody that I think. I mean, we can talk about you know later if you want the. Um, you know what he's done to his earlier films for the the repackaging and the Criterion set, but he's somebody that definitely, you know, they, when things come out, they're not necessarily finished to him. I mean, even the changes he made to Grandmaster and My Blueberry Nights, you know, with the uh, Harvey Weinstein's um, st- strong suggestions, you know, I think he's happy to make those changes because he probably would be happy retooling things up until the last minute. I mean, like so many of these films like show up at like the 11th hour at the Cannes film festival, that's because a, that's he's a recurring not story. Yeah. Yeah. He's not somebody that likes to rush it. And he could probably tinker with all these films further. I mean, I wonder if the original versions will ever surface again, even something like happy together, you know, uh, some, I think some transfers have like much more ragged, like Christopher Doyle, like dragging the film along the floor <laughs> kind of, uh, grit to it. And, you know, one thing you can say about like these, the versions that are most easy to see now is that they are very uh, smooth, slick looking presentations of the films. And I don't know, I, I can't remember how it looked when I saw it in college, but I mean, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of a grit that is missing sometimes with these, um, these digitally remastered versions. Um, so I sometimes wonder if we'll get slightly grainier original versions in the future um maybe one one car is not <laughs> around to control these things yeah. i don't know but i uh, i'm i'm not a person who understands the technical side of digital restorations and transfers and stuff like that and preserving film elements and and original colors and stuff like that uh enough to make huge judgment calls i do know that once I discovered that the Criterion channel had basically all of the original versions in HD, I just put away my box set and didn't open it again. And I'll probably sell it after we record this. Uh, Cause I just, <laughs> I just have no desire to watch those versions knowing that, the, that they are at least existing uh, on the Criterion channel. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's a very strange situation. I mean, there's definitely like other filmmakers like Michael Mann comes to mind who, um, you know, are constantly tweaking George Lucas, of course, most famously makes tweaks even that, you know, to things like American graffiti, let alone star Wars. And, you know, you have people like Ridley Scott or Peter Bogdanovich, like that, like have filmographies that like good chunk of it exists in more than one cut. And like almost every Wong Kar Wai film from Ashes of Time through the Grandmaster, I think with, I'm trying to think with very few exceptions, exists in like several versions. You know, yeah. um, I think I think we had said before the recording, like 2046 is the only one that comes to mind that I don't think, but even that had a different version that played at Cannes versus the version we have. Oh, sure, so, that's true. Yeah, so, I, um, well, you mentioned that you, that like it's almost like Wong Kar Wai views his filmography as one movie. 
Um, yeah. And and despite the fact that he releases um he he releases films extremely infrequently, um that is something that I almost that is tends to be how I view artists who have a ton of output really frequently is that at a certain point you're no longer talking about individual works. You're talking about the body of work. Like um, when I was first getting into rap, a rapper who was very popular was Lil B and he was someone who was almost a weird savant that he was just, he released so many mixtapes a year and shot so many music videos and he would shoot a music and a music video would pop up on like a different YouTube channel for a song that had never been heard anywhere else. You're like, where'd this come from? And then, and like following the whole body of work became the project in terms of being a fan of him. Individual songs almost had less importance. And you're talking about Hong Sang Soo. I w- that made me think about there was a period of time where Takashi Miike was exciting because Takashi Miike was just like, oh my God, have you seen this one? What about this one? Is this like, oh, and apparently he has these three other ones that never made it to America. And I don't know if anyone is really, I don't know if, Takashi Miike has the cult following that he did in like the late nineties to the mid aughts or whatever. But there was a period of time there where it was just the sheer output of his work that became the interesting thing. Well, that's funny that you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, cause I mean, I was thinking about this earlier, like when we talk about like the cult following for Wong Kar Wai, you know, and the, the, that comes a little bit earlier than the, the, the rush of excitement of Takashi Miike, as far as like, you know, uh, Asian directors that wear sunglasses and have a big cult following. <laughs> um, you know, I think that for, to my, to my mind, I mean, the Wong Kar Wai, like people are excited about a cluster of films that come, you know, from days of being wild to 2046 that are in the box sets and all that. But I, I sometimes wonder if younger film fans are discovering him the way that maybe we did when these films had like, you know, new theatrical life. And I don't think that, my Blueberry Nights or the Grandmaster, we can talk about them, but I don't think that they created new Wong Kar Wai fans. I think they just played no. to, they played to audiences that were either showing up because of loyalty to the old films or that were just, you know, seduced by the marketing campaigns that had nothing to do with Wong Kar Wai's uh, name brand. Well, the reason, um, if you are, let's say you are 19 or something now, mm-hmm. the way, the age you were when you saw Chun King Express and you get into Wong Kar Wai, you are not getting into Wong Kar Wai because the newest Wong Kar Wai movie has hit Netflix or your theaters because there is no newest Wong Kar Wai movie. The reason right. you're into Wong Kar Wai is because you watched a YouTube essay that has packaged for you his body of work as a single broad thing. Because now that he is he is still one of the most beloved, you know, art house filmmakers of the last 30 years, as I keep saying. And like, so he is someone that people are going to keep talking about even if he's not in the quote unquote conversation um and so what you are going to so the conversation around him becomes the connections between fallen angels and chunking express and the way that days of being wild 2046 and in the mood for love is a sort of vague trilogy and like that becomes the way you understand his work yeah well and one director that used to get compared with um Wang Kar Wai uh well he used to get compared to Jean-Luc Godard and um I don't I mean as time goes by, I see that less and less, but I mean, that was something you heard a lot when Chunking Express came out and the conversation around Godard, I mean, Godard continues to make films at a, you know, fairly regular pace up into the present day. But I think when people talk about Godard, they're typically talking about 
the French New Wave period of Godard. They're talking about like that cluster of films from Breathless to Weekend. Right. And with Wong Kar Wai, I sometimes wonder if he's going to be Godardian in that respect. In that I, people... I think almost certainly. I think the period of time in which people get excited about the new Wong Kar Wai movie. Uh, I mean, maybe the difference is Godard released movies more frequently. So even though it was only like every 10 years or so that a goodbye to language sort of broke through to the non-Godard gut diehards into like, oh, this is something that's interesting. Is that, that there? It's part, of the, it's part of the conversation. And like, yeah. um, like even if that happened, you know, that might happen with Wong Kar Wai. Like I can see... I we both watched the uh, teaser for his new uh, TV series coming out, and I don't think uh, either of us. It's it's a te- it's like a one minute teaser. There's no way of telling what the yeah. project actually is. I don't think either of us are like champing at the bit saying Long Car Y is back though. No, it. but I mean I'm not that way. I mean, like I'm never that way with any trailers. Yeah, like so. No, that's I true. Mean, but I mean, I would yeah. not be surprised if. And I'm I'm just saying for me, I don't believe this is going to be that project. But I wouldn't be surprised if down the line. Wong Kar Wai does release something that, you know, Woody Allen had a very long period of time where it was sort of like, well, I guess he's kind of, he's kind of done. Like, boy, after Manhattan, that sort of wasn't much. And then, uh, you know, and then, uh, Hen and her sisters, her sisters, and then like crimes and misdemeanors. And there's just the match point. Yeah. He's, I mean, there's certain people that can like pull off the, the comeback. And the thing is like, once you're famous, People are already people are going to know your name. So if you yeah. come up with something really good, like everyone likes a good comeback story. People would love to have a Chunking Express happen now, and the critics would go crazy. But it's just, you know, I, I it's it's hard to know with artists. Like sometimes that that period when they have like that strongest inspiration, it's like there's so many factors. Uh, it's hard to know. Like it's probably very hard for him to create a new film, like knowing that he's got to live up to. In the mood for love and Chunking Express and Fallen Angels and Happy Together. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, th- that's one thing. Uh, uh, you know, th- there's a um, jumping ahead to my Blueberry Nights and like the way that they use the Cat Power song, The Greatest. And uh, he just keeps harping on that one line of it, like that, uh, you know, what is what is the line like? You know, I want it to be the greatest, <laughs> you know, like it past tense. <laughs> You know, and there was like a certain kind of ambition to Wong Kar Wai that like he wanted to be the greatest filmmaker. And those films have that kind of flamboyance of somebody that Tarantino still has that, you know, where it's just like, check it out. It's the best film you've ever seen, like coming from me. <laughs> like that kind of confidence is kind of necessary for a certain kind of style. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, with Wong Kar Wai, it's like, um, yeah, it'd be, I'd be curious to see like, you know, the new thing. I mean, that, that trailer does, that we're talking about doesn't really give any indication other than you know, someone's trying to sell a Wong Kar Wai thing. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I don't, I don't know what that actually plays out like as the scenes play out. Cause his scenes don't play out like the trailers that, you know, the films have like Fallen Angels doesn't play like the trailer for Fallen Angels. Um, speaking of Fallen Angels, that is yes. <laughs> good. like that transition. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Um, he made Fallen Angels in 1995, uh, released after Ashes of Time, but more, of a follow-up to Chunking Express. Uh, the Hitman storyline was originally going to be part of Chunking Express. Um, so this is, again, another bifurcated narrative, another cluster of characters who intersect at it, in and out of each other's lives. In this case, it's a little closer to Days of Being Wild. There's more connection between the two stories. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's they're sort of more intertwined. Um, in some ways, I feel like this is his most underrated film and that most people think about it as sort of like, and then he did Chungking Express again, but not as good. And, you know, then he did Happy Together and then Wong Kar Wai was back. And Fallen Angels is sort of thought as sort of this, oh yeah, like the afterbirth basically of Chungking Express where it's like, I guess he had some more Chungking Express energy to get out of out. So he did it. And then he went on to the next masterpiece. And Fallen Angels, I do not believe is a masterpiece. It is an extremely messy movie. Um, but there's, I like it a little more than Chungking Express, I think. I don't, it's hard for me to tell. I do think, I at least am interested in both stories in a way that I'm not interested in both stories in Chungking Express. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that it is like more relentlessly depressing. <laughs> yeah. um, I like that it, it, it is full of quirky characters who do not act the way human beings act, but in Chungking Express that can sometimes feel like precious and like I'm being very cute right now. Whereas in Fallen Angels, it almost all comes across as like just mental illnesses. Like it just feels <laughs> like a movie full of people who have undiagnosed serious psychological issues. Yes. Um, and there's something like I find personally uh, more absorbing um, about that also aesthetically and in this way i almost like the new version of fallen angels um, because the aspect ratio has been changed and it's been stretched out it is a more extreme movie it uses the wide angle lens a lot and mm-hmm. it is yeah. as as fast paced and as fun and as exciting and as full of life as chunking expresses like fallen angels is it's almost too much it's like it it's, it makes you on in the in the way that Chunking Express is like a perfectly it's like an ELO song where it's just like there's all these different little elements that are all working in tandem. Fallen Angels is uh like a I don't know, I can't think of a comparable artist where there's a lot going on, but it's <laughs> abrasive. But that's what it is. Yeah, I mean I saw Fallen Angels Fallen Angels I don't think arrived I could be wrong. I, I I think it didn't arrive in U.S. theaters until maybe like 1998. I see. Like I, I, it definitely arrived um, like in theaters my senior year of college and didn't hit video until I was out of college because I remember... I remember like the some, something like this, but I, I, but I knew enough to know that people thought that Fallen Angels was like a disappointing follow-up to chunking express but that happy together which i want to say made it to me first and i saw them both in the theater if fallen angels came if you if fallen angels came out here after happy together that makes a lot of sense to me because after happy together i would understand not wanting to go back feel like you're going backwards to chunking express when happy together feels like such an interesting evolution um yeah i mean that's i'm i'm pretty sure um that that was the, but I I don't have the dates all in front of me. But I mean, I'm pretty sure I saw Happy Together then Fallen Angels, um, and and Fallen Angels had a '98 theatrical release date because they they both got acquired by Aquino, um, and Happy Together had just one prize or two at at um at Cannes, and so that was the, you know the the the, the going concern. But Fallen Angels, I remember um. I walked out on a screening of Truth or Dare, the Madonna movie that I had been assigned to see for a class. 
Um, and it was like not a new film, so I was able to go rent it. It was like not like, but like I, it was the last night that Fallen Angels was gonna be in town, and I was curious, so I remember leaving this Madonna movie uh, to go see it, and then with low expectations because everyone who was like kind of implying that it was this lesser than film. And I remember like, you know, just like happy together and chunking express, like being like exhilarated by, it. and everyone I knew was exhilarated by that movie. I never met anyone that kind of sounded like the critics that thought it was, you know, self parody or rehashed or like just not as charming kind of film. And it, it's not trying to be chunking express in some ways, which I kind of like about it. I think it's, like all of the things that are whimsical in Chunking Express feel like they're given an edge of menace in um in uh Fallen Angels as far as like, you know, like the uh uh what is that character? The um the guy the actor from Chunking Express is um uh da 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 what it's uh Takeshi Kinoshiro. Yeah. The um the guy that's like forcing everybody to buy products or buy ice cream or get a haircut. Like there's something threatening about this, even though it's played for laughs. Um, you know, I, I think that the, like the, the dynamic between the hitman and his, you know, um, his agent, you know, versus the, the dynamic in the, um, you know, the first story with Bridget Lynn in Chunking Express, like there's no, there's no silliness to it. Like it's no. just, well, it's more, it's, it's, it's just sadness to me. It's more a reflection of the second story in Chung King express where the agent is going through this apartment and cleaning it. And she even changes the answering machine message the way. Sure. But yeah. it's like, but instead of just like being kind of high on the idea of love and just sort of like feeling tingly and excited about being in this guy's apartment, she is just, tormented and tortured and even when this movie gets more overtly sexual than his work had been in the past like it is the saddest least sexy masturbation scene you could ever imagine maybe outside of happiness like david lynch was probably taking notes (laughs) from all and drive oh god it is just it she is just like yeah just writhing on the bed it's just agony and you have that amazing uh Lindsay, is it Lindsay Anderson? Uh, Laura, Lon, Lon, Jesus Christ. What the? What's Laurie the, Anderson? Laurie Anderson. Lindsay Anderson and Lonnie Anderson are very different people. Um, yeah. but, they, but that, yeah, that Laurie Anderson song playing, and again, on, we have this sort of song playing on the jukebox. Um, like, it's just, it's really pathetic and sad. And then, Takeshi uh, Kaneshiro's character is this sort of like, he's almost happy-go-lucky, but again, the things he does are extremely off-putting um, and much more, much more antisocial than just sort of like the bubbly stalking uh, or yelling at a guy at a convenience store for throwing out expired fruit or whatever. Like, uh, And also, <laughs> at the end, is it implied that he cuts off the fingers of the guy that he keeps running into i thought it was just all of his hair he goes that's my bone if you cut if you i can't i can't remember if the translation is if you cut them all off or if you cut it all off i can't go out in public but i hear but, I, 
I just assumed that he was giving him a haircut, but like the bone in his head. But oh, yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely, but that's definitely like a much more ominous, you know, <laughs> situation if he's cutting off the fingers of that guy. But more importantly, he is running into all of these like, like the people that he connects with most are also extremely manic, antisocial weirdos. Um, and they are also like, uh, they are they're they're losing their minds and they're and like he couldn't he can kind of get looped into their madness he like loses his own madness and sort of gets looped into theirs in a way um which which care is this charlie or is this baby who uh i guess the, i think it's charlie is the one who's on the phone that he's yeah, that running through the apartments uh looking for blondie uh and like she that is really bad energy like she just has a this is this is terrible <laughs> like i feel really bad watching her <laughs> and uh he's just he he's distant from them it's not like he feels real empathy but he's just sort of like all right i guess i'm doing this for a while um yeah there's it's just a lot of really bad vibes in a way that i find uh Maybe I just maybe I just like luxuriating in bad vibes for a while because it's not a movie that I think is it doesn't have the like I think the second story in Chungking Express is just like this perfectly expressed just absolutely dazzling montage and it's all like it's all like sharpened to a single fine point in that second story and it does the thing it's doing extremely well and there's nothing in this movie that seems that pointed or purposeful it's a lot messier and I can't necessarily though uh i will say um where takashi kenashiro's story goes uh like the very end of chunky express it does make me cry every time that that uh song playing during the videotape montage simu di ren by uh Chien oh yeah, Chien. yeah oh my god i like it's that for some reason even though everything about that story is like these aren't real people they're it's just so weird and out of control like the backstory of why he doesn't talk and like his dad it's like my mother was hit by an ice cream truck ice cream it's, truck yeah it's no it's so, absurd <laughs> it's so absurd so it, like it shouldn't work but like just the footage of the videotape of him showing off cooking and the image of his dad rewatching that videotape and being moved by it and that song playing it's it's it moves me so much in a way that should not work but does yeah, I mean, I, I mean, certainly that the music. I mean, whether it's like only you, that flying pickets song that plays, you know, when he's on the motorcycle at the end of the movie, or, um, I mean, very much the. Um, when I think of that film, I think of because I'm cool. That song that samples Massive Attack, that, uh, like that kind of like almost trip hop yeah. kind of reggae song that they use, which, I don't know, it feels like. Um, it reminds me so much of the late 90s and that energy, like that time when things like Portishead were like in every dorm that I remember going into. Like just that it feels like the ultimate like, um, you know, it, this is maybe like not a flattering comparison in the minds of a lot of people. But when I think about what something like Nicholas Winding Refn gets into later on, as far as like something that is just about style and cool lighting and cool soundtracks and just trying to be hip and trying to be cold. Um, Fallen Angels feels the closest to my mind to, to where filmmakers like that arrive at like years later, as far as like a film that is just, I mean, it gets into things that are more sensitive, but like it's, it's 
I think the lingering impression for me a lot of times with that one is that it's going to live up to everything Quentin Tarantino said about Chunking Express. <laughs> yeah. Even though, you know, Chunking Express um, st- got the Tarantino branding after I think Fallen Angels was made. I'm not sure the exact timeline, but but it's it's a film that like seems tailored made for the people that got into Chunking Express, but also are into John Woo movies. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, say I, it has... I we didn't mention it, but when I first heard about the premise of Chunking Express, it was in a book where the picture that accompanied it was Bridget Lynn holding a gun, um, yeah. and it was and I and the word you know and the name Tarantino was dropped and multiple stories. I'm like, okay, I know what this movie is, and that was part of my experience of the first time I watched Chunking Express was realizing it was not John Woo Pulp Fiction; it was something much stranger. Um, so yeah, that's that is absolutely what I thought going into Chunking Express, and that is absolutely maybe that's why the first time I watched these two back to back Fallen Angels, I liked much more because I was like, oh, this is more what I wanted it to be. Um, yeah, well, it's definitely like the chillier, more depressive film of the two. Like, there's no one talking to a teddy bear in this one. <laughs> like, it's definitely, yeah, you know. Um, I mean, even when it, I mean, when it gets kind of sweet at the end about his father, like it, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a jarring transition from like the, um, where we are in the first half hour where it's just bloodshed and longing. Yeah. That, that (laughs) almost like that's the joke in itself is that it stops being silly. Like that's maybe the silliest choice he could make at that moment is to go earnest. Uh, I will say the, the killer himself, despite being like all fitted out and, looking cool and everything it is the least interesting character maybe in any one yeah <laughs> it's, it's the only one that is not at all challenged or uh subverted in any way he is just the stereotype um yeah well no, and i don't know that actor but it's like if they had used tony lung or leslie chung or one of the you know matinee idols that you know Wong Kar Wai traded in you know i don't know if that would humanize that character but the uh-huh. fact that he is such a blank slate kind of works so the one thing i will say leon Lai, who plays the killer um mm-hmm. i think this was i uh, you know what the timeline might not work out uh i this could have been right before but this could have been right after as well he is in a movie called comrades almost a love story um with maggie chung oh yeah 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 where he plays this like mainland china country hick who comes to hong kong to seek his fortune and to marry his hometown uh, sweetheart and Maggie Chung plays like the fast talking uh, Hong Kong woman that is kind of showing him the ropes of the big city. And he is just this big goober, the whole movie. Um, okay. And then there's, there's like a jump in time and where he has sort of established himself. He owns a restaurant and then he is, he has more sophisticated then. but for a lot of the beginning of the movie it is Maggie Chung as like, Oh my God, you can't talk like that. Like he sees, she has a pager and he's like, you're the first person I ever met who had a pager. And if that movie, which was a hit uh, in Hong Kong came out right before this, then the joke is that he's the cool killer, but it might've, okay. it might've come out after. I honestly can't recall at the moment, <laughs> but, okay. but that's yeah, the no, only I... other movie I've seen Leon Lai in. And it is funny that it is such a different character. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Now it's funny. Cause I was showing somebody some Wong Kar Wai films a couple of days ago and I only showed them um three of them um chunking express in the mood for love and um happy together and uh, but like fallen angels is the one that aesthetically i think of when i think of one car wine it was actually surprising to me how i mean happy together you know you definitely like has a lot of 
creative choices with like black and white into color and you know the slow motion i mean it's definitely like filled with a lot of camera pyrotechnics but fallen angels is the one that is like if somebody was going to throw a party and wanted something to have playing on in the background for a mood aesthetic like fallen angels is the yeah. one that is the most uh aggressively stylish of all of his films um i think and you know it's i think about the color palette and the production design um you know this is you know again william chang but like i think of it as a cousin or a sister film to chunking express and chunking express feels like they didn't have time to get that you know ambitious with the with the sets and the color palette, but you know, here they have a little bit more room and they kind of try to do a chunking express too, but it's like, it's not made under the same rough and ready conditions as that. Whereas that's like, they're really, it really feels like they're on a street catching something and running, uh, you know, after people, this feels slightly more like an empty city, not quite as empty as days of being wild, but it doesn't, it definitely feels like there's aesthetic choices being made in the environment in a way that chunking express, they didn't have time. (laughs) Well, there's um, also so that's, there's also oh. this sense of uh, fatalism to it uh, that feels more like Days of Being Wild than Chunking Express, where like the scene where uh, Leon Lai takes Blondie uh, home, where the killer takes Blondie home, is almost mm-hmm. identical to the scene where Leslie Chung sort of seduces the girl home with the earring. Um, yeah, like yeah. that. There's the scene in the stairwell and them going up and the reveal of her sad story that like they've already had an affair and he has totally forgotten her. Um, and then when she reveals that he gets, she gets no reaction from him at all. And she's just sort of like, okay, well, I guess I'll stay anyway, even though I was hoping that that would be the moment where you came back to me and realized that you did love me or whatever. Like there is this sort of sense of everyone is stuck where they are, where Chunking express is obviously like the characters who are stuck in their love, uh, are sort of in stasis, but the things that happen around them with Bridget Lin and with Faye Wong is like this character is trying to achieve something, and there's forward momentum in it. So it that so it has that effervescence the way that Fallen Angels you're just sort of sludging through the sadness. Yeah, yeah, and again, it's like one thing I appreciate is that Wong Kar Wai almost never makes really long movies, and no. they feel like the right amount of time yeah. for these kind of things. Like if Fallen Angels was three hours, it would be like kind of impossible. If but- if Wong Kar Wai made films the way he makes them and was precious about the material that he got, his work would be insufferable. If yeah. he was someone who shot in the mood for love for as long as he shot in the mood for love, and then was like, all of this is good and can be used somehow, I just got to figure out how, and if that means that my real vision can only be realized in a four-hour epic cut, like you would just be like, no, never mind. We don't need you. Um, it is his taste in the editing room and William Chang's, uh, influence, obviously, though, uh, Fallen Angels, like a lot of the other films, there's multiple editors as well. So I, I honestly don't know enough about the Hong Kong film industry to know if that's common or if that's a quirk of Wong Kar Wai's work. Uh, I don't know, but I mean, when it comes to William Chang in the editing room, I assume he's calling the shots because he's the he's the guy that's been there from the right. beginning and continues to be there. So I I think that he's the dominant voice in in the cutting room with these films I th- and. Um, my understanding is that sort of like Christopher Doyle, Wong Kar Wai's relationship is sort of adversarial and they kind of push each other um, in ways that benefits the movie, but they're, yeah. but they're not necessarily friendly at all. And William Chang and Wong Kar Wai's relationship is very friendly and trusting and uh, 
like a lot more of a uh, maybe healthy <laughs> kind of Bo- relationship. Both, both make a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, Fallen Angels is the one that feels the most like Chris Doyle, like as a character, because you can yeah, feel yeah. his footsteps in the scenes. You can feel him crawling into bed with people. You can feel him on the motorcycle. Like he's, he feels like the unseen character in it, even more than happy together. The, well, and... the, 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 car- the camera movements are way less motivated than they are in even Chunking Express. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're also right up in their face because that wide angle lens. I mean, they're, they're making choices that kind of distinguish it in a big way from Chunking Express. Like, I mean, they have some shared, some shared cast, some shared locations, some, you know, shared, uh, plot elements but um they are tonally so different and visually so different and so a lot of people were were mad the everything was kind of stretched out on the criterion release it was i honestly i just i don't understand the technical side of filmmaking enough to really detail into what he's doing with the aspect ratio in terms of either cropping it differently or stretching the film out differently or what, but those extreme close-up wide-angle lens kind of shots just sort of are amplified even more so in the new version. And I have to say, I, I liked it. There's a couple things I noticed that were different, even though I had not seen Fallen Angels in like 10 years. I had noticed, like, for example, I uh, the ending of Fallen Angels is something that is like the ending of uh, Beau Travail, where I watch it on YouTube like once a week. I just... <laughs> I just love it so much. Um, And so when the ending of Fallen Angels on the Criterion set rolled around and it was in black and white, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? That's not the way it's supposed to look. It's ugly now. And I didn't like that. But everything else, I kind of like if this movie is going to be aggressive and grating and like just sort of miserable in a way and strange and and kind of off-putting, like I kind of like the choice to just make it more so. Um, It kind of just makes the film the way it is but more so. So yeah, no, I mean, I, I think the, the scene where the Michelle Rice character, the, the, the killer's agent has to listen to that forget him song that the killer has like, you know, passive aggressively, (laughs) you know, given, you know, his, uh, given notice via pop song. Um, that scene in the new transfer, the, it looks different to me in a way that I did find distracting. Um, but that's the only scene where I really um, thought about it. I thought the, the transition to cinemascope framing, you know, that wider rectangular framing, I thought it mostly worked and I'd seen it so many, so many times in, you know, the original version that I, I was really afraid when I heard that he was changing the aspect ratio. Like, t- anytime they change the aspect ratio, usually it's like Vittorio Storaro making things less wide. Um, it always makes me nervous because like, you get attached to a certain way to looking at it. And um, But yeah, no, I think, I think some of the color choices are a little funny, but for the most part, I think it, it works. And if you never saw it the way that it came out in the 90s, I, mean, I doubt anyone would be bothered by it. Where, as opposed to some of the end credits on the, the new versions of other movies, it like it's instantly dated bad CGI titles. Um, yeah, well, some... we'll talk about instantly ba- dated CGI in a bit. Oh, but... I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Um, <laughs> do you have anything else to add about Fallen Angels? Um, no, just that I, you know, if anyone, I doubt, I don't know if anyone listening to this would have skipped over it because of its, you know you know, initial reputation as a uh, 
a lesser than Chunking Express kind of sequel, but I think it's I think it's one of his major works, and I I've never met anyone that felt otherwise. And I think when um, I think the Village Voice maybe I think it was Village Voice had like in the top ten of the decade, like it had its it had its hardcore champions at the time. Um, it definitely built the legend. It's not like I don't know if like it, if its reputation gets overshadowed, especially in the post in the mood for love where it's like that becomes the standard for him. But yeah, no, it's I mean, I, I get I had friends that thought that was his best film. And I, I get why, even if I don't agree. Cool. Um, can, can we take a five minute break here? Yes. Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. So happy together. If I should call you up, invest a dime, and you say you belong to me and lose my mind. Imagine how the world would be so very fine, so happy together. So the next film was Happy Together, 1997. We uh, talked a little bit, or I talked a little bit about the first time I saw it, and it's importance to me. You, you've talked a little bit about this is the one that you saw after Chung King Express. Yeah, this is the one where, like, this was the reinforcing thing. Like, oh, I don't just like Chung King Express. I like Wong Kar Wai movies, maybe. Yeah. Because this was the one I'm like, okay, this is, this is great, and it feels like an advance at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'd seen that many... I don't think I'd seen that many queer st- films at that point. And I, I, I've always got like a weird mixed feeling about the major queer films, like in that quote unquote, you know, being all straight guy directors. Cause I feel like that's like a, a weird thing to me when like, Oh, with the great new queer cinema, like Brokeback Mountain and Moonlight and happy to get yeah. <laughs> Philadelphia. It's like, well, there's a lot of queer directors that would probably tell this yeah but so i try not to think of it like in those terms i i I saw like at least maybe wikipedia or something was like oh this is one of the great new queer cinema i'm like i never think of it as part of that no i just (laughs) well and then and then the funny thing is if you look at it at its face value totally outside the uh context of um what the rest of wong kar wai's filmography you could if you were not being generous you could look at it and say oh it's another film about a bad relationship and how gay relationships are doomed or whatever. But of course, it's just a Wong Kar Wai relationship. It's like, there are yeah. no, like, there's no good ones in his filmography. This one is, in, you know, this one is just as acrimonious as any of the straight relationships in Days of Being Wild. Um, yeah, the difference is that you can get into physical violence and it's not loaded the way a man beating up a woman yes. is loaded because both of them could kick the other one's ass. Yes. Like, and, like they're both yeah. And and in general there isn't the uh there isn't the power dynamics of of women's role in society, men's role in society. Women can get away acting like this in relationships, men. When you see a movie directed by a straight man and it has a woman acting a certain way, there always is the thought in the back of your mind, like, are they saying that all women are like this? Or are they talk making a movie about a single character? And like, you get, right. you get outside of all that. And that's kind of why I like movies about kind of complicated power dynamics in relationships to be uh, a same sex, uh, or at least outside of heterosexual relationships. Like I, I think this is a very similar movie to Duke of Burgundy, which I absolutely adore. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, 
I was going to say also, I mean, I don't know how we can really go too in depth on this. I don't think either one of us is going to be an expert, but I know that this is also like heavily informed by the handover of Hong Kong to China that was about to happen in 1997. And I know this also hangs over 2046 as well in a different way, but like the notion of um, characters fleeing, fleeing their country and being adrift and trying to figure things out like rootlessly. I think it's, it's trying to tackle that anxiety about the handover from Hong Kong, from the, from the British to the Chinese government in this very indirect kind of way by making it, you know, making that as the jumping off point for like a study of relationship dynamics. Yeah. Um, I, I, I kind of feel, and it is true that neither of us are really the experts in that political history to be super informed and make super informed in statements on these uh, things. I, I feel like that anxiety informs all of his movies. Like there's a reason why all of his movies take place uh, during the early 60s, which was, you know, when he, it was when he first moved to, you know, Hong Kong when he was Mm -hmm. in 1963. It was also the year that the, that Britain made their deal with China to hand over in 97. Um, Yeah. And so the 45 year, I think is the, anyway, I, at any rate, there is in all of his movies, a sense of, like I said, there's a precariousness in terms of time. There's of, I just missed it or something bad is coming or like our fate is already written. Um, that is not hard to draw a line from that to the anxiety that people in Hong Kong feel. Hong Kong itself being a place of a lot of immigrants and a lot of immigrant cultures and a lot of people who are already displaced just by being there uh, and a as a place that is constantly rebuilding itself and is a super modern city. Um, the, the the sense of rootlessness um, in I, it's easy to draw a line between that, but it's hard for me to look actually sit down and watch a Wong Kar Wai movie, and as I'm watching it, feel like his goal is tackling any of this stuff. Yeah, it's it's certainly not didactic filmmaking. If he's got like a political thought, he's he's hiding it under like many many layers. But I I know that like. Um, I'd read that when it came, since we mentioned like the, you know, the queer dynamic of it, that he had talked to Leslie Chung about playing that character, Hope, uh, Hope Ho Wing, and like had said, like, look, look, we got to make a, it, we need, we need to make a gay film now if we're going to make one, because, you know, w- what's going to happen when China takes over, like it might, we, they, they're, they're acknowledging they might not have the same artistic freedom. That's, so they that's wanna, very they, interesting. They, so they, they, they've got to make that film now. Because there is something very like fear, like the very first image of it is a rather graphic sex scene between the two that is very passionate and very hot and it it matches their relationship where it's a very tempestuous like grasping uh kind of a, a sex scene between the two and obviously in uh in when two men have sex with each other there is an inherent power dynamic in there in terms of mm-hmm. the top bottom dynamic and the power bottom and the, you know, bottoming from the top and whatever, like there, there, those things are built into gay sex itself. Uh, that speaks widely to the, uh, to the, to the actual story of the characters and the relationship. And like, I, that, I think that's why 
at first when I saw Chungking Express, I thought, oh, Wong Kar Wai must have some, it must have lived in America or something. And when I saw Happy Together, I just assumed, oh, this is a gay filmmaker because no straight man would ever make a movie like that. But I think, I think Wong Kar Wai is just sort of that exception. Like he is just that guy who, uh, he finds this, and he does do the mealy mouth thing that a lot of filmmakers would do, uh, a lot of straight filmmakers would do in making a movie like this, where in interviews he will say, I wasn't making a movie about gay people, I was making a movie about two men in love, which is like, all right, fuck off. But, <laughs> but like, maybe that's just the thing you say because you have other, you know, anxieties maybe. that have nothing to do with the artistic... Or you want people to find it in the video store that doesn't have a Wong Kar Wai section, exactly. they have a gay section. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe he, that's him trying to sell the movie to people who are see the word gay and run in the opposite direction. Like that, maybe that could be cynical and not, not him. I obviously, I don't think you make this movie and you're like timid about gay sexuality at all. Um, no, well, why, why would you make it if that was your attitude? Right, I mean, it's, it's not like a commercial thing, and it's not <laughs> shocking either. It's not like in your face, Wong Kar Wai, the guy that pushes your buttons in Fallen Angels, is no, but. No, but I, I think that I think he might have made statements to the effect that like I put that sexy at the beginning. Like if you're homophobic, you're out the door in the first five minutes. Great, we don't need you, and now we've got our story to tell. Sure. Like I mean, it's like it's it's definitely like calculated, you know, location wise. As far as like, because that's probably, I mean, it's not sexually explicit. Like it's not like you know, um, like it's not as as explicit as as, as it could be. It's not hardcore, no. but it could. It, but it it isn't. Um, it, it's definitely like a lot less uh i mean it's it's more graphic than anything else in any of the films um before or since i can think of I right think i think in 2046 there's, there's it gets not really i guess not, not really. as, i guess not as graphic as as uh as happy together it, I guess it, right. it definitely th those definitely have less heat than than happy together sure um i think yeah i and but like and it does set the it does good do a good job of like all right let's get that out of the way and now whether or not there's going to be a scene later where they have sex with each other is not going to be, that is not where the suspense comes from. Right. This is not a film where you're like, I wonder if Tony Lung's going to kiss a guy. Right. <laughs> like, it's exactly. Not that, it's not that movie. <laughs> um, but like, you know, good on I've, Leslie Chung. My understanding is he was bisexual. Um, yeah. Tony Lung, uh, it's my understanding. He is straight, but like, you know, good on, good on both of those actors for, making the movie the way they did and it being so fearless. Cause it does mean a lot to me when I first saw it. And it, it does mean a lot in terms of like, I think the most normalizing thing you can do is make a movie about gay men where that's not what the movie's about. Like the movie with yeah, gay it's... men in it, but it's actually about a feeling of displacement geographically. And it's a feeling about, uh, sort of tempestuous power dynamics within a relationship. And like, that's all the stuff that's about. And the fact that they're gay, it's sort of is the only real thing. It's not arbitrary. Cause I do think it, it kind of serves as like, a, it's a second metaphor for how stranded they are in this world where they, right. Yeah. Where they not only, you know, do not speak Portuguese, but they, they also are not, um, they're also not straight. So they're, so they're also a subculture within a, uh, foreign culture. Um, and then I also think that the implication is when Leslie Chung uh, is, is uh, beaten and has to be taken care of by Tony Long. My, my understanding was that was always a, like a gay bashing sort of a thing. That's how I always read it too. But the fact that he's, 
you know, talking about like, can I get the the wa- the watch back? You know, <laughs> like I I I always think like, well, maybe he's dealing in like either robbery or like some kind of. I think he's hustling. Uh, I think he's he's yeah he's some, he's some yeah. I mean, like he the, he could be doing reasons for like being beaten up that have nothing to do with you know homophobia, but at the same time, I always read it as yeah hate crime. Um, and I was gonna say that the only stuff that really feels like gay message movie-ish about Happy Together is either if you read those scenes that way, but also even the way the Chen Chang character, co-worker of Tony Lung, like that feeling out like, is this person also gay? Like that ambiguity, like feels a little bit like the coming out trope you've seen in a lot of gay films. Um, but that's about it. It's really not about their, I mean, it's just it's just a fact of the of those characters. Right. It's not like the the focus of the story. And so you said, what what's the novel that this is based off of? Well, it's not. There was a film. There was a there was a novel called Buenos Aires Affair that is another Manuel Puig novel that at one point I think Wong Kar Wai was thinking of adapting. But there's not really anything to that novel that is retained in Happy Together. Like it's not. I think it's it was just a jumping off point um, in terms of sparking his imagination and maybe setting it in Buenos Aires, but um, yeah, that I, I I I from what I know of the story, I haven't read it. I picked it up, but it's not it's not the story of Happy Together. Okay, so um, so it's not uh, all right. I see. Um, so the thing about this movie is this is the you were talking about like Christopher Doyle feeling like. Uh, you know, uh, 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 the fifth character in Fallen Angels. Mm-hmm. This movie, it it doesn't have the aggressive, obnoxious, sort of close-up, wide-angle kind of shot Christopher Doyle, but this movie is a Christopher Doyle sort of, like, master class where there's just a, a wide... It's like every film technique that you can think of... Um, Every kind of shot, every, you know, some of it's in black and white and some of it's in color. Um, there's just, there's just, the, it is one of the most visually dynamic films I've ever seen. There's almost zero um, sort of shot, reverse shot. Um, there's, it's not like a movie with a lot of dialogue. A lot of it is internal monologue. Um, mm-hmm. And then, but when they do argue, it's mostly done in master shots. Like almost the entire movie is nothing but master shots. Um, and this is a movie that, for me, even though the subject matter is more acrimonious and bitter than something like Chungking Express, to me, this is like my happy place, like Wong Kar Wai movie. I could watch this a hundred times um, just because it is, it's just so overwhelmingly gorgeous and it just looks incredible. And, and, be, and it has the benefit of having like a coherent, emotionally involving story that I can sort of sink myself into. Um, but it's not, it, the, it doesn't have these sort of super complicated, like, like when you watch in the mood for love, you better be paying attention. Otherwise you're going to forget who's talking about who. Um, Mm -hmm. and if you want, and you're watching days of being wild, you really have to read between the lines or else you're not going to understand what gives the characters depth. And this movie is a well-told story that is more or less straightforward. Um, the complication is in the power dynamics and how you sort of grow to see Tony Lung not as a victim in an abusive relationship, but a sort of happy participator in a toxic one. Um, 
but uh yeah, no. but like I, I but i can just sit and watch it and i don't feel i have to turn my brain 100 percent on the way i have to for uh in the mood for love or days of being wild um yeah that that's that's fair i mean i think that you know had in the mood for love not come along happy together could just as easily be thought of as his masterpiece yeah um i mean there are probably a lot of people that would get more out of it because it is more visceral it is more relatable um you know it's 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 the maturing of Wong Kar Wai without losing all the pizzazz that made Chunking Express and Fallen Angels kind of so exciting. Like it, it has all that energy, but it also has like more to say, you know, like it, it's, it, it, I, I don't know. I think it, it's, there's just, you know, I mean, I, 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 I guess we'll probably talk about like favorites at the end, but like, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to pick favorites with him. Cause I, I get, um, I get as much out of this as I get out of whatever I would say that um, I might pick as the favorite. But um, yeah, no, I, when this when this came out, I remember just I think it was even just early on when the, the shots of the waterfall being used as that um, kind of catch your breath, you know, kind of. I don't want to say it's like a pillow shot like Ozu, but like you spend a long time looking at that and like contemplating what this is, what this means. And it feels like you could read so much into it or just take it as a, a beautiful image that is probably Christopher Doyle hanging from a helicopter, like, you know, ready to like fall into his death. Um, I don't know. It's that it's, it's a film that every time I watch it, it, it just, it, it lives up to my memory of it. And it, um, as is as you know one of the most exciting films i saw in college and uh and i, I when i showed it to a friend with two other guancar Wai films this was the one that stood out of the three over chunking express and in the mood for love yeah i think the thing with in the mood for love is in the mood for love is like guernica where it's just so staggering like you you really like i the it is so everything it does is so specifically tuned for a specific thing um, that it and and it's so unlike any other movie, and it's so abundantly clear. It's like kind of in some ways, in the mood for love is like the ideal entryway like art house movie where it's unlike anything you've ever seen, but it has a super simple story that you're not going to get lost in. And every if you were going to sit a teenager down in front of in the mood for love and have them watch it and like pause it and go like, what do you think he does? He means in this shot, they can probably grok what Wong Kar Wai is doing most of the way. Um, mm-hmm. because it is just sort of like, it, which is not to say it's a simplistic movie. Cause it's just sort of astonishing that every single image in that movie is so perfectly composed and tuned sort of this specific thing, but it is like, it's staggering in a very front facing way. Whereas happy together is a movie that the more you watch it and the more you sort of understand all the dynamics and the characters and the, the more you like, once you know where Tony Lung is going to end up, um, like you kind of are looking for hints of sadism early on and you're trying to figure out like, what do you, what, what is he doing? Like, what is, where does it, where does it come in where he's going to steal this guy's passport and not give it back? And that's how their relationship ends. Um, it's, it kind of rewards repeat viewings in a way that in the mood for love, you never see more depth to what's happening. You just sort of see more, uh, detail to how Wong Kar Wai achieves it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I, I think that, it, and it certainly like introduces ideas that he explores again in in the Mood for Love, with as far as like the um, like the notion of 
voicing your sadness and frustration and leaving it in some odd place in another corner of the world. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, like there's certain like things that like appeal to him, but I think it's more moving when we see Tony Lung like breaking down, like tr- talking into the recording than, uh, you know, than the more spooky almost kind <laughs> of like you know like cambodian yeah. ruins and in the mood for love. for sure like the first time i saw in the mood for love that the whole section in cambodia almost felt like unnecessary um yeah whereas whereas for me happy together him i i like that chen chang uh chang uh i like that that character before he hides the uh, tape in the southernmost tip of South America. He listens to it, and instead of saying all he did was cry on it, he didn't say anything. It's like he can't, like he can hear what's happening in a bar on the other side, uh, you know, on the other side of a crowded, noisy bar. But he just yeah. doesn't understand people enough to understand what the sobbing is. He's just like, oh, it's some strange noise. Like, it's <laughs> I, I really love I really love that. And it's sort of like that's why Chang's always got a smile because he doesn't know, <laughs> you know. And yeah. it's like that's why Chang is in this movie. It's not just sort of well, it's a Wong Kar Wai movie, so it's got to be episodic. And we've left this one, and we're sort of in this one, and. Like all the pyrotechnics that you remember about Happy Together are the scenes where Leslie Chung and Tony Lung's together. But the stuff with Chang is is vital because he is this sort of like blissful idiot. And it's like, of course, of course he's happy. He doesn't understand heartbreak at all. Like when the girl asks him out to the movies and he's like, nah, I don't like movies. And and, and, <laughs> and she's just like gets really mad. He has no guilt or anything because to him he's just like, nah, I'm good. And he's just zipping on to another part of his life and someone's gonna say hey do you want some of this food he goes oh cool i got food now like that's that's kind of how he lives his life well yeah i just thought also this time watching it how the ending kind of at least resonates with the endings of chunking express and my blueberry nights as far as like this romance that didn't quite happen that maybe could have happened between Tony Lung and Chen Chang um, characters. Like he goes to a, like a, uh, like a takeout food joint to reconnect, but only, only connects with his family and takes the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but like that same kind of um, like things, you know, it's, it implies that there's more to this story than what, you know, beyond the credits, like they, they could connect in the future. Like there's that optimism, That's to funny. It. but it, but it's, but it's less spelled out than Chung King or my blueberry yeah. nights. As far I, as like, I guess I always just assumed Chang was straight. Like he had, he talked about having a type of woman and granted the type with of woman, de- yeah, granted with a deeper <laughs> voice, but like, you know, and of course, obviously him being attracted to women does not preclude him being attracted to men. But like, I always just assumed that, that see that moment exists to uh i i mean there's 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 plenty of straight men who like a, a husky voiced woman that's not a, that's not a sign well, of, yeah no it's true i mean scarlett johansson will tell you yeah this, exactly but like the, exactly but like i don't know i mean that's how i always read it is like but i mean i guess you could read it more than one way they they leave it ambiguous yeah. but i always kind of that's how i always thought of it um i i i almost view it as like Tony Lung has zero relationships of any kind in Buenos Aires outside of Leslie Chung. Um, And then he gets one more and it's not a sexual relationship, but it is still a healthy one. And it is this sort of alternative, even if it's not like in some ways, in some ways, if all of Wong Kar Wai's movies are about the impossibility of love, 
like maybe the best relationship is the one that has no potential for love in it. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's and that maybe is the maybe that's how he meant it. I mean, I I like that it's that that is yeah. an equally uh, valid I mean, kind of way is, to read it those. It is scenes. definitely. I mean, like it is a movie. As you watch it, it is. It does know that you are going to ask, is this going towards a romantic relationship? Sure. Um, that that is that is definitely an element that it is playing with. Um, also, an element it is playing with is the absolutely beautiful uh, scenes in them in the street of them playing soccer, which are just like yeah. I don't even necessarily have like oh yes, and this is why this is important in this movie. It's just when I think about how beautiful this movie is, those scenes with the sun or the scene with uh, I think it's is I I can't remember if it's Tony Chung kneeling on the rooftop and Leslie Chung sort of lies down on top of him or if it's the other way around but that is like the most beautiful image I've ever seen in any movie ever basically (laughs) yeah yeah no I mean it's it's full of staggering images but it's 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 not as like uh I don't want to say falling fallen angels is distracting but it's not it's not quite as in your face no no definitely not it doesn't it's like fallen angels it's uh, fallen angels is almost good that it is it, it is so aggressive with its style because if it wasn't and it was just expecting the characters and story to carry it, you'd be <laughs> yeah, like, what the fuck right. is happening? Yeah, no, no. Um, that is an exercise in style first and foremost. And Happy Together is, yeah, primarily an emotional character film that just happens to have, you know, crazy good cinematography. <laughs> and then I think, I think also, you know, when you are talking about this approach, it's like, you know, we did an episode on Mike Lee. Um, who similarly starts doesn't necessarily have the same approach as Wong Kar Wai, but they both no. have this, a similar approach in that they both start a project not knowing where it's going to end up. Um, yeah. And that is opening yourself up to absolutely beautiful fits of inspiration and spontaneity and the joy of the human spirit. And it's also opening yourself up to just like, sometimes stuff doesn't all come together. And like, I totally believe that Sometimes you start a project and then it's just sort of like a series of things happens and it's fallen angels. And then sometimes you start a project and then it just sort of happens to come together as happy together. And obviously it also comes together that way in the editing room. Cause this is another film that was shot for over an extremely long period of time. Um, you know what? One thing I got to say uh, is that a lot of Wong Kar Wai films, because they're cobbled together out of these much longer shoots with a lot of strands that don't wind up in the films, I, I I have access so often with these like Criterion releases and earlier releases that have like deleted scenes and you know I I don't always feel the same curiosity to to see the abandoned threads of these no, it's like true. you know like and like when people talk about well you know they did have sex and in the mood for love I've I've got the footage <laughs> it's like well but they didn't in the version I saw right like, or they didn't like you know or like um. You know the backstories for Bridget Lynn's character in Chunking Express, or the the the, the fact that like I, I guess there's some there's some stuff with Leslie Chunk's character, you know, being thought of as a, a drug addict. And maybe I don't know if they shot that stuff, but like like I don't there like sometimes that complicates the matter to 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 get this extra information. Give that's gonna be how it plays for you because I try to leave that stuff out. No, even though it's kind of it's cool that it's preserved, but it's like that's not the movie I like. Yeah, I I started watching some for Chunking Express and then quickly did not do that for any others because I'm just, I, uh, though I, I did watch the documentary Buenos Aires Zero Degree, which has a 
fair amount of deleted footage. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it doesn't really interest me. I think it is like, it, it, you know, it is like, uh, in, in one way, it's the thing we talked about with like negative space where it's the fact that that's not on screen is the thing that makes it important and the thing that makes it work. Um, and it's also sort of like a Mike Lee thing where you, there are so many good performances in that movie because every actor is kind of like convinced they're the lead, <laughs> you know, right, like no right, actor right. is showing up being like, all right, I just got to be there for two days. And then, you know, I just got to nail these two days and then I can go and, you know, do my next thing or whatever. Everyone at, everyone there is there to explore their character and stuff. And if, and if some of that exploration happens to, in front of a camera that's rolling, like, cool, but that's not necessary for the, the way it works inside the movie. And it's very clear that, again, William Chang, as the, as the editor as well as the art director, like, <laughs> absolutely insane work in this movie, that, uh, that hotel room that they're stuck in. It's not just William Chang is the most, like, designing, like, the most glamorous, glorious, like, dresses and in the mood for love and that red curtain in that hotel and stuff like that. It is also just, like, the seedy... Uh, beauty of the hotel in Buenos Aires is just out of control. Um, but like it is, you you do need, if you have someone who is capable of finding a finished product within all of that footage, like the, the footage that's cut still benefits the movie from existing. It just doesn't need to be seen for that. In fact, it, 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 it benefits it more when it's not seen. Yeah. Yeah, I know that Werner Herzog, you know, he might just be like talking hyperbolically because that's his job. But I mean, I know he talks <laughs> about destroying the the outtakes of his films when he's done because, a, uh, what is it, like a carpenter doesn't retain his shavings or something like that. Sure. It. Like, but, you know, I, I it's, it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, you could probably make some pretty interesting films from the raw footage that, ha- that don't look anything like Happy Together or Chunking Express or In the Mood for Love. But, I mean, I don't know. It's... It's it's interesting. Like I, you sometimes wonder because of the way most films have to be made on a schedule, and uh, with a script and with like a you know release date sometimes kind of in place. Like if if directors if were, were more often like not uh, held to those things, like how many more films would be created this way? It's hard to say because the fact that he's his own producer uh, and can have these lengthy production and post production uh, periods. I mean, it's essential to his creative output. But then again, one of his best films was knocked out in a lark way, like Chunking Express. Right. So you never know. Like, would his films, could he make another film if he had to make it under the gun? Or is does he benefit from always having as much time as possible? Right. I, I also, and, and this is, I, again, did not read enough interviews or behind the scenes material, documentaries, whatever, to know the answer to this. <laughs> I think I have to imagine another aspect of this is, the, to a certain extent, for a while there, these actors were tolerating this process. Like, everyone who was in Ashes of Time went on to be in a further Wong Kar Wai movie, which has to speak to uh, uh, something else that is sort of, I guess, in a broader cinematic conversation now, which is the uh, sort of the debate between, like, the, uh, uh, you know, Taskmaster... Uh, uh, sort of dictator on set, a uh, single-minded genius, and the sort of collaborator, uh, friendly, let's have a good time shooting this thing kind of uh, artist or whatever. You know, like the 
the, the 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 famous stories of like well you know Alfred Hitchcock viewed actors like cattle and then the famous story of like well Soderbergh got a second shot at his career because everyone loved working with him um, and I have to wonder which Wong Kar Wai is because is it <laughs> is it a nightmare working for Wong Kar Wai because you're just like have no idea where anything is going or do people love working for Wong Kar Wai and that's the reason why people tolerate his process I think. I mean, uh, from what I understand, I mean, I know actors, you know, have had some fights with him and certainly Chris Doyle, like, didn't want to do like 150 takes of something when they thought, he, you know, they got it by now. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm sure it's a very frustrating process because, you know, if things go on for like months or years, <laughs> I mean, that that suggests that someone doesn't know what they're doing and there's no, you know, there's a chance that it will be a fiasco at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if it's just when they see the final product and they get all these glowing critical notices and I'm like, oh, I'll sign up for more of that because now we all look like geniuses. But, you know, in the moment, I'm sure it's terribly frustrating. So you think you think it's a it's just sort of a career. It's the same way that it's for a while there, certainly not now, for a while there, every actress who worked with Woody Allen got nominated for an Academy Award. So they're just like, well, I better be in Woody Allen movies. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of them, other than Diane Keaton and Mia Farrow, you know, were not like, I mean, and Judy Davis. I mean, a lot of those Woody Allen actresses, you know, were not like recurring things. But he's also somebody that, I mean, the short version, I mean, he's somebody that like gives them a script and does not really get in their way. I see. You know, like he's not a, he's not a hands-on director. Right. I guess, um, I guess, I guess the better example would be David O. Russell, who does work with a lot of the same actors over and over again. And is a nightmare But who person. is a terror. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, you look at like people like Robert Altman or, you know, like, you know, that seem to give actors a lot of freedom or like, but then, you know, there's all different approaches. I, one car, why I don't know how much he fusses with people's performances i mean that that stuff is not really clear from the material we get as far as like his working process i assume you know if you're doing you know days and days and days of a scene that you're going to try some variations on things i mean actors can probably get burnt out on the material too i mean if it's if it's that many takes of things but um you know i mean someone like nora jones i mean he's also working with a lot of people that are not like normally actors you know, like Fei Wong never acted before. I mean, like, you know, like these are people that are learning in a very quirky way how to be in a movie. So so um, clearly he must have some sort of emotional intelligence in order to work with people like that. Though not that Nora Jones gives a great performance, but Fei Wong does. Like, yeah, he must have some sort of I'm, I'm like, I'm just I, I am just curious because I think when we talk about uh when we talk about film as an art and we talk about directors specifically as the artists, um, we can sort of flatten everything into like, they had this career cause this was the series of choices they made. And where there's like a lot of other things like that, it's like, Oh, the only reason the movie's that good is cause of this other thing that wasn't a creative choice. It was just, this is how they are, or this is a financial well, consideration or whatever. So I am always interested in directors. Like how, did what we see on screen affect by just what you are like as a person and working with you? And so I'm, and when I'm, when I'm work when you read stuff about Wong Kar Wai, it seems like it, it could go either way because it seems like in life, he's very sort of a gentle 
Like he wears his sunglasses or whatever, but he doesn't seem like a like a crazy bastard making grand statements about how great he is or anything. He's not like a no. I'm a I'm a great artist, you have to listen to me kind of a person. No, but at the same time, I don't think directors whether they adopt the persona of a general or not in the public, I mean they have to be generals when they're running a a ship that size. And to be the producer and director, you know, you are the boss. I mean, and you have to you have to make decisions <laughs> or not. If in the case if you're taking two years to make a movie, <laughs> I mean, you, you make them less. But I think, um, I don't know. I mean, this, this is the thing with like, you know, talking about like directors as the, as the, as the uh, sole author of a movie. It's always very tricky. And I mean, this is something I talk about with Jim, with uh, David Cronenberg, because with David Cronenberg, we were talking about a consistent uh, body of work. We're also talking about a filmmaker that always has the same editor, Ron Sanders, always has the same production designer, Carol Spear, always has the same DP, you know, always has the same composer. So if you have a consistent feel, there's a lot of things going on that are consistent that are not David Cronenberg. I mean, he, he's writing and directing it, but there's all these other elements that you can take for granted that are also informing that consistency. You know, in Wong Kar Wai, I mean, you have people like William Chang or you have people like Chris Doyle who, um, you know, they, they play an important part in like these things. Like if you, if you had like those two teaming up with a different writer director, I, it, it probably would not feel like Wong Kar Wai, but if you, if you put t- Tony Lung in, you get Chris Doyle to shoot it, you get another person, um, to direct it. I mean, you might get something that feels like it. It's, there's, it's 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 a weird alchemy yeah you know, di- direction that's the thing yeah it's despite being a host of a podcast called director's club I, I i always try to push back a little bit against the idea of the director is the sole artist or whatever um yeah this might be actually if do you, is there anything more you have to say about happy together no no we can move on to that, the movie I, well i think that might be a good uh uh, a good segue to briefly talk about away with words which is oh, yeah, a yeah, 1999 yeah. feature film directed by christopher doyle um, which if I were to describe what happens in it to you and the general structure and the sensibility and the script and the tone, um, you would say, oh, it's a Wong Kar Wai movie. Um, it is about a, uh, I, you know, I watched this back in June and I'm now I'm struggling with the details about where the country, the man is from, um, uh, I, was it was an English guy or Australian? No, well, I can't the, remember. The, the owner of the bar is is an Australian gay man, um, yeah. which is very funny that Christopher Doyle, a a, a notorious sort of ladies man, uh, sort yeah. of put his him his self insert and made him gay. I think that's sort of shows yeah. Christopher Doyle's sense of humor. Um, but the guy who is sort of living at the bar. Oh, I can't remember, and I I saw it like more recently than yeah, you. But, but at any yeah. rate, he comes from another country. He does not speak Cantonese. Um, and he sort of, I forget why he even comes to the country, but he's just sort of living in this bar. And there's this sort of just wacky characters sort of existing around him. And they have this strange friendship. And there's this, there's the, all of the, there's the sense of solitude. There's the isolation. There's the um, voiceover. voiceover. On the, <laughs> there's the quirky sense of humor. There's, um, it comes right after Happy Together, and it's a lot about the gay culture in, I guess it takes place in Hong Kong. I can't recall um, yeah. exactly what country the movie takes place in. And it's terrible. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not terrible. It's watchable. It's just like, it's so not a Wong Kar Wai movie. 
Yeah, no, it looks great and it's got personality to it, but it it feels like it feels like a, a Wong Kar Wai film that doesn't work somehow. Like it feels like something 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 misfired some somewhere deep inside. Well, and, <laughs> like it doesn't... And, and to be clear, Wong Kar Wai had no involvement in this. He's not a producer, I don't think, or anything. But it, it but it feels superficially like a Wong Kar Wai right. film. It feels like this movie got funded because Christopher Doyle convinced someone that he could do it <laughs> yeah um and and it's co-written by tony Raines, who is like you know the critic that like you know maybe was most associated with like pushing the idea of Wong Kar Wai as a great filmmaker oh, really? in the in the british uh press in you know like fi- film pre- like he's a major uh film director so yeah it'd be like um like if Alan Jones co-wrote a, um, a, a Dario Argento-ish seeming thriller with the cameraman from Suspiria, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> it's, you, you know, know it's, honestly what my imagination, again, this is not something I read interviews and actually know the backstory of my imagination is just, Hey, there's a vacuum. Wong Kar Wai is hot and he resolutely refuses to make Wong Kar Wai movies at a good clip. And, and Christopher Doyle's like, I can crank out a Wong Kar Wai movie. I've been there. I know how it works. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's always interesting when DPs like, you know, become directors and they show, you know, like Gordon Willis made a film called Windows and it's like, it looks great Mm -hmm. and it's not uninteresting, but it's like, well, there's a reason like he only made the one movie. And I just like, that's not what I do. And you you said it looks, you said that away with words looks great. And to me, it, it has a lot of striking shots in it and none of them really mean anything. It is, right. it, it, yeah. it, it has the most, it is one of those things where it's just like, these are all the ideas he ever had that did make it into another movie that he put into this one. There's a whole lot of the, I don't forget what you call it, but it's just like everywhere in nineties music videos, that kind of like light leak kind of flash, uh, when a speed changes yeah. or something. I, I don't know the exact details of why that happens or what it's called, but I'm sure it has a technical term because it was all over nineties fashion shoots and music videos. And I think it's in a few Wong Kar Wai there might be a moment here, there, and happy together where it happens, um, but uh, it's but it's all over away with words, and it's just this thing where it really does feel like someone just they didn't have the sauce, they didn't have the thing that makes a Wong Kar Wai movie, and it should put to bed anyone who says Christopher Doyle was the reason those movies were good. Um, clearly, no, there's like it... so many other important elements that were not present here. Yeah, no, it, it shows you what he can bring to a Wong Kar Wai project, which, you know, is a lot of energy, a lot of striking images, but that's it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I mean, you think about all the great directors of photography, like Vilmos Zygmunt or, you know, uh, Gordon Willis or Vittorio Storaro, and you sometimes wonder, like, why couldn't they direct films if they, if, if the camera is the, you know, the, the the crucial thing like what what's keeping them right. from becoming great filmmakers and it's like i don't know if it's easy to put into words or you know not, not even trying to pun on the title of away with words but like you know the you know that seldom happens i mean haxel haskell wexler i mean the, roger you know, deakins is arguably a bigger name than a lot of the directors he works with yeah i mean that happens sometimes yeah. you know but you know it doesn't mean that they can make the jump to direct. I mean, I'm trying to think of, of real obvious um, examples of a, of a famous DP becoming a, uh, a prominent director. Um, 
I'm drawing a blank. I mean, Sven Nikvist never did it. I mean, but anyway, Nicholas like, Rogue shot the uh... Nicholas Rogue would be the one. Yeah, yeah Nicholas Ro- Nicholas Rogue would be one. Um, so there are there are cases where that happens, but it's it's really uncommon. So anyway, that's all I wanted to bring away with words is because it is interesting in contrast to the work of Wong Kar Wai, especially in this string of Wong Kar Wai movies that were like the peak of his artistic powers. You have something that is watchable, but not much more than that. Right. Um, yeah, no, no. And it, it, it's, and it, it, it almost feels like, yeah, like, like the PS to the style of nineties Wong Kar Wai. Like here's, here's like a little afterthought, like, like this, because the style of Wong Kar Wai from In the Mood for Love on doesn't feel like what Away with Words is kind of referencing. Yeah. So I honestly like I feel a little bad getting to In the Mood for Love in the typical director's club form. This should be the movie we spend the most time talking on. And I honestly mm-hmm. feel like, what do I have to add? This is like one of the most analyzed films that has happened in the past, you know, since it came out. And well. I, well, I can say, I mean, and I don't really have, like, I, I mean, I don't have a lot of notes on it either. I mean, because, and we've been referencing it off yeah, and on this true. entire time. But what I would say, I mean, I mean, when I saw it, um, I saw it in the theater when it came out in New York, and I was lukewarm on it the first time I saw it because I was expecting the fireworks of Happy Together, Fallen Angels, and Chunking Express, and to have this kind of restrained, quasi-brief encounter kind of uh age of innocence kind of thing i i didn't dislike it but i was like okay well it looks great but i i don't know this is not what i go to wong kar wai films for this is another feeling and then the second time i saw it i'm like okay well but i like this a lot in its own way it's just not what i thought of um when i thought of wong kar wai in the 90s um and it's interesting. I mean, I talked with this um, with, with Jim a little bit about it on a director's club that we did about f- favorite films and like how it is uh, kind of wild to experience, you know, a film that gets talked about like Tokyo Story or Vertigo or Citizen Kane, like as a new release, you know, and then it becomes part of like the official canon of like these are the important films in the history of, of movies. Um, I don't know if know, that I, has happened in my life as a as a serious viewer of film which i would say probably started around 20 2005 2006 i can't think of any movie that's come out in that period of time maybe the master um that gets maybe. talked about that way but well but even with paul thomas anderson i think i think there will be blood is probably the one that will make those kind of lists whether or not it's mm. better or worse than the master i think that that's kind of where the consensus that's interesting at least at least now i, I, I mean i'm not saying that that would be my preference i'm just saying i think that but it, i mean it's weird to me that yeah i mean it's weird to me that vertigo is the is the hitchcock film or that maholland drive is the is the david lynch film yeah, i, I, mean, I the, will agree the, on both of those counts but i always feel like the outlier there <laughs> no but i mean i kind of get it and i kind i mean well I mean that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, but yeah. like um but like yeah, in the mood for love for whatever it's you know it, it, it had it is now kind of like it, it kind of stands apart from Wong Kar-wai's filmography as like, you know, the, one of the major films in world cinema. And it, it it feels like such a I mean it feels like a an extension of the of the feelings of 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 days of being wild. It's not like coming totally out of the blue, but it is a um you know, uh, I, I'm I'm trying to think why that film means so much more to people than 
some of the others. And I guess because it's so calm and focused and not frenzied or busy the way some of his other films are. Like, I get why there's something very approachable about it, even though, you know, I showed it to somebody recently that had no preconceptions about Wong Kar Wai. And this was the one they struggled the most with. But I, I think it might be because the situation is so frustrating in terms of our expectations about what a romance is like that kind of repressed, like, you know, you know, you go ahead. No, like don't take my umbrella. Like that, that, that those kind of proprieties, you know, culturally we're not in that place now. And so it feels like a little bit more alien. And even just the notion of would a couple play act their spouses having the affair rather than confront them, rather than, you know, rather than even acknowledge their own affair, like to always be playing these games, it's a very writerly conceit. Um, which is you know, which does, is not out of place in the filmography of Wong Kar Wai, but does feel uh, does feel very conspicuous in this film. Yeah, I mean, compared to Happy Together, which is also, I mean, a written thing, and these are you know character tropes we've seen in other kind of romantic pictures. You know, in the mood for love is yeah. I mean, it it's not based on a novel or anything, but it feels like very novelish. I, I find one of the most... The thing about In the Mood for Love is, again, there's that negative space. Obviously, in this case, the frame, almost every shot of this movie is about what is and isn't in the frame. The most famous is that the the, the, the cheating spouses are not ever seen, um, mm-hmm. other than you see the back of one of their heads. Back of their heads, um, yeah. But you never see their faces. But also, uh, the you get a lot of sort of uh, objects in the foreground obstructing things. You get the a lot of the shot that sort of dominates 2046 and the Grandmaster. Um, and I can't recall. I think Blueberry Nights is a little more opened up of the like slow lateral camera movement where there's an un... You can't tell what's in front of the camera, but like sometimes it's made of glass and it causes a bunch of reflections and refractions of light in an interesting way that yeah, the camera yeah, yeah. like glides past and... But it is it is all about the characters being pushed to the edges of frame. But like to me, the most interesting example of the negative space is more in the days of being wild way of the elliptical editing, where you never see them decide to start acting it out. They just start acting it out, and it's, it's even the even after you get the even after once you figure out what they're doing, there are several moments where it's dizzying because you'll like lean in and you're like, okay, well this is a movie that has these jump cuts where like someone talks about, I, uh, you know, you see someone making sesame syrup intending to give it to him. And then the next scene, he is thanking her for the sesame syrup. You never, you know, like you see these jump cuts where if you're not paying attention to that, her dresses change and everything. Um, yeah. you don't know that the time has changed. Uh, and so, you constantly think and now time has jumped and they have in fact fallen in love with each other and they are in fact, and then it's switched out from you again. And it's like, it's, it's maddening. It's so like that to me is uh, more interesting than the mise-en-scene or anything is like, I, even after having seen this six times or whatever, every single time I get to a point where they're like, I, I kind of forget the exact moment that they start discussing needing to purposefully say we're not going to be like them because when it starts off they're just sort of discussing things they're not really even talking about the possibility of them falling in love with each other because they're both too upset and shocked for that to even be in a thought Mm -hmm. and every time i think that 
that scene comes at a different point in the movie because it seems like they're having a conversation about one thing and then someone corrects something they say. It's like, no, my husband wouldn't say that. And I'm like, oh my God, I fell for it again. Like, uh, this is a movie that like, there are great movies made that you just take a little chunk off of this and polish it down. And it's like, suddenly you have certified copy and that's a like <laughs> right. fantastic film. And that entire movie is based off of a single aspect of this movie. Just like, well, what if we made a movie out of that? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't, I, I don't know if the directors have said like specifically like this is exists only as an in the mood for love homage, or if it's, they don't admit that it's a, an influence or what, but like, that's what that movie is. Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, Kiristami definitely would have been aware of oh, Wong Kar Wai. Yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, I think everyone's aware of *In the Mood for Love*. Yeah, um, so like that to me is just the fascinating thing about this movie is that the story it's telling, and this is important later when we talk about *2046*. The story it's telling is so simplistic, and especially because it does have all of those um, other. You know, because it is brief encounters, because it is Age of Innocence, because it it because it does have that uh, uh, it has it has those precursors and all of the you know um, costume dramas and stuff where the r- proprietary rules of society let two people who fall in love not be able to do anything about it. It's a very common trope that everyone can instantly see what's happening, and not only that, they can instantly see the potential for it happening. And they know the title is In the Mood for Love, and they know that's going to happen. And so the movie is about this anticipation that it never lets you even pay off. It never even gets to the brief encounter point where they're about to kiss and they might not get, like... um, And I think the only reason it's able to do these really complicated games with uh, audience identification and with really uh, sort of dizzying jumps in time and obscuring what we see and if you don't pay attention to the characters last names and you just hear mr chan you'll be confused about who's being talked about and that's intentional um like the only reason it's all of those things work as well as they do is because they are all built on the simplest backbone possible um yeah and we also fill in like this is the thing like watching it again i don't have many times i've seen i've seen it a lot um you fill in the the step that's missing so that when you remember it, you you might you might have a more conventional story in your head than what you actually get. Because I watch it again, and I'm like it it flies along through all the beats that I know, but I I misremember there being more connective tissue, you know, than there actually is in the movie. Yeah. As far as like the evolving nature of that relationship, or just like how brazen the cheating spouses are, where they're like literally taking vacations together. And giving yeah. gifts that the other has, like their next door neighbor had, like it's it's almost cruel what they're doing. Like they don't care if they get caught because they know that nothing's going to happen. Like it's like they know that their spouse is well enough that even if we do get caught, fuck them. Like what are they going to do about it? Yeah, but it also doesn't build towards a dra- dramatic climax at the end, like the the except, departure. Except that scene where you think it does until you see Tony Long's face. Where yeah. you think that she's finally, uh, and obviously that's the first time you see it, and then you remember that that never happens in the movie. But like, it's still a, a absolutely incredible scene. It is, but it's yeah, it's more it's more complicated than <laughs> than a conventional romantic picture. Yeah. And then you have all of this, like like they could have connected again, but they they don't. And then 
and then that that crazy ending with in Cambodia yeah. <laughs> like you know like it's it it shouldn't and it probably doesn't feel as satisfying to a mass audience than if they had a conventional emotional payoff but this is what this what this is what kind of gives it a certain kind of um like intellectually interesting thing that I think critics make, you know, like it, it's a, it's a romance film for like people that like to analyze and think about ro- like the structure of a romance film. Right. Um, so it, it's, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's definitely the film that's probably been scrutinized the most elsewhere of everything that we're talking about. But. So the funny thing is, um, I think that it is very purposefully, ambiguous about what all they did in that hotel Mm -hmm. right like he sees the child maybe it's him maybe it's not um the funny thing is i've read multiple writings about this movie from different writers and different critics and stuff like that and people will just talk about the film as as a work of art and they will just input their own interpretation and then state it as fact they will say the relationship that's never consummated or he sees that he, you know, and, and realizes that that's his child. <laughs> like I've seen multiple, like to the point where the first, I was just reading stuff before I watched it again for prep for it. And I'm like, I see this movie like five times. Did I not pick up on that? Or cause, cause someone stated with absolute certainty, something that I think is ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. That it is ambiguous and people remember things this very lost highway the way that they you know not necessarily the way they happened yeah (laughs) yeah um i also just i i think uh there (laughs) i i really fall for the sort of little poetic inner title like flourishes um that happen at the end at the towards the end and at the beginning of the movie it makes me think of uh what was the Fassbender movie that just opens on a quote that's just like before you even know anything about the movie? There's just, I think I think it's Ali Fear Eats the Soul. Um, it might be I can't remember. It just it just opens on something that's like love isn't fun or something. So it's more that, deep than that. But it's like this it applies to almost all of them. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But it's like it's like this. There's this movie I watched where it was just like before the credits even started, there was just this like gut punch. I'm like, oh god, what is gonna happen? It's not in the year of 13 moons, is it? No, it isn't that one. That one was a different yeah. kind of gut punch. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, but in this, I think, and a lot of times, Wong Kar Wai's sort of little poetic flourishes, especially characters sort of talking in vague kind of platitudes about like the way things are, like in Ashes of Time or in... Uh, I guess in 2046, it's hard, it's hard for me to remember 246 sometimes, but definitely in the Grandmaster, a lot of that stuff, <laughs> I always just sort of like cock my head and I'm like, am I supposed to be getting anything out of this? Or am I just like, um, what's the, oh, in, in Noah Baumbach's Mistress America, the, it, before mm. you hear, see anything, it opens with, she said, aren't all stories revenge stories? And I was like, no, that's not right. That's, that's what I always feel like watching these movies sometimes. And not just Wong Kar Wai. There's a lot of movies that are sort of openly meditative and ponderous, and they get philosophical. And I, my reaction as an audience member is almost like, no, that's not true. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I'm very bad at receiving that. But um, the opening thing about looking at it like a dusty window, or I forget the exact line, 
Um, I think it's really good and, and really evocative and really puts me in the mood for the movie. And then, a f- and then a couple sentences that literally just repeat in my head all the time whenever I'm like just going on old memories or whatever. Like it's just stuck in my brain. It just informs the way I literally perceive my own life is that era has passed. Nothing that belonged to it exists anymore. Um, yeah, well, I, again, like we mentioned, you know, that the, the whole notion of China and the handover of Hong Kong. Right. And I can't tell how much is Wong Kar Wai after the fact intellectualizing or how much of this is critics searching for political readings for films that are not overtly political, but like the notion of um, preserving the culture that is in, in danger of being erased. I mean, Hong Kong is a kind of situation where it's it's always kind of regenerating. I mean, you talk about the locations of Chungking Express already being long gone because it's a film, it's a it's a community, or it's a, it's a city that's always evolving, always changing. New York is that way too, which is why it's a great location for the, you know, my, my Blueberry Nights at first. It's like the, the, things are always changing. And I think that In the Mood for Love is definitely trying to preserve and capture a memory of the past that is no longer there. But at the and... same time, it's almost like a provocation because Wong Kar Wai's like whole filmography is about living in that era. And it's like it, nothing that belonged to exist anymore. It's like, it, it's, it's so vivid and alive in all of his movies. It's almost like, and especially that era has passed. Nothing that belonged to it exists anymore. And then the next scene is her going to his hotel room and smoking a cigarette and leaving the lipstick it's like it it automatically contradicts itself and and it's it is both a very final uh definitive statement that you can take as fact and also it could be what he is telling himself in order to move on um yeah that's a good point no i'd agree with so that so there's so there's it's like the idea of the 60s are dead and everything from it is is gone forever it's like i don't I, I don't think you make these movies if you believe that. Like, I think, I think you, if you find them, uni, you know, if you find the universal truths in these characters and you find that you are exploring humanity and stuff through looking at the world through your parents' eyes, uh, you know, like the characters in Days of Being Wild and uh, In the Mood for Love in 2046, there are kind of his parents' age and stuff uh, mm-hmm. specifically. It uh, Like, I it's, it's, it's it's almost uh, provocative, and I and that's kind of the reason why it sticks in my head is I'll think about like a friend that I no longer talk to and may never reconnect to, and I the phrase the phrase is that era has passed, nothing that belongs to it exists anymore will pop into my head, and I'll go, you're right, that's done, I should just move on, and then instantly I'll be like, but that, I don't think that's true. I think we could, you know, like uh, it's just well, do you, I don't know. Well, do you think? I mean, when we talk about. Like a, like a filmmaker like Terrence Davies making a film like Long Day Closes or a filmmaker like Woody Allen making Radio Days or a filmmaker like Fellini making Amarcord or a filmmaker like Wong Kar Wai making In Mood for Love. Um, are they are they doing something like similar in trying to preserve like a romanticized version of like their parents uh time as young adults i mean like is it is it a different thing than is a very wide leap but is this a different thing than something like stranger things trying to create stories that with a nostalgia built into it so that you're both following stories and characters but you're also experiencing some kind of glow of like 
when things were simpler because you were a child. Well, I think I um, think I think the the movies that you all listed are filmmakers that are specifically trying to access emotional truths of their memories and not trying to um say but like it, they're autobiographical emotional truths. They're not I grew up loving 80s movies cuz I don't I don't I don't know the I, I, I feel like when you look at Stranger Things, what you're seeing is the culture of the 80s and how it feels, but you're not seeing the memories of the 80s and how they feel. And it feels like a different thing. Like if Radio, yeah, no, if think, radio Days yeah. took place inside of like a world that resembled The Shadow or The Lone Ranger or something, that would be the equivalent of Stranger Things. Well, all right. Well, like something like Days and Confused or American Graffiti, like things that that give you one version of like, teenage experience but with the culture and fashion and music you know of the past uh, is that is that is that kind of nostalgia and that kind of um you know escape from contemporary uh, is is Wong Kar Wai doing anything similar yeah absolutely I mean the, the he makes the most beautiful like just the the costume design and in, in the mood for love is just like staggering and the idea that she has like these 62 fabulous like dresses and just every single one of them fits her like a glove and she just looks like a model and her hair is perfect every day except she lives in you know she sublets a room inside of an apart a small apartment is like is preposterous it is it is a totally (laughs) romanticized view of um and not, I mean, and he's not only interested in making things beautiful and nice. He's also examining the sort of the social con- uh, constructs of the time that were that were you know choking her. That's why like all those high colored dresses are so amazing in the mood for love because she's she looks like a model, but she also looks kind of like preserved, like she looks like she can't live and breathe um, because she has to be so beautiful and like. When when someone looks that glamorous, then all of a sudden there's almost a tension. Like, what would happen if a hair went out of place? Uh, in the way that like Fei Wong's sexiness in Chungking Express is based on the idea of her being a little sloppy and messy or whatever. Um, right, right. So like, I'm not saying he's just trying to make it sound, but like, this is absolutely the the same thing. Of there is something that existed in the '60s that no longer exists anymore that I miss, and I am. Uh, I'm a, you know, I'm an adult and I think strongly about these things. So there's other things about the 60s. It's not, um, it's not like in Stranger Things, uh, a character comes out as gay and everyone's like, that's cool. We accept you because it's actually 2018 and it would be fucked up if we all just started saying slurs, even though every 80s movie you've ever seen has the fat word fag in it. Like, right, <laughs> like, right. It's like, that's a different thing. That's, that is now you're selling me something. Um, Whereas, yeah, uh, I don't, I don't feel like I'm being sold something by Wong Kar Wai. He's exploring something personal. I know, and then I, I mean, I agree with all those points. I just, I think I threw Stranger Things out as an example of like something that is like what I, I see as like, like I mean, the most, the most mainstream like exercise in nostalgia of the current, sure. of the current moment, um, and like we kind of think about like you know baby boomers. There's, a, there's actually be... a very good TV show also streaming on Hulu called Pen Fifteen, um, mm-hmm. where these two thirty-year-old uh, women play fifteen-year-old girls uh, in in middle in I think they're middle school, and every other 
child character is played by someone who's the actual correct age. And that is extremely like, these are all of our personal memories of the late nineties and things like that. And it doesn't feel like strange. It's like, it feels distinct from stranger things in a, in a way that is like, you can see the distinction in what stranger things doesn't do. Um, but at any rate, well, well, yeah, but, but just like, I mean, when, when we talk about in the mood for love being the canonized, Wong Kar Wai film and it's being assessed by a lot of well I mean I don't know that like the critics that are giving it that those accolades are necessarily all baby boomers and certainly most of them would not have any you know personal connection to 1960s Hong Kong it would all be very exotic to them but I mean you know as far as like what makes this the transcendent work in a way that they don't see that in Happy Together or Chunking Express um, I and I wonder if it's just the austerity of it too, because I think sometimes I think the austerity people... is, is more. It's not. A, it, I don't think the critical reception is to the nostalgia, um, but I think you're onto something with the austerity. And I'm sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> well, no, no, because, because, because I think about like um, you know the reception that Paul Schrader's first Reformed got, you know, you know, and that's a film that you know, almost fetishizes austerity because it's Paul Schrader. I mean, that's, you know, he, he wrote a literal book on Ozu and Dreyer and Brisson. So it's like, that's always been kind of thing that fascinates him. But people responded to that in a way that they hadn't responded to a, to a Paul Schrader movie in like a decade or more. Um, is it just because there's, there's so, there's so little, th- like you project so much on it because it's so minimalist. Um, but I don't know that, I don't know that a mass audience is always responding to minimalism. So I think it's something that critics tend to gravitate towards. Yeah, I think I, I think the question is, was this actually uh was this actually embraced by a mass audience? No. No, I don't think it was a success like, uh, I, even um to the degree that certainly the degree the grandmaster was. So when you look at the top 10 sight and sound films, uh mm-hmm. Uh, I can't access them at the moment, but we mentioned Tokyo Story, Vertigo. Like, which of these were embraced by mainstream audiences and which weren't? Um, that's tough to say. I don't know what the reception was to something like Tokyo Story at the time. I mean, I don't think that would have been received as an art film in Japan, but I would have to look it up. I mean, Because Tokyo Susan Story Kane... is like a very austere film as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think... I mean, yeah, I think I think something like Vertigo, which it's a whole other conversation, you know, as far as In the Mood for Love and Wong Kar Wai saying that he was influenced by Vertigo. All right. So um, I have the top I have the top 10 right here. OK, so we have okay. Vertigo, which is a film that it was. I don't think that was beloved when it came out. Right. Uh, quite far from it. Yeah. yeah. OK, we have Citizen Kane, a movie that was not really beloved when it came out. No. OK, we have Tokyo Story. Um if that was a mainstream hit in Japan, I it seems surprising for me just because it is so challenging, but it might just be a whole different cultural thing in 1953 Japan. So um, yeah. we have Rules of the Game, probably not a mainstream hit. Not a, no, no. Actually, they uh, quite controversial and denounced in its day. All right. Sunrise, a song of two humans. Critically respected oddity for the time. I think it might have been like nominated for an award for like, you know, it's interesting art, but I, yeah, audiences were not like, you know, overly thrilled with Sunrise. All right. Now, of course, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey probably made a ton of money because of just as, as a special effects extravaganza. Yeah, but it was definitely like a mixed reception 
like it was not universally beloved um even though it was a, a definitely a blockbuster for sure uh, the searchers by john ford it was a big john ford uh john wayne western but it was also yeah no that was a hit um uh, man with a movie camera definitely not passion of joan of arc i'm gonna go ahead and say no no eight and a half yeah so anyway <laughs> so so what what we're getting at is like these these are films that you know do something with form or theme that excites the people that think about form and theme yes um and in the mood for love is a film that is exciting in terms of form and maybe in terms of theme but it's the fact that it is a tearjerker on some level also makes it a more commercial thing than something like passion of joan of arc or you know eight and a half but um yeah i, I it's I don't know. It's interesting that it's, you know, because I, I do feel like there's something kind of mannered about it in a way that s- certainly 90s Wong Kar Wai films don't feel to me. Um, maybe Fallen Angels is mannered in a different way. But like, um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's I feel like you're I, trying to get your you're trying to backdoor say that people who love in the mood for love are cowards and they should embrace a more challenging Wong Kar Wai movie like Days of Being Wild. I'm not saying that at all. I think it's a great movie. I think it's just interesting that it, like, what separates it from the rest of the Wong Kar Wai films no, that surround yeah. it. Absol- absolutely. That there, it does stand alone, um, despite the fact that all of his films come together in some way or another. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about 2046, because I know this is one that you don't really respond to, and I'm curious to hear a little bit more about right. what what doesn't work for you I just, about it if i could just i really only need 90 seconds to talk about the follow which was a bmw short from 2001 oh yeah yeah um bmw funded a whole bunch of big art house filmmakers and just let them do whatever they want as long as clive owen was the driver of a specific model of bmw we talked about this in the last episode with tony scott tony scott did one and he sort of figured out the look that would go into uh man on fire and domino with it uh wong kar wai did one and to me there are things that I've always just took for granted uh, about my Blueberry Nights. Is like, oh, it didn't work because there's just a... Uh, and this is before I was really doing any research. I always just understood, like, my Blueberry Nights, you know, lost in translation. He's working with an all-English cast. It's, there's, just, there's, just not the, there's just not the delicacy and the sensibility and the... And the uh, you know, he just, he just couldn't do the thing he wants to do with this movie because of of the cultural differences. And that's why my blueberry night would, could never have worked. The follow totally works. All the performances are good. I really like, uh, Clive Owen as this kind of private detective type following around Adriana Lama, uh, Lima. Uh, and he's, he's talking about like the art of tailing someone, but clearly it's also about the art of not letting yourself get emotionally involved with someone. And it's about love. And it's just like a cool thing. And it's like, you watch it, and you can see it as if it was expanded, this could work as a segment inside of one of those episodic Fallen Angels, Chungking Express kind of Wong Kar Wai movies. Like if if he made a Chungking Express in America instead of making a, uh, I don't know what you would call my Blueberry Nights. I guess that's more of a uh, In the Mood for Love Happy I, Together. <laughs> uh, no, it's definitely, well, it, we'll get to that one. But, uh, but like, that I could see this working in there. I think all the performances are good and stuff. And then also, if you listen to interviews, Wong Kar Wai speaks fluent English. 
Um, he does. And, and, and this, you mentioned like Tony Scott, like trying out, you know, new things, uh, technically that he would bring to the feature films that he made in the wake of his BMW short. And I think that the follow, because it's the first thing he shot in, uh, CinemaScope that we've seen, I mean, Fallen Angels was retrofitted to be, uh, you know, in CinemaScope, but the, um, uh, 2046 would be the first feature that any of us would have seen at the time that were shot in the the wider aspect ratio, and that's something he's uh, getting comfortable working in in the follow. Which uh, yeah, I, I I do like it. I think it was jarring for me when it came out because um, it always has felt like a car commercial to me, no matter oh, how yeah. much art I find. No, and it, it absolutely is. And um, I I do like it. I do think it. You know, since we, again we talk about austerity compared to my Blueberry Nights, it is a more austere. <laughs> kind of a kind of film um and it is i do think of it as a film i mean in in a way that i don't think of his commercials and music videos as one car wide right. movies this does feel closer to that yeah um so anyway that's that um so for 2046 i feel like most of my complaints about this movie are pretty banal and and not too interesting what i really would like to ask you first thing off the bat mm. is yeah as someone who was not really following film culture at the time this movie came out and did not um, know anything about Wong Kar Wai really um, when this movie came out, mm-hmm. um, what was the what was the feeling or the anticipation for like when the word was he's doing a sequel to In the Mood for Love came out? Because that's I mean, I don't know if In the Mood for Love's reputation built gradually or if it was instantly like this is one of the greatest films of all time. But like I would imagine uh, In the Mood for Love is a movie that does not merit or does not feel like it needs any follow up in any way. It is such a complete thing. I don't think any of us thought it was coming as a sequel to In the Mood for Love because what I remember is that. Wong Kar Wai is making a science fiction movie, and I remember feeling like total dread <laughs> that, you know, like anytime I hear anyone like, oh, you know what they're doing next? Science fiction. Like it never sounds like, oh, that's that what James Gray's doing next? A science fiction movie with Brad Pitt? Sign me up. Like, no, it always sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> um you know, and I thought like, oh man, he's he's lost it. Well, at least we had, you know, that run of films. And then when it came out, and then it showed up at the last minute, unfinished at Cannes, you know, Apocalypse Now style, you know, like with you know, everyone kind of, um, you know, I remember a lot of the reviews were like a little bit perplexed. I'm like, oh, great. You know, it's going to be this bad science fiction movie. I don't know if I read the reviews to find out it's actually not a science fiction movie. Yeah. It just has science fiction imagery. Um, but I, it was a kind of thing where... I was in, I was, you know, again, like it's, it's like the fallen angels kind of situation where I'm hearing, like, oh, it's this kind of like, oh, it's nice try, but too ambitious for its own good. And, um, you know, you know, not quite the success that the previous film was. And then what was weird about it was that somehow a DVD version of it wound up in the Netflix uh, catalog on DVD before the theatrical release uh, came out. So th- they they quickly corrected this, but I was able to rent it through <laughs> Netflix before it came out in theaters through Sony. And so I saw it, you know, at home the first time I saw it. And um, I remember being blown away by it. I mean, initially I was uh, con- confused because it starts off 
you know, in a science fiction situation before you realize that it's actually only visualizing the fiction of the character from In the Mood for Love and that it's actually, or may or may not, I, I think it's meant to be seen as a continuation of that story. Um, but it, you know, would have these resonances to Days of Being Wild also in terms of the music and the what the Lulu character showing up. Um, that I think... Even though I think it's lumpy in places as far as like it doesn't need to do quite so much with the metaphorical fiction being visualized, I think there's at least a feature length work uh, of the Tony Lung story, you know, and his interactions with women that I find totally beautiful and satisfying as much as in the mood for love in in terms of these scenes. Like, I think he makes great use of the the wider frame like it's not him repeating the old tricks like it's 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 a new it's the same relationship i feel with like fallen angels to chunking express as far as like i as far as like i feel like um he's returning to the well but he's got a different eye towards that world and i don't i wouldn't say that it works as well as in the mood for love because again the austerity of in the mood for love kind of works in its favor whereas 2046 feels like the overstuffed last grand statement of all things Wong Kar Wai. And it almost feels like he didn't need to make films after this on some level because he's trying to sum up the entire... I mean, there's not really so much like the gangster, you know, violent imagery of it. But I mean, as far as like trying to sum up what all the romance films uh, tackle, it's definitely feels like it's stuffed with stuff with scenes stuff with characters stuff with incidents and it feels a little bit undigested compared in the moon for love but the parts that work i think work so well that i think i was pleasantly surprised because i again like i you know i went into it with like a lot of reservations based on what i had read at, coming out of can and then um you know w- whether it's the performance of um uh zhang ziyi you know like i think that there's like new faces to the Wong Kar Wai um, uh, stock company that I think add real kind of kick to it. Um, like, and even it was nice seeing people like Faye Wong again, but like, it's, um, I don't know. Like, I think it's, it, I wouldn't say it's a better film than in the mood for love, but I, I think that it's, if you got to do that thing again, like I like that it's not giving me something I've already seen before, even if it has a lot of self-referential elements, but um I, I I respond to it aesthetically as well. I, I like the use of the Nat King Cole and things like that, the way that he uses um, California Dreamin' and Chunking Express or the that music from uh, the Taejun Suzuki film like as the theme in, in The Mood for Love. Like, um, it's... I don't know. I, I, I think... I think as much as anything since Fallen Angels, it feels like a film that could just be installation art. I feel like... Of all people, Kanye West had like a record release party with like a lot of 2046 imagery at one point. I forget which record that was for, but like that, it, I it, believe it feel- that is Kanye yeah. West identifying with Tony Lung's character in this movie totally makes sense to me. Yeah, but I thought I think it's also interesting that like if we have an entire film with Tony Lung being, we have multiple films in a row with Tony Lung being kind of like downtrodden to see him as this. Un, kind of unlikable hardened smoothie is I mean I get why that is off-putting but I also think that's interesting um he, he becomes like the Leslie Chung character from 
Days of yeah. Being Wild. And I always wonder, because one thing we didn't... Yeah, we didn't mention we, this. <laughs> one thing we didn't say is that the last scene of Days of Being Wild is like... <laughs> Like if it appeared after the credits, it would be like a Marvel movie. Yeah, it's like you know you have like this totally disconnected scene that's setting up the sequel, but you never got that sequel. But I wonder because we have Chow as the gambler, as the ladies' man, and I wonder if this is using ideas that would have been part of that unfilmed uh, Days of Being Wild sequel. But it is a it's a much grimmer, more sour film. Um, so I get why it's less immediately likable. And I, like I said, I, I think that some of the science fiction metaphor stuff, it's, it's a little much, but I, I do think that it, it holds its own as an interesting, engaging film alongside like the, the string of masterpieces that like are less controversially praised. Um, but t- feel free to disagree. Tell me, tell me, I, tell me your thoughts. I on honestly <laughs> like, I this is the film if I see this two more times and you know and and don't wait six years in between each time I see it so I just forget all the details all over again like I it's first off it's just I saw it thinking okay I didn't want him to make a sequel to In the Mood for Love but he made a sequel to In the Mood for Love I understand that the guy he's no longer writing martial arts stories he's writing a sci-fi thing so we're gonna see some images from the sci-fi thing um that's fine i i i don't have to be too invested in the sci-fi thing because i know it's only it's fictional within the world of this okay let's let's see what this is this is widely beloved this is really not a controversial film in his filmography i don't feel uh, uh, from my limited perspective of every single person i follow on letterboxd has given this four and a half or five stars like um okay this is this is in my neck of the woods or whatever, which I don't have a, I don't have the widest view of film culture necessarily. Um, and I just, one, it's like, well, this isn't a sequel. This is a different character. Like, sure. He mm. talks about, he liked this girl, but like, this is a different character. It's like a totally different person in every way. He's wearing a must. He's even wearing a mustache. Like, this is just a different person. Okay. So I'm like, so and it's like, okay. So he remembers the hotel room for two forty six, but it's just a, different person has stepped into this role. It's not the same character. Okay. Okay. This is, I don't like any of the sci-fi stuff. I think it's ugly. And all of the metaphor is, I just does nothing for it. It's like all, all my arguments are like the most banal thing. And I think it's just like, I can't totally grasp what it's doing. So I can't totally refute why it does it poorly. Um, but it, I can say the first part of this movie that's interesting to me is the introduction, introduction of uh, Zhang Ziyi, um, and that's 40 minutes into the movie. Yeah. So I sat through 40 minutes of this movie liking nothing. I even think it's visually kind of monotonous. Um, I, I think, and again, like I said, when uh, we were talking about like Ashes of Time, all the movies that I saw for the first time, other than As Tears Go By, I, I've realized like, I don't know why this exists. And therefore all I can do is sort of just linger in a lot of these aesthetic choices that I'm not into. I think he's leaning way more on the step printing things in ways that seem less justifiable and less narratively driven. It's just sort of a general sauce that he smears on the movie. I think it's a lot more monochrome and not in a like really interesting, compelling uh, sort of stuffy, humid way. Like in days of being wild, I think it's just kind of dreary I think the fact that this is the only movie in the Wong Kar Wai, World of Wong Kar Wai box set, in the Criterion box set that wasn't touched 
says to me like and that he just sort of made all of the other movies look more like this one uh, and grandmaster kind of looks like this as well it's grandmaster mm-hmm. it's more monochrome and it's obviously more heightened because it exists in like this sort of genre construct and there's other visual ideas he has in that movie but in general this is like okay this is the look Wong Kar Wai has arrived at and I hate it. I really do not like the way this movie looks. It all seems to take place in this single room. Um, so I'm just sort of seeing the same environment over and over again. And again, in the mood for love, very simple story. You instantly know what the dynamic is. Um, it instantly sets up what the stakes are. It gives you the suspense of where is this going to go? These two are definitely going to fall in love because they're the most beautiful people I've ever seen. And they just had a meet cute in the first scene. Like, this is so like everything is built off of that and every meaning of every shot choice is built off of that. This movie, I have no idea what story it's trying to tell. So every weird choice it makes is totally divorced from meaning. Um, and so I could only appreciate it for its pure aesthetic value, but I don't. I don't like the way it looks and I don't like being stuck right. in this hotel room. I don't like Fei Wong's story is she likes she's in love with a Japanese man. Her dad doesn't like it because he resents the, the the Japanese aggressors in World War II. Mm-hmm. She leaves and goes with him. And that's sort of... Like, their, their whole thing of writing together is not... There's not a lot of... Di- it's not very dynamic. There's not a lot of interesting things going on. They just sort of write together, and then she leaves. And then later... Right, but I, th- I think that that's just faking us out, because we've seen it in the mood for love, and we think that this will lead to something but what it it leads to is that he is not so heartless that he tries to seduce her when he sees that she's in love with someone else and he tries to precipitate it and it's just showing that he's not completely a villain sure, but what it's doing is the absence of something <laughs> like right <laughs> so if you're not bought in that's not going yeah. to hook you um if you're not if you if you already find it impossible to view this as a follow up to in the mood for love which all of the mm-hmm. stuff about the one chance he had at love and uh you know the character who has uh, Maggie Chung's name and all that stuff that's at the end so like at that point i had already given up on the idea of looking at this as the same character so that's just a sequence where nothing happens as far as i was concerned <laughs> the stuff with the right. android and the like 10 hours later, 100 hours later, 1,000 hours, like, that's just sort of, like, a dumb joke, kind of, and, uh, I, I don't know, so it's just, like, one of those things where, obviously, this is, there's just very specific things, um, that make In the Mood for Love work, and that are not present here, and in, and I just... I can't see it as a follow-up to In the Mood for Love because I just really can't make the connection between he had his heart broken and therefore he becomes this callous kind of playboy character. I think the idea is that who he is at the beginning of this movie is a reaction to the events at the end of the movie. Um, But I just don't buy it. And if I saw it again and if I really tried to look for it, it is a Wong Kar Wai movie. There is negative space. There's elliptical editing. There might be a line somewhere where um, you go, okay, that's that's the thing. And then I can suddenly see everything differently. But like when this guy's talking about like he's writing porn and he's talking about the big tit nightclub singer, it's great for big tit lovers. I'm like, this is, this is like so, the only reason you make this choice for this character is because it's the exact opposite of the previous movie. But that just means right. that I don't view it as the same person. Um, you just didn't do, I just don't see the legwork to see the change. 
Well, I mean, I think this this one, I mean, definitely feels like intellectual game playing with expectations in a way that you know, I, 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 I find myself going with it, but I can understand it feeling... Um, I, I don't even know that I... I mean, yeah, I don't know if I ever think about it like as... I always do think of it as a sequel to In the Mood for Love, but it, I, I wonder how it plays if you don't have that at all, where you just think that the Gong Lee situation it, the, at the beginning is the uh, is the moment of heartbreak that puts him on the, uh, you know, in in that headspace where we see him for the most of the film just as this again, like the like the Yeti character in um, Days of Being Wild what? is just charming people, but like breaking hearts and like just being like mega guarded. So at I, all th- times. I th- and then another thing is like again, I've seen this twice, um, but. I have an issue, especially this is his longest movie, I believe. I don't know if the yeah, I don't oh, know if by the far, full, yeah. I don't know if the well, full the, well, and the Grandmaster, yeah. But yeah. like, this is I. If I watch a long movie and I'm not getting something out of it for the first thirty minutes, it becomes you know I have ADHD. It becomes a real struggle to actually pay attention, and therefore there are things that may happen later that would inform the way I think of the first thing that I just don't pick up on because I'm just not paying as close attention because I just struggle. And so when you say the Gong Li thing happening at the beginning, doesn't Gong Li only show up at the end of the movie? No, she's at the very beginning. What is the, what's the scene at the beginning she's in? The so the beginning scene is repeated at the end which is like he's a gambler who's down on his luck and he meets a uh, a woman who's a um like a master gambler and she helps him win his money back and he kind of falls for her but she's got a past that she's kind of keeping, you know, no pun intended, like cards to the vest, you know, like, like, like she's not, she's not letting him in as to what her reason is for not going away with him. And, um, I, I, you, you kind of get the, at the opening, you get like his efforts to convince her to come, uh, away with him. Like his prospects are no good where they are, but she, says, well, I'll go with you if you can, you know, do this card trick. Like, oh, like, like, that's like, right, that but, scene. So, so, so we open with that. So even if we don't have In the Mood for Love, um, we have this scene that is, we, we come to learn is like, you know, like something like that is like the, the possible explanation for his behavior throughout the rest of the story. Like he, when he then goes back to Hong Kong and stays in room 246, well, he tries to stay in 246, but um, he finds Lulu from Days of Being Wild, um, who winds up, I guess, being murdered. And that's why the room is not available. Um, but then, so, again, it's like, but then, okay, bringing, so there's some time jumps that I wasn't grokking because I, I thought she was murdered and then she shows up towards the end of the movie, but that end of, that must be events that take place before. Yeah, it's. I mean, I find her reappearance a little bit confusing because um, I'd, I'd have to figure out the timeline that we're seeing. But I, that's that's what the narration tells us. So, like for me, there's. It starts off with some sci-fi stuff where I'm watching it and I go, I don't understand this, but that's fine. I'll just sort of roll with this for now. And then it gets mm-hmm. to the. There's the stuff in the Cambodia. You said it's Cambodia, right? In the. Uh, in the end of in the mid for love, or at the beginning yeah, yeah. of this movie, um, wh- where where the scene with Gong Li is taking, I can, well, oh, oh yeah 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 yeah. Well, if they're referencing the mid for love ending, then that would be Cambodia. And then there, well, there's the scene in the stairwell, and there's the scene with the cards and stuff. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. all that stuff made no sense to me, but I just go, all right, well, I just got to see if I can remember this. 
and then hopefully it will make sense by the end. And then we get to the point but, where he's like a playboy, and I go, okay, so this is the movie starting proper. And then by the time we get to that at the end, I totally forgot that all that happened at the beginning. See, and for, for me, this is like one of the films that most t- – this is going to sound completely perverse to you. But like th- this is the film that reminds me most of like old Hollywood because like the – Yeah, the, you're right. Um, it does. <laughs> of, of the fact that it's like both like, like ostentatiously glamorous but also like the world of like – card players and writers and you know call girls and like it feel I, I don't know for some reason it feels like a, like the kind of world that i would associate kind of not with film noir but like maybe film noir adjacent type films from the 50s um i i think of like you know like yeah like not quite fem- he's not quite like like a, I don't know what would be the the male equivalent of like a femme fatale because I I think that like movies tend to celebrate yeah. you know that kind of behavior but like I, I I think that there's something like like glam like I mean the glamour is big part of why that people I think many people respond to this film just on a surface level if they if again if they're not put up by the cinematography I I, I don't like the look of this as much as previous one car Y films but it's not as off putting to me as it is for you but like um. Yeah, I, I think I take it as a as a as a an episodic um, experience that like I, I I like some episodes more than others. I don't I don't always think of it like in a this is neatly summed up in a way that in the mood for love is yeah. is. But um, if I take it as something closer to the how I take Fallen Angels, which is like um. I, I, I just go like, I don't want to say like, I just go on the ride, but like, I, I, I take it from moment to moment. And, but I do feel but something. But there's such a sense of humor with Fallen Angels that gets me through all of the stuff where I don't connect emotionally to, whereas this movie where, is pretty humorless. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a little bit, but not, not, yeah. But I think that it's just, I think I respond to the, like, the, like the, the, there's a certain kind of sadness to it yeah. like that never really seems to break that I like. I mean, you kind of talk about like the, the more de- depressive sibling, you know, fallen sure. angels, the tonking express. And I think of this as the, as the, as the same kind of relationship to in the yeah. middle love as far as like, this is both flashier and more down. And the reason this is and, not my least favorite Wong Kar Wai movie is because I do like the stretch, uh, with Z Yang, um, where he, uh, where he keeps paying her and then she shows him up by not like showing up at the dinner and stuff like, like there is a 30 minute stretch of this movie that I enjoy. I just, I one don't see what the point of it is in the larger structure. And two, there's just so much of the movie that I don't. And that's, that's sort of my issue. And I, I, you know, and I, there's things I still have, I still kind of puzzle over as far as like, so 2046 is the year that, so when, like when when china took control of hong kong they had made some arrangement or agreement that they would not make massive changes to the way of life in hong kong for 50 years but like 2046 would be the last year that like hong kong is like as they know it is living on borrowed time and like what china chooses to do after that is you know again like it gets assimilated into like mainland china yeah. You don't talk about Hong Kong as being separate from China in any way. Right. Right. No, I, I know it's yeah. controversial. But like, so that, again, like with Happy Together, it's like, 
some kind of anxiety about this change in culture and change in history. And so like when he talks about um, people go to 2046 because nothing ever changes there, um, you know, I, I don't I don't totally grasp it in a way that like I can I can. I can articulate sure. like I, I I get kind of what he's trying to do because it's again it's like you you give this explanation of this future where nothing changes and then you race back to the sixties where you just were um, in the previous film and you know what what's the reason for returning to this other than like what didn't you get before and I I think that that's a I don't know if I have an answer for that question but I think there's an interesting um film for him to make you know and it feels like a summing up of themes he explores in other films you know at least at least days of being wild and in the move for love maybe not so much the um like the chung king fallen express if uh, fallen angels you know kind of thing but like i i, I don't know i i think that there's there's just a lot of scenes that i think are beautiful in it and i i can acknowledge some flaws but i it does work for me uh more often than not i i wonder if I've I've talked about how like it's it's so clear like in almost all of his movies you know we're we're talking about the anxiety of the state of Hong Kong as it pertains to China as it pertains to Great Britain as it, as it pertains to the handoff and the Cultural Revolution or the year 2046 all these things and I've talked about like there is this anxiety the characters feel there is this I- idea of the precariousness of time of the fatalism of certain characters of the inability inability to change um, your state uh, and things like this. And it's like, I always watch these movies and I take the political side as just informing who Wong Kar Wai is as a man from Shanghai living in Hong Kong who feels, who probably feels not necessarily solely a citizen of either. He is... Uh, I, I, one of the books I read, he is like a, a a member of a like Shanghai cultural club within Hong Kong. Like that is an important part of his identity. Um, hmm. To him is is Shanghai and being from Shanghai and those roots. And like I think of that as, of course, these things are going to infect the kind of characters, um, but I don't think of them as overt political statements um, because it's so clear to me that these are character driven movies. And I wonder. If this is because in in the mood for love and especially this movie, there is a lot more talk about the political unrest of the '60s Hong Kong. Um, yes, and I wonder if he made a shift um, at this point in his career as he sort of took more control uh, uh, aesthetically as well. And he is making more intellectual movies. He is making more um, overtly political movies and. In the mood for love, I respond to because of the absolutely simple story at the core, and it and that works on its own. But this movie is working on intellectual levels that I just can't access because I don't have that context, um, and that's why, like for me, it's like, oh, none of the stuff that I want out of a Wong Kar Wai movie is here. I don't know, um, yeah. but it's it's just it's the it's the sort of thing where every time I watch it, I am struggling just to. I'm I'm not necessarily struggling with like what's happening in a scene. It's not like Ashes of Time where you forget who's who, <laughs> but it, I, right, right. I am I am struggling so hard as to why anything is happening that I'm maybe not picking up on what the movie actually is and what it's actually doing, and therefore 
I can't really yeah go into too many more details about this movie in any way, but uh, well, other than saying we've... I'm not a fan, and I am surprised that I'm in such a minority because my understanding is this movie is widely beloved. Now, if you're going to tell me that's not the case. I, I feel like when it came out, it was not universally acclaimed. I mean, certainly when it played it can, it was not. And I feel like um, it got its it got its share of, of raves, but I, I, I don't think it was received the same way that Happy Together and In the Mood for Love were. Um, so if it's if it's taken on like the um, classic you know, reputation with a different generation or not. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know that I've always liked it. I've always kind of seen it as not not perfect, but like a fitting close to that period of Wong Kar Wai's films because it seems like things change quite a bit after this. This feels like, um, you know, the, 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 the interesting final chapter, and it makes sense that, it, you know, these box sets and such kind of treated as the, yeah. as the last chapter. You might, as, you uh, might say that uh, that era has passed and nothing that belonged to it exists anymore. I mean, someone said that once somewhere, didn't <laughs> yeah, they? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Actually, and I would totally, I already contradict myself because the hand comes next. That's, that's <laughs> true. I, I mean, these are both 2004 movies, and I don't know the exact production history of either, so... I'm not sure when The Hand was made in relation to 2046. I want to say it might have even been made before, but released after. But I, That I would make sense to me, so- personally, but... Yeah, but that... that Because I think that my Blueberry Nights was kind of made in in reaction to the weight and scale and stress of 2046. Like, it had a similar function that Chung King Express has to Ashes of Time as far as, like... All right, no more big period epic. Right. Let me just knock out something quick that's about love. So, so real quick, I've never seen the movie Eros, though there was a period of I've time where these omnibus films were really hot. Um, I remember at the same period, at the same time, the Three Extremes came out, and there was a bunch of like city-oriented ones with like Paris Jetan yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah I mean they they. they f- they come and go because I mean there was a definitely definitely like a like a whole slew of them in the was in the sixties like um you know like the, the, the there was a there was a couple in the sixties with like different foreign film like legends like Pasolini and Godard and you know Romer like you know doing uh things like this and then I think you know Tarantino tried to bring it back before <laughs> rooms didn't you know and then there was like you know New York stories in the eighties oh, you right. know but. Um, I mean, these things, but the, uh, you know, it's, it felt like a trend, a tricky... it felt like a trend though for a bit. And maybe that is like the DVD market suddenly made these movies financially viable in a way that they weren't always theatrically, because if you have a DVD that has a beloved director on it, their fan might buy it, even though they only take up 10% of the movie. I mean, I don't think it's a mistake that Four Rooms is like not part of any uh, Tarantino box set. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know like that audiences have ever been crazy about the omnibus format for at least for like this kind of thing. I mean, even with horror, um, like uh, some people I know were just in a documentary about like um, I think it's called Tales of the Uncanny. Oh yeah, the anthology the seven films. Yeah, so anthology stories like definitely like I mean have always had their you know they 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 have their place i mean people do like them but it's not like um 
I don't know that many people's favorite films are like anthology films or no. that like, you know, and, and certainly when it comes to name brand filmmakers, like, you know, I, a lot of them want more than the half hour sure. though, <laughs> or whatever. So I will say that in currently but the Eros is interesting because Eros is like the New York stories, you know, in that everyone talked about the first one and nobody liked the second one. And then the third one, some people like, and some people don't, you know? So what was, um, what I, who did what? So Wong Kar Wai was the opening, and everyone loved the Wong Kar Wai story. Yeah. And then Steven Soderbergh kind of bunted. I mean, he does like this like comedy with Alan Arkin, you know, that's just kind of like, why is this here? And then, but it's not, it's not bad. It's just kind of like it, it, it feels like because Almodovar was also supposed to be part of this, which would have yeah. been you know four I, stories. I, I can't and, like, think of a director that I associate less with Eros than Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> Exactly. Well, he made Sex Lies in Videotape. I mean, if he had made that as a short film, he maybe had a ch- shot. But, like, um, yeah, he's he was kind of the oddball kind of in that lineup. And then Antonioni um, did the third. And I want to say that was the last thing he made. I, I can't remember. I think that's after his last feature. Um, I, I remember kind of liking it, but I haven't seen it in a long time. And I... I I, I got why it wouldn't be for everybody, like like most late Antonioni. Like, it's not like, um, I, I know I'm in the minority liking it, but I did like it. But it was a case where it was like, same with like New York stories is like Scorsese's Life Lessons and then Coppola's, um, you know, uh, was it Life with Zoe? And then like Woody Allen's uh, Oedipus Rex or whatever. And like the everybody was just only talking about that first one, like blown away the other two. And it was the same kind of thing with this, where it's like anything I ever read about Eros was just kind of like Wong Kar Wai made a small masterpiece. And there's these two other things, but you know, let's, let's talk about the hand. Yeah, I love the hand. I love, especially, especially coming off of 2046 and me thinking that this was made after 2046. I was really dreading this. Um, and then it turns out this is just like exactly what I wanted where it's, it's in, it's a, it is both a further, I don't know if it's a further refinement just because In the Mood for Love feels so absurdly polished, but like it is a further exploration of the aesthetics of In the Mood for Love. But then also it made me rethink the rest of Wong Kar Wai's filmography in a way that makes this feel vital in the way that like no other, none of his other short films or commercials or anything do, um, which is it makes explicit something that is really only implicit uh, in in all of the other relationships in his movies, which is they are all about power dynamics, and they are all like like I I talked about Fei Wong, like um like someone as beautiful as Fei Wong just being obsessed with you and wanting to like make your life better even if you don't know she exists, and in fact maybe wanting to prefer not to be there or whatever. Like that is a that is a sort of uh fantasy of some sort. But like, if you look at it from her character, it's like this. If you read a, uh, if you read an erotic novel or something from her character's perspective, it would be this like ultimate BDSM sub thing where she's not being acknowledged that she exists or something. Like, there's something really kinky about it, actually. Um, right, right. In a right, way, right. and there's like, and, I, and it, I after I watched this, I kind of went back and looked at all these other Wong Kar Wai movies, and I was just like. Oh, they're all kind of kinky a little bit. Like I, I don't, I'm not necessarily into psychoanalyzing directors through their work because I just don't believe that that the artistic process is as clean as they did this, they're into this or whatever. 
Uh, right, but, right, right. But like, it is really funny watching this and then looking back in it and the way it colors it in a way that this is to me absolutely vital in his filmography. In a way that even like my Blueberry Nights doesn't feel to me. Um, yeah, no. I mean, I've always thought it was. I mean absolutely perfect and again it's like him at his most austere i mean even more than in the mood yeah. for love arguably i mean so i i but not I, cold at the time because because the austerity is part no. of the erotic fantasy yeah yeah no no it's 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 minimalist it's not like yeah unfeeling um yeah no i i don't have a lot to say about the hand other than i've always just thought it was you know a completely satisfying short yeah film. it's it's about a it's about a tailor um who is a, he's an apprentice tailor who's training to be his own master. And he stumbles upon this woman uh, who is in many ways similar to the character uh, Rebecca Pan plays in uh, Days of Being Wild. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you can kind of imagine it, it as a precursor character to that, especially sort of her arc in the film. Um, and she sort of realizes that he is this lowly sort of servant, <laughs> this sort of like, Taylor's assistant who has no power, uh, certainly over her, but no power in his place of work either. So she just kind of sexually toys with him and that in a way that totally fucks him up and he becomes obsessed with her. And he is just totally devoted to her in the way that he makes her dresses and stuff. And then as her fortunes turn and maybe she's getting older or maybe she's too tempestuous and, and, and she's too haughty and her rich lovers who fund her lifestyle turn away from her. Um, she has to turn to working the streets in a very like operatic kind of a character uh, turn where she gets tuberculosis or something of the sort uh, after yeah. having to the, walk the uh, work the docks. <laughs> that kind of feels like again like that that heartbreak tango kind of influence of like the you know the uh, the, the one time like object of desire who is like dying in bed kind of thing. It's, it's similar to to that novel. Um, but she's still beautiful to him. And I, there's just, there's so many little dynamics in there. that are so good, but it is very minimalist and simple. And we don't have to spend a ton of time on it. Other than if you are someone who was like, well, I don't hear people talk about the hand very much. It clearly must be a minor, unimportant Wong Kar Wai movie. The way I thought you are incorrect. It is really fucking good. And I really like it. And it is on the criterion channel. Um, yeah, and it is part of that box yeah. set, and it's like an expanded version of it too. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Eros in a while, I, and I didn't get a chance to compare it. I think it's only like maybe ten minutes difference. It's not like I would imagine it's just sort of longer stretches of him gloriously working on the dress and things of that nature. I it's one of the only director's cuts that's actually longer with Wong Kar Wai. He tends to tighten things up with the, with the revisions. Um, um, but yeah, no, it's. I think. I mean. I watched 2046 more often, but I would, I mean, certainly not argue that it's as, as consistently perfect as the hand. Yeah. <laughs> um, my Blueberry Nights is going to be difficult for me to talk about because I don't remember it too well. I only watched it the one time. I was intending on watching it twice, and I just, at a certain point, I got real tired, and I was like, I can't, <laughs> I can't with this movie. Um, it is... It is shallow in a way that none of these other movies feel shallow, and I only saw it the one time, so it's possible if I were to lean forward the way I do with Chun King Express, you start to see all these other little details and rhymes and twinning and stuff that makes it interesting. But for me, it just, it felt like every scene was a very bland version of it. You know, I mean, I saw 
I saw my Blueberry Nights when it came out, and I went into it really dreading it because um, I just, I, I thought, like, there's no way this Wong Kar Wai thing would translate to an American film full of American movie stars and, you know, pop stars and such. And at first, I didn't really warm to it. I, I, it kind of, it did win me over by the end, not to the way that I liked other Wong Kar Wai movies, but I didn't think it was a fiasco. And um, watching it two more times before um, recording this with you, I, 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 again, I, I, I like it well enough. It, it, it feels a lot more connected to the other Wong Kar Wai films than I think I initially appreciated. Oh, okay. uh, um, in, in, well, cause it's, it's, it's based on us. I mean, it's based on the, um, the second part of, was it stories about food? There was a film that was like three short films that in one that Wong Kar Wai was going to make. And one involved, um, a couple in a diner and then one involved, uh, uh, neighbors who find out their spouses are having the affair and that became expanded into a feature. And then the, um, I forget if the third one, what that was, but they were all involved like um, food and its relationship to people um, in, in, in romance stories. And so he actually had filmed a version of this, which he showed once at Cannes. I think it was called like in the mood for love 2001. And then he remade that, and expanded that into my blueberry night. So it has this direct connection within the mood for love in terms of like the origin of it. Um, but it also has, and it has music that, I mean, is like an interpolation of the theme from in the mood for love. Um, and then the character, um, that Rachel Weiss plays is named Sue Lin, which is the name of the Maggie Chung character, you know, uh, it like, so it's, and there's, you know, obviously lots of things that tie into Chunking Express as well. I mean, I think of the um, the way keys are like distributed as like a symbolic, you know, breaking up, you know, here's the keys and like leaving that at like a restaurant. Like this feels like something that is very much a, like a lift of the Chunking Express idea with like, you know, um, these uh the uh, the airline attendant like leaving the keys with the letter for uh, Tony Lung and then Fei Wang using them, but like um, you know that that same kind of like closure act, um, you know it's it's similar, um, but then you know it and it has like the um, you know Nora Jones plays a character that's kind of like Fei Wang in that like she um, has like this wanderlust before returning to the lover, you know, that she's going to embark on a relationship with at the very end of the film. Like it's, and again, it's another untrained actress, singer, um, but kind of being made as like more of the protagonist than Fei Wong, who's kind of more, you know, um, kind of uh, dual lead with uh, Tony Lung in that segment of it. Um, it's, again, it's, it's a, it's, it's one where he's working with an outside writer for the first time. I, um, uh, don't have the guy's name in front of me. The guy that wrote the novel that Eight Million Ways to Die is based on. Okay. Um, but it's like, yeah, but it's a novelist that um, I don't know if he was brought in to kind of help make the the dialogue uh, and, and cultural things more realistic because Wong Kar Wai is obviously coming from an outsider's perspective. I I, I think I kind of like how deceptively light 
it is. Yeah. I think I, I think that like everyone attacked it at the time for being just like a, a trifle, like that was not worthy of a serious artist. But I wonder how it plays for people that have no knowledge of Wong Kar Wai that just see it as, oh, I know who Natalie Portman is. I know who Rachel Weisz is. I know who Jude Law is. Like, I wonder how it plays for people that don't have the baggage of like, oh, well, this is clearly not as good as In the Mood for Love or Chunking Express. Um, I I think that it's, if it's a failure, it's um, it's amiable. Like, it's, it's kind of like how I feel about like certain Peter Bogdanovich films that people don't like. It's like, well, it's not trying to be serious or weighty. Like, it's just this uh this entertainment but it's also so unconcerned with story and just about mood and about uh melancholy that it's like it's still kind of doing the Wong Kar Wai thing but it does not have this is something I was thinking about like is if this exact same story was told in Hong Kong like kept the same dialogue same scenario same uh like composition same slow motion would people receive it differently is the fact that there's no exotic element to it um part of why people can't take it seriously because you know they they see jude law and they see these movie stars they know and it doesn't have like if tony lung was playing that part would this situation feel like less absurd i I don't know i don't i don't think (laughs) i so like i said that was sort of my assumption going in and then i watched the bmw short and that has none of that and it works because it's just it's better written like for me the first thing is this guy runs a coffee shop and everyone leaves their keys with him like that you it instantly exists it's like it's instantly asking me to accept a premise that i just can't accept and and then right, and then right, everything right. that comes off of that is just it, again chung king express fallen angels also don't exist in a realistic world but the way that the key is left off at the stall, that's a little weird, but it's not, it's not, it's not as if when uh, the stewardess leaves the key in the envelope, they put it with the, like, if, if they opened a filing cabinet and there were like a hundred envelopes in there, it would be very distracting. Um, yeah. And also well, that movie has an energy that this movie doesn't have. This movie is kind of low energy in a way that, oh, it's very that low doesn't energy. serve yeah. the lightness. Um, and then the other thing, this is totally just a matter of my expectations and not anything this movie does wrong. But every time you see a foreign director make a, a film in America for the first time, part of the fun is like how they view this fucking crazy ass country. And like the funny thing about this movie is it actually could take place in Hong Kong. There's like no specific, he almost doesn't shoot outside at all. Uh, <laughs> like, like. It's it mostly just takes place in the coffee shop and then the bar and then like and then the uh, the gambling yeah, and the yeah, it's it's yeah, yeah. Um, it's really not interested in it's not that's not its project which is like a totally acceptable choice but I will say that was a disappointment no. for me watching it no well it feels very much informed by American music like it feels like let's let's you know, whether it's like kind of establishing a coffee shop that is like, you know, haunted by cat power or it's like going to Memphis because that's where blues and country music comes from. And like just, you know, not necessarily like trying to capture what's really there, but what Wong Kar Wai thinks of when he listens to the music of, of America, I think is what is happening there. So it's like the fact that it doesn't feel like it's capturing America the way Chunking Express captures a feeling of Hong Kong. I mean, this 
is definitely studied over, but it doesn't feel like like it's trying to be profound either. No. Like it's not trying like it's like which I I think I think it helps it like because I find it like with even with its awkwardness um I the I'm seeing it three times now I I I find I'm a little bit more forgiving of the things that are a little bit kind of goofy but it's also just like the um All right like so like the hidden like the 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 security camera and like the way Jude Law kind of collects memories that way kind of like resonates with like not only the the um the character in fallen angels kind of videotaping things to you know preserve his father or like um the chang character in happy together like recording people as like audio mementos of things like there's like these things that feel like um like writer's ideas about like how one would retain memory that almost that you kind of just have to kind of go with it or uh to get to, to to not find the entire thing implausible, I think maybe I I don't know if if, if Miramax or was that the Weinstein Company of Miramax like you know if they had like tried I I I think that at some point they just didn't feel like they knew how to sell it and didn't try so it kind of just um I don't know how how often it played or how wide you know despite like all these big names because I think they just didn't have a. Uh, it was just not plot heavy right. enough. It's just it's just episodic. Um, but I think I could imagine it being a, a, a cult film among people we'll never hear about because they're not. I, I, I bet it wouldn't be a cinephile audience. I think no. cinephiles probably see this one as a as a misfire and like an, an anomaly. I don't know Wong Kar Wai has really flirted with making another Hollywood film. I know that for a long time he was connected with a Nicole Kidman project called Lady from Shanghai that never happened. You know what's really um, funny what just occurred to me? We were talking about I was trying I was struggling to think of like films that were like really you look at them and you're like they're trying to be a Wong Kar Wai movie and I was really struggling with coming up with names and this this movie reminded me of the Josh Hartnett movie Wicker Park. <laughs> which I've never seen. Wicker so Wicker Park. Park is a movie that I, it, it just has a weird look to it and I could not figure out what the hell it was doing. And now I think it was maybe trying to be a Wong Kar Wai movie because a lot of it is like foreground objects and like people refracted through glass and things that is, if you are someone who saw in the mood for love a hundred times and you were like, I could do that. You might make Wicker Park. And this kind of movie kind of feels like that too. And I think again, it's like this thing where, um, you know, there are Robert Altman movies that are total trifles and are meaningless, but I just kind of like the way they feel. I just kind of like the way the sound they sound. I like the slow zoom of the camera, and I just like watching Robert Altman movies. So it's like, sure, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll watch some 80s Robert Altman movie and, and just enjoy <laughs> myself fine. I'll watch Beyond Therapy or whatever. Um, this, I don't like the aesthetics, and so... I just like I don't want to just hang out in this movie, um, and I'm not I don't it's it's not like 2046 where it's like oh gosh this is there's too many things going on and I'm not responding to any of it. It's a uh, this there's not enough going on and I don't care. <laughs> yeah, but it is. I, I but mean, it was not I... unpleasant to watch for sure. It wasn't like a, a, a hassle. I like I just like. Um, Natalie Portman is she wearing a blonde wig in this, or is it Rachel Weisz who's wearing a blonde wig in this? No, no, it's Natalie oh, Portman. Oh god, I just like giving Natalie Portman a blonde wig and a southern accent. It's just one of those things that's just like good for her. I bet she had fun being 
doing this dopey ass performance. <laughs> she does look like she's having yeah. fun. I mean, I mean, they all kind of seem to. I mean, David Strathairn as like the sad alcoholic cop. <laughs> You know, I mean, these are, you know, these, there's things that definitely feel like writer's constructions as far as like, well, he's going to write a letter to his wife. I mean, these things feel like, you know, the, the work of, you know, yeah, fiction, but I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily dislike it for that. I mean, I think what I mentioned earlier, like that, that, that line, like once I wanted to be the greatest, you know, the cat power thing, like he kept, keeps returning to that line. I just feel like maybe after 2046, um, this feels like like a deliberately low ambition project, you know, like a, a very, like I, it had money behind it too. Like it was not a low budget movie, but it, it feels like a low budget movie do you, do because you it feels like. Do you think a long car can go back to a low budget movie? I, I often wonder this, like it's so rare that filmmakers do, I feel. Well, I mean, the, the yeah, I mean, what, like after hours or something where it's like you just start from, start from scratch again with like a smaller, yeah. smaller crew, smaller budget. Um, he could do it. I mean, I I don't know. I think when you get older, you know, it's a physical, it's a, you know, it's physically demanding job. I just don't see any of that. I, I, Paul Schrader, I can imagine doing that, you know, like, because he does right. do that. But like, you know, like, well, he'll, he'll kick Stardust Canyons just to try something new. But like for most, <laughs> for most of those directors, when they get like to a certain point, like they, they don't want to deal with like the physical, you know, pressure of a of like you know those kind of low budget uh shoots and i you know Wong Kar Wai i mean grandmaster did all right and that was kind of made with like the, this kind of like bigger canvas i but i you know who knows i mean i i i'd only be guessing as to what his thought process is but something like my blueberry nights i don't see him returning to the u.s for another film <laughs> like that but um do you know I, what the story is like why did he go to the u.s in the first place couldn't he have made my blueberry nights in hong kong was what i think he wanted to work with nora jones is what he said this is one of those things where i look at Wong car why i'm like i don't know if i trust you <laughs> i think I mean, yeah, I think he wanted to work with with Nora Jones and like she wouldn't be able to speak, you know, Chinese. Uh-huh. So like uh, that. Uh, but who knows? I mean, uh, it's I I don't dislike it, but I, I would probably not casually recommend it. Um, but I don't know if like I had my family over, I'd probably put that on for them over any of the sure. movies. <laughs> sure. But yeah, that's I mean. I, 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 that's probably all I would yeah. have to say about, um, and, and three stories about food was the title I was trying to think of earlier yeah. with like the, um, that, that this was originally part of a three part story. So there it's, so it was said that it, there was a short film made in the mood for love 2001, which we didn't talk about. Has, is that available anywhere? Well, no, no, I talked about, no, 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 no. That's, that is, I, I did talk about it. That's the, um, that's the segment that became the, uh, the the diner segment of my blueberry right. nights we did but we didn't talk about it back in 2001 when we were going through chronologically because it's never really been released. okay that was my it, question it, is did i have a chance to watch it, this and it, missed it no 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 no. Uh, um he showed it he showed it at can um which is why even a lot of books and even imdb uh don't include it in you know it's it's not a um it's not for whatever reason it's not a film that he makes available the way um, you know, some of the other segments have okay. been. Um, so 
I, I, he made a, he, this is the period of time where he was really going hot and heavy on these, uh, perfume ads and whatnot. Um, he made a film, a short for Phillips that is kind of incoherent called there's only one son, but I do want to shout it out just cause I think it's really beautiful in a way and, and interesting in a way that the sci-fi segments of 2046 are not to me. Um, I think there's a lot of, if you want to see more Wong Kar Wai sci-fi, I think that There's Only One Sun is a more visually captivating version of it. Um, yeah. I, I kind of like that um, I Traveled 9,000 Kilometers to Give It to You segment also oh, yeah, yeah. from the um, To Each His Own Cinema, but um, which I think is on YouTube now. Yeah, a lot um, of these are on YouTube. Um, if, yeah. you, if you go to IMDb and start looking stuff up and then cross-reference with YouTube, you can see a lot of these kind of commercials and shorts and stuff. Um, 2000 Time, he did yeah. the Redux, which we have already talked about. Yeah. Um, I guess that just leaves the Grandmaster, really. Yeah, yeah. And and the Grandmaster, did you have a chance to to watch this? I So I've seen the cut that was released on DVD in America, which is 90-something... No, it's it's I guess like 100-and-something minutes. Uh, I can't yeah. recall, but at any rate, it is uh, it is a martial arts movie. There are a lot of martial arts fights, and they are shot. There's he has some interesting flourishes with some extreme close ups. That is clearly like uh, a new cam, like a new toy that he got to play with in terms of these ultra slow motion. I don't know if he was using the Phantom camera, which is the famous super slow motion camera, or what. But he has these super ultra slow motion uh, extreme close ups during fight scenes that sort of. Uh, like you'll have a fight scene in the rain and you just see each individual raindrop like breaking off of a sleeve and stuff like that. And those are cool looking. Um, it is the story of Ip Man who at Ip Man exploitation is almost the, as, as, as widely spread as Bruce exploitation was in the seventies. Now um, there are so many Ip Man movies. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it's funny because one big difference between the Hong Kong and U.S. versions of uh, the Grandmaster is that they push the Bruce Lee thing at the end of the Grandmaster in the American version. And it's not. Oh, really? <laughs> it's not an element in the original Hong oh, Kong I version. Should, I no. wish I'd seen the original Hong Kong version because that felt terrible. That felt so bad to me. I was just like, this is yeah. so meaningless. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense then. I'm... Yeah. I mean, the you know, the. The U.S. version is a, a, I mean, so just basically like just so we, I, I interrupted you. We were like kind of summing up what the the story is, but it's yeah, it's like a, it's a, uh, I guess a kind of bio, uh, biopic of of Ip Man and and his, um, you know, uh, he he was like a Wing Chun master that, you know, would become famous for you know his his star pupil being Bruce Lee, but he you know it's, um. Like we we deal with like the the second Sino Japanese War and like the the border closing between Hong Kong and China, so that like his um, like people that he meets along the way, like he gets kind of cut off by people he's met. Like and uh, it's also dealing with a woman that um, Gong Er, played by Zhang Ziyi, um, she is somebody that could be a martial arts master in her own right. She learned the skills from her father, learned like a very specific kind of technique, but because of the sexism of the culture, she was kind of not allowed to, to flourish in the way that it man was, even though the one time they have a, uh, a fight, um, she, she's the winner. 
Um, and uh, they have kind of a tentative romance of their own. So uh, it's it's kind of like a, a Wong Kar Wai, um, more traditional Wong Kar Wai movie in that, in that way. And, and that's, I think, a little bit more emphasized in the U.S. cut versus the Hong Kong cut. Hong Kong cut has more fleshing out with the uh, Ip Man's wife, uh, a little bit more with um, some secondary characters like the Razor that are kind of like almost like kind of fleetingly uh, included in the U.S. cut. So there's some some things that kind of hurt it, but it the U.S. cut is a little bit quicker pace. It's a little more. Um, it, it has some. Um, there's a sequence with the uh, the uh, Gong Er, the the Zhang Ziyi character as a child, um, like watching her father kind of. Uh, do martial arts moves in the snow then she kind of um we see her kind of like learning the the moves herself and so that it's there's there's some kind of cinematically pleasing things that are exclusive to that version that are not from the original hong kong version um they they both have their their strengths if if you're somebody that's like oh i heard wine harvey you know harvey scissors and you know scissor hands you know fuck with the wong kar wai movie it's like well he, wong kar wai was the one that supervised the us cut and it's not quite um it's shorter but it's not necessarily like worse for it um like it's if if you only have the american cut it's not like you got uh, a bad version of a of a ma- it's not like Once Upon a Time in America or something, uh, although it does weirdly use music from Once Upon a Time in America <laughs> um, it, for the dramatic ending. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you do you like this movie? I mean, I, I know that you kind of implied that everything you saw like later didn't really do it for no, you. No, yeah, and I like the fight scenes, and I like the relationship between um, Tony Lung and. Um, uh, Zhang Ziyi. Um, I, I think this is a movie I would like to see the full cut before I have an opinion. Cause most of my thoughts were, boy, this seems disjointed and choppy. And like, granted that's not unheard of in Wong Kar Wai's filmography. Um, but I did struggle with trying to like connect the dots between different little episodes in it. Yeah. Um, well, no, that, that, that is fleshed out more in the Hong Kong version at the expense of momentum. I like it if I don't, try to compare it to Wong Kar Wai's like major films <laughs> I, I it's it's fine like it it yeah I I don't like I don't like it the way I like 2046 or anything prior to 2046 <laughs> but I I like it well enough I mean I it was it was funny to see it in a multiplex you know in Delaware I mean it got a wide release you know here and uh you know the Weinstein company clearly thought they had like I guess a crouching tiger hidden dragon from the director of in the mood for love, (laughs) but you know, they didn't quite achieve that, but, but yeah. And and again, like it's just like my blueberry nights. Like I'm sure there is a cult following for the grand master that is totally separate from the one car. Y cult. Like it feels again, because of ownership and because of subject matter and genre that it feels like kind of outside that, that core of like, the Wong Kar Wai films, like even though it, you know, it, it has a lot that connects it beyond the fact that it has Tony Lung and it, you know, it's another William Chang collaboration. It's, um, you know, and, and again, Zhang Ziyi, you know, um, you know, from 2046, it's, so it's, it's, it's superficially linked to it, but it's, it doesn't have the experimental aspects of, um, you know, in terms of form or in terms of like, uh, yeah, the, the 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 things that critics respond to are, are is not there, but it, as as a as a crowd pleasing 
action biopic. It, it works, I think, in either cut. There's actually three cuts, because there's also an international cut, I think, that combines the best of both, supposedly, but I haven't seen that one. But there is, there's three versions of the Grandmaster that I know well, of. Just wait. There'll be, there'll be a fourth. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then that sort of leads us into where Wong Kar Wai is currently. He is... I, and I believe the way this works is he is uh, soon, but has not yet of this recording on July 26, 2021, released a television series um, called Blossom Shanghai or Shanghai Blossoms. Um, I can't recall which, uh, um, but uh, I believe it is a Chinese produced series that in America will be shown on Amazon Prime. Um yeah, Blossom Shanghai. Blossom Shanghai. Uh, a rags to riches story. It's based off of a novel. There's a teaser trailer out that we sort of briefly talked about, and you know, we'll see how that goes. But um, you know, Grandmaster is 2013. It's been eight years since then, and we're getting a TV series, which, you know, part of me has wondered watching, especially watching 2046 the second time. I was wondering would I like this more if it was a TV series and I wasn't tasked with if each of these individual arcs with these different women was 45 minutes and they were sort of these separate episodes as opposed to all being tasked together in like a two hour movie, would I respond to it better? And so it's possible that Wong Kar Wai has always been primed to make television because he has always made films that were episodic and um, stole told stories in discrete parts that speak back to each other. So maybe a uh, series on a streaming service would work out great. I don't think the teaser looks good, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I I go into all of his, uh, you know, endeavors optimistically, you know. Um, we'll see. I, I, I can't tell by the trailer, yeah. so I'm, I'm not going to assume that it's good or bad. Sure thing. And uh, now I have Jim's Wong Kar Wai thoughts. Jim, the absent host, who will be back... Uh, next uh, month for John Sturges. Um, my question to both you and Bill is how. How he does he do it so masterfully? That hard-to-summarize feeling of longing and desire so brilliantly captured in the majority of Wong Kar Wai's work. Seeing Chungking Express and later in the mood for love felt like experiencing a whole new form of expression that spoke to me deeply, a feeling I kept hoping to rediscover in a few other films of his I've seen. The need to be in love while also knowing it could end at any given time Happy Together definitely comes close to being a perfect encapsulation of self-destructive love that's right... So that's right up there with his best for me. Wong's films portray unrequited love as a motivating problem. Falling in love and turning into a conventional romantic relationship isn't portrayed as a fulfilling remedy for loneliness. In his world, requited love in... Or it's possibly... Or it's possibility, sorry, is equally problematic. Wong's work refuses to settle for romantic union as a pat answer to the myriad of emotional problems his characters face. He manages to make the experience relatable and otherworldly. I think he's one of the best living filmmakers to capture equal measures of euphoria and melancholy while employing some graceful cinematography, even when it's jump-cutty and chaotic. Can't wait to hear what both of you think. Well, Jim, I think you answered your own question pretty well uh, as to how Wong Kar Wai does it. And if you didn't, you uh, have five hours of me and Bill talking about it. So um, <laughs> thank you so much, Bill, for joining me. Um, now, I know this is going to be a tough yes. question. What are your top three Wong Kar Wai movies? Um, I For today, yeah. I'll say, <clears throat> I guess I'll say Happy Together at three, Chunking Express at two, 
uh, in the mood for Levitt one, but I mean, shuffle them. It's I don't really feel strongly about that order. All right, and then um, for me, my number one it uh, in the mood for love. My number two is Happy Together. It's really the last time I rewatched Happy Together, I thought eh, this might be a little better than in the mood for love. They're very close. Um, and then I'll say yeah. my number three is today I'm feeling Chunking Express over Fallen Angels. So. Yeah, Fallen Angels and Days of Being Wild, like, I like as much as, you know, <laughs> those five, I mean, you just get me on the right day, uh, any one of them I could say is the, my sure. favorite, but yeah, no, that, which just says a lot about, you know, how consistent he was for a long time, and, you know, it's funny, you we were talking before about, like, how this might feel like an anticlimactic kind of arc to talk about, because we don't feel as passionately about you know, his, his work after a certain point and, you know, will he you know, make something else that we like even more than happy together or fallen angels? I'm not sure, but it's, you know, it's an important career and, you know, one that I was, you know, happy and honored to talk about on the Absolutely. show. Absolutely. And I'm, I was happy and honored for these uh, three months to be filling in for Jim. Um, I hope you all enjoyed it. And if you didn't, don't worry, I'm gone. Uh, as I said, next month is John Sturges, who did Bad Day at Black Rock, and what else? I can't even... The Great Escape, uh, Magnificent uh, Seven. yes, The Magnificent Seven. Okay, so that's going to be fun. He's going to be joined by Sergio Mims, who's always uh, a great listen. Um, Bill, where can people find you these days? Um, well, I'm on most of the social media platforms, um... And uh, you can find my podcast uh, now playing network.net supporting characters and my blue velvet podcast from the neighborhood is also on there. And um, I guess if I'm going to plug something, my first solo audio commentary comes out uh, tomorrow, actually, uh, for the people next door, um, which is coming out through Kino Lorber slash Scorpion releasing. So, uh, yeah, that's the, you can find me a lot of places. Excellent, excellent. Um, since uh, I'm going to be done here, I am going to be moving back over to Tracks of the Damned and hopefully picking up some long-delayed commentary tracks there. Right now, I'm anticipating tracks on Hostel Part 2, Jurassic Park, The Devil Commands, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you can thank Bill Ackerman for that one. It's going to be a full episode yeah. on that. Uh, and then I was thinking Orca. I kind of like Orca. Work is yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that's up. That, that does it for me on uh, Director's Club Podcast. Uh, uh, you know, that era has passed. Nothing that belonged to it exists anymore. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, I'll be back on here, I think, in two months to talk about Abel Ferrara, but that's another, another oh, story. Oh, you just burned my sign-off line. I had a sign-off line. I finally, I was searching and I found a sign-off line during the recording of the podcast. You can can cut this. I can't wait for the Abel Ferreira episode. I wouldn't withhold that from anybody. (laughs) All right. Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) Goodbye. Oh